Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program through true planetary and galactic history, history, and true history, history of Nasara. Blessed be on this first Saturday of December. We have much to celebrate this month, including this morning's new moon, solar eclipse, and we call on the blessings of that and also um, the Feast of Mary that we will be celebrating this week of the Immaculate Conception, which is really about the Immaculate Concept and the Immaculate Concept plan for both our lives and our health and our life purpose. So we call in these blessings as we begin here today and take this time to go into our heart center, into that sacred portal within our hearts that is the gateway to all that is. Going into your heart center, join me in calling forth the full emergence and integration of your soul, your higher self, your monad, your mighty I am presence, and all of your multidimensional being through to our God presence, goddess presence. As it is time to fully embody the maximum in each moment that we can of our divine presence and our divine mastery here on this planet. This is indeed the time that we have come for. And so see yourself in your muddy pillar of light, fully anchored directly from source, anchored from the heart and the mind of our Mother, Father, God, and feel your emergence with them. Feel your pillar fully anchored deep into the heart of Mother Gaia and feel your emergence with her and with the earth as well. For indeed, we recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. See the beautiful solar light coming in and beautiful golden frequencies bringing forth for us and for all life eternal peace, divine wisdom, Christ consciousness, and infinite prosperity, which is indeed our divine birthright. Feel yourself fully anchored in each direction. And knowing that at the I Am Presence level, we are one with all humanity, we call them forth. Please repeat after me. I am my I Am Presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with all of the I am presences 
of all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with all that is. Take a nice deep breath and feel your heart expand. Feel your pillar expand as well. As this opens you to not only receive, but be the facilitator of these energies in even greater measure for all life. So we call in for one and all, all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward. We call forth all of our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pots. We welcome for one and all, all of our gods and teachers, our healing teens, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome the assistance here today in this ascension work We call forth all of the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the divi kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome at this time all the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, We welcome all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light and all Ascended Master healing teams. We welcome at this time all of our precious friends from the Galactic Federation. those that we work most closely with, including Lord and Lady Arturus, the Arturians, the Arturian healing teams and healing technologies. Lord and Lady Pleiades, the Pleiadian emissaries of light and their healing teams. Lord and Lady Sirius, the Syrian Archangelic League of the Light and their healing teams, including Dr. Lorfin and his healers. Lord and Lady Chiron and the Chiron Healers, Lord and Lady Andromeda and the Andromedan Healers, Lord and Lady Venus and the Venusian Healing Team. We call forth the Venusian Healing Teams and all of the healing teams that we've called forth for everyone and everything in the circle of support. 
from the very first name that created it to all of the people that have been added, including those related to the loss of life at Oxford High School here in Michigan this week and everyone involved. And so we call for the assistance of the entire company of heaven and Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it in divine order for our being. Take a nice deep breath. As we call in our Mother, Father, God, we ask again that this be magnified 10 billion times, 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. As we call in all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. And every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field multidimensionally. The maximum that we can receive both on an individual and collective level for both planetary and cosmic ascension. We ask that all that we receive be easily and effortlessly digested and assimilated, grounded and anchored, integrated and embodied. The maximum that we can receive individually and collectively, ever expanding to perfection. And we welcome to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field multidimensionally. Through every ley line and song line, every portal, every vortex, every monument, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light, all the grid systems, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids. Through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water. As we continue up this spiral of evolution with Gaia, and she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. We call forth for each and every individual the immaculate concept of their divine plan for both their perfect health and well-being as well as for their divine plan and divine life purpose. Focus on the presence of God within you as I now invoke the following. Through the presence of God, God as I am, I now invoke the mighty solar Elohim to project their luminous presence into the atmosphere of Earth. Blessed ones, accelerate the expansion of the circle of the sacred twelve and all the divine qualities associated with each of the twelve solar aspects of deity through my fifth-dimensional solar spine and my 12 solar uh, solar chakras. Project this divine light into every atomic and subatomic particle and wave of my earthly bodies and lift every frequency of vibration in these vehicles 
into the infinite perfection of my solar light bodies. Take a nice deep breath. As we call this forth for ourselves, we call this forth for every man, woman, and child. I clearly perceive that my 12 solar chakras and the corresponding solar meridians of my fifth dimensional spine are unique and radiate light in ways that I have not experienced in the past. I see that each of my fifth dimensional solar chakras radiates all 12 solar aspects of deity all of the time. This is the true meaning of the circle of the sacred 12. We call forth the solar frequencies of the solar eclipse new moon to magnify this individually and collectively through all of us. Beloved Elohim, beloved company of heaven, please, please, please expand the infinite power and light of the circle of the sacred 12 through all of my solar chakras now. Breathe and receive as they are activated. I now experience the 12 solar aspects of deity as they expand one by one through all 12 of my solar chakras. I first experienced the first solar aspect of deity, sapphire blue in color. Each of my solar chakras become blazing crystalline suns of light. As the first aspect of deity is anchored through me, is activated in divine order for my, for my being, I feel it pulsating with all of the divine qualities of that sapphire blue ray, that first aspect of deity, including God's will, illumined faith, power, protection, and the God's first cause of perfection. Take a nice deep breath as this anchors through each of the 12 chakras. I now experience the second solar aspect of deity, which is sunshine yellow. Again, they expand one by one through all 12 of the solar chakras. And I see, sense, and feel it pulsating with the divine qualities of enlightenment, wisdom, Illumination, understanding, perception, constancy, and Christ consciousness. Breathe as this anchors through you. I now experience the third solar aspect of deity, which is crystalline pink. Pulsating with the divine qualities of transfiguring divine love, tolerance, adoration, respect, and reverence for all life. This activates in divine order for each one of us. 
I am now experiencing the fourth solar aspect of deity, which is white in color. Pulsating with the divine qualities of purity, hope, the immaculate concept, restoration, resurrection, and ascension. Now I experience the fifth solar aspect of deity, which is emerald green. Pulsating with the divine qualities of illumined truth, healing, consecration, concentration, and inner vision. Breathe and receive as this anchors through you. We call in Archangel Sandalphon and Mother Gaia to assist in anchoring these frequencies and each of the solar aspects of deity and divine order for our being. I now experience the sixth solar aspect of deity, which is ruby gold. Pulsating with the divine qualities of ministering grace, healing, devotional worship, and peace. Now I experience the seventh solar aspect of deity, which is violet. Pulsating with the divine qualities of freedom, liberty, justice, victory, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and transmutation. We now breathe and receive as the eighth solar aspect of deity, aquamarine in color, is activated, pulsating in each of the 12 solar chakras with the divine qualities of clarity, lucidity, divine perception, divine discernment, and understanding. I now experience the ninth solar aspect of deity, which is magenta, pulsating with the divine qualities of harmony, balance, assurance, and God confidence. I now experience the tenth solar aspect of deity, which is gold. It is pulsating with the divine qualities of eternal peace, prosperity, Abundance and the God, Goddess supply of all good things. Now I experience the 11th solar aspect of deity, which is peach in color. And it is frequent, it was pulsating with the frequencies and divine qualities of divine purpose, enthusiasm, and joy. And now I experience the 12th solar aspect of deity, which is opal, pulsating with the divine qualities of transformation and transfiguration. In my fifth dimensional solar spine, every chakra reflects all of the aspects of deity all of the time. But if I wish to amplify one or more of the aspects of deity for a particular reason or in a particular situation, I simply ask my I am presence to increase that specific divine quality. And it will instantaneously expand through all 12 chakras simultaneously. 
My I am presence always monitors the situation. And when the appropriate amount of light has been projected through my physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies, the circle of the sacred 12 will return to the perfect balance in each solar chakra. I can amplify one or more aspects of deity through my solar chakras time I want to. And I can do it as often as I like, according to the need of the hour and my service to the light. Beloved Mother, Father, God, beloved Elohim, beloved company of heaven, I thank you for the clarity and assistance that you are giving to me and to all humanity during this momentous time on earth. I accept and know through the power of my I am presence that the expanded activity of light that you are projecting through my solar spine is daily and hourly lifting me into higher and higher frequencies of the fifth dimension according to my divine plan. As it is for me, so it is for all. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Because we are celebrating Mother Mary this week, we're going to call in the Divine Mother Emissaries, the Lady Masters. We call forth the Divine Mother and all the Lady Masters of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy. I now call to the Divine Mother and Lady Masters to supply for each of us a group Merkaba in the shape of a gigantic lotus blossom, which will carry us like a giant ocean liner sailing through the heavens and through the 352 levels of reality to the throne of the Divine Mother. Please know that the Divine Mother is the cosmic feminine being at the left hand of source and the sound from which all feminine goddesses and deities spring forth. She is also the sound from which the feminine aspect of all beings spring forth, including all the gods, goddesses, ascended masters, initiates, disciples, and actuality, every manifested aspect of creation. Feel yourself being lifted up in the Divine Mother's Merkaba embrace and carried upward through all the dimensions of reality to the very throne of creation itself. As our Lotus Blossom Merkaba ascends to the 352nd level of divinity at the very heart of creation, we first experience absolute stillness and all-pervading love. We are enveloped in a translucent platinum pink light that is now absorbing itself into every cell, molecule, atom, and electron of our being, into our soul essence, our monadic essence, through us multidimensionally. We are also immersed in the most sublime fragrance of the sweetest smelling roses that we can possibly imagine. In the background, you may hear the music of the spheres, perhaps in the form of a radiant choir of angels, 
singing ineffable, magnificent melodies and harmonies. The light emanating from the throne of Divine Mother is so bright that it takes a few moments for the eyes and senses to adjust to such splendor. As her eyes focus on the throne of Divine Mother, her translucent lighted form can be seen now. Arms open to gather all into the center of her sacred heart. It is as if this group has entered and become one with the living, pulsating heart of the Divine Mother. And as we remain in this stillness, we can feel our entire beings and hearts rhythmically beating to her cosmic pulse. Feel yourself transforming into both an anchor for and a transmitter of this divine hell of love that includes the qualities of love, joy, warmth, tenderness, and nurturing. Activating the Divine Mother within ourself. Know the safety and nurturing that exists within this most sacred gift. As the Divine Mother continues to infuse us with the reawakening of this part of ourselves, that is the core of goddess within both male and female alike. We begin by seeing this translucent, hallowed, platinum pink aura. Seeing within it, beloved Mary, as she glides to you upon a golden crescent moon. representing this new moon. Feel the absolute purity of her essence and the wondrous benediction of her all-embracing love as she merges into this heart space in which you find yourself. Mary holds within her hand an exquisitely beautiful pink rose representing love's tenderness and individually hands a pink rose to each of us at this moment. She watches as you place the rose within your heart, thereby claiming the essence of the feminine spirit and of unconditional love for yourself. Just take this moment to feel this love flood through your being, and then outward to touch all life. Now we receive the energies of Kuan Yin, who is actually overlighting this day of the seven sacred weeks. Kuan Yin emerges out of the light, and you can feel her gaze penetrate you at every level of your being, and now flood you with the essence of divine mercy and compassion. Take a moment now to let the purest qualities of compassion, mercy, and forgiveness wash away any judgments or negativity that you have had towards yourself. Then let it spread outward to others in your personal life who may be suffering due to a lack of mercy, forgiveness, and compassion. And let the same quality of compassion and mercy now flood outward to the entire planet.
as we join with Kuan Yin in her holy service, spreading this divine compassion, divine mercy, and forgiveness. See now Palace Athena emerging from the light. You can feel her quality of divine love and strength into your being, recharging and reactivating these two aspects of the divine feminine as they commingle within her loving yet powerful essence. Take this in, breathe it in. Know that her loving, tender, gentle, compassionate, and nurturing feminine spirit also holds great power to strength and command within him. The feminine contains its unique brand of power and strength, yet these divine qualities are part of that which is the all-embracing divine mother. Pallas Athena brings you the harmony of these energies in female form, and you anchor this now. Allow yourself to honor the divine feminine in this moment by honoring Pallas Athena as well as your own feminine power, strength, and command. Watch now as the golden glow lights up your inner vision to unveil the face of Vesta, the feminine aspect of the solar logos. Let this golden glow stimulate the pure gold of your own as it pours forth and radiates out of custom. Allow yourself to connect with solar intent in a way that you have never done before on a conscious level. Feel the joy of knowing just how much a part of Vesta and the solar system of love and wisdom you truly are. And let this feeling now radiate outward into the cosmos. We now see Lakshmi emerge upon her lotus blossom as she awakens within us the full knowingness that the abundance of all things is there for each one of us. She now asks you to think upon abundance and prosperity. Now hear her as she transmits to you the power to manifest personal prosperity and abundance through the law of attraction. She wants you to know that each of you have the power to do this by simply holding to the positive ideal of that which you seek, letting nothing sway you from this focused intent. This is the most important time to do this. It is always important at every new moon. But at this focus, at focused time, In the evolution of humanity, it is so essential to hold that focus on what you wish to create as heaven on earth. Anchor that in through and around you. And think of a situation or a place within the sphere of this planet that is also in need of prosperity and abundance. And hold your positive focused attention there for a moment. 
now see the Divine Mother of the Native Americans. So it represents the soil, the grasslands, the rivers, the oceans, mountains, trees, plants, animals, and rocks. Allow all nurturing of earth to flow through her into yourselves and feel yourself anchor and activate her divine grace into the very core and heart of our blessed planet. Next, appearing to us, we can feel the presence of Lady Isis. She now breathes into each of us the breath of antiquity so that we may awaken to the new and ancient glory of our own goddess energies. She emits from her aura the ability to decode the language of light, wherein the mysteries of the past, present, and future stand forth to be revealed. We next behold Hera, Greek goddess of wisdom. She waves her hand upon us that we may have the wisdom to use the ever-awakening truths and mysteries for the benefit of all humanity. We now are blessed with the presence of the seven feminine archangels as they one by one come to bless us and bring the distinct qualities of their race. First comes Lady Faith, then Christine, Charity, Hope, Mother Mary, Aurora, and Amethyst. We breathe and receive their specialized blessings and feel the blessings of the corresponding divine feminine Elohim as well from those first seven rays, Amazonia, Lumina, Amora, Estrella, Virginia, Aloha, and Victoria. We feel the enormity of their divine grace and blessings, and we allow these most powerful co-creators within our energy fields and again drink deeply of the divine feminine strength and the will to create. We are now surrounded by the divine presence of the goddess of liberty, the lady of light, Lady Nada, Parvati, Kali, Durga, Mary Magdalene, Portia, Mother Teresa, the Earth Mother, the Lady of the Lake, Lady Helena, and the presence of all the Lady Masters who have ever graced and touched this planet. Take a nice deep breath. As we once again become aware of the breath flowing in and out from our heart center. Truly aware that there is also a heart center located in the hidden chamber within the crown chakra. Known as the heart space within the head. That is one of the major access points where love and wisdom blend. See, we ask for that activation and the activation of this other major access point for the blending of love and wisdom in the eye that is hidden in the secret chamber of the heart center. 
known as the mind within the heart. Allow your breath now to flow evenly through your body, while at the same time holding a point of focus within the heart, the mind within the heart and the heart within the head. Simultaneously feel the solar plexus embrace the power of the divine feminine spirit. Know that this power is different from that which is contained within the masculine part of self. And is also different from the power or will that is representative of the divine father, divine masculine, or young energies. Each aspect, both feminine and masculine, has a point of balance within the other. So divine mother and father are complete within their own point of balance and yet are more fully complete when they merge their balanced essences with, with each other. And this place where the two energies fully merge is called the Godhead. So we continue to feel the blessings and give thanks to Divine Mother. We give thanks also to the essence of the Goddess energy as she manifests within ourselves upon the earth and all planes of existence. We likewise give thanks to the many Lady Masters, Lady Archangels, and Elohim that have given their blessings. And we take this moment to give thanks to beloved Gaia, the Earth Mother. As we hold everyone in our hearts, we give thanks to the feminine spirit within all of our beloved sisters and brothers, every member of humanity every man, woman, and child. And we give thanks to the feminine spirit within ourselves, whether we are incarnated as a man or a woman. All the lady masters of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy step forth and bring forth a love and light shower to all of us, all of us who are residing in this Merkaba, in the heart of Divine Mother, feel and experience this profound cosmic feminine blessing. As the infinite feminine forms rain down their blessings upon us, allow yourself to completely soak in this love and light. And now, beloveds, we join our energies into this love and light shower and rain our collective love and light upon all of our beloved brothers and sisters on earth as well as the earth herself. And as we bring this process to a close, Divine Mother and the Lady Masters, very gently and lovingly, lift this group Merkaba out of the heart of Divine Mother. And easily and gently and caressingly glide us down the 352 levels of divinity back to the earth and into our physical bodies. And as we return, we feel the earth mother embrace us in great gratitude and joy. The divine mother reminds us that we are all a part of her. 
a part of you remains in her heart, and she lovingly invites all to return in total consciousness any time that we feel the need or desire. She wants to love and support us in our service mission on Earth and wants us to know that anywhere we are, she is also. There is no place in heaven or Earth where you are out of the Divine Mother's embrace. Please feel this, experience this, know this in the core of your being. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And so we ask to bless the children of this planet with all that we need to say. Although in mighty I am present. Great host of ascended masters. Mighty legions of light. Mighty angelic host, great cosmic beings, and great cosmic light. We call unto thee as never before to release all that we've received. And especially at this time, thy blue lightning of divine love and the sword of blue flame of divine love. Cut every child and young person on this planet free forever from every force, condition, and thing that would be unjust or bind them into destructive activities in any way. In the name of the mighty I Am Presence, we claim every child and young person on the face of the earth into the service of the light of the mighty I Am Presence and Ascended Host. We call forth whatever activity of the great cosmic law is required to seize, bind, and annihilate all that interferes with their full expression of the Ascended Master's perfection. We speak directly to the electronic body of every young person on Earth to blaze forth the Ascended Master's activity and the sword of blue flame of divine love and cut them free from everything that would draw them from the pathway of light. Annihilate all injustice and every discordant thing by which they are now surrounded. Lift them completely into the octave of light of the Ascended Masters and blast all teaching from the earth that is not the eternal truth of the mighty I Am Presence and the great host of Ascended Masters. Charge forth thy mighty illumination into every brain and body. Charge them with Ascended Master obedience, self-control, management, marvelous directing intelligence and strength that refuses acceptance to everything but Ascended Master perfection. Clothe them in thy mighty glory, which keeps them forever invisible, invincible, and invulnerable to everything that does not serve the light. Let these precious ones go forth completely released to render that service to the earth which brings forth the golden age and bless them with the fullness of the ascended master's divine love, limitless light, strength, perfection, and the victory of their ascension. 
In the name of the mighty, I am presence, I have spoken. And so it shall be established unto them. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath as we call forth for ourselves and every man, woman, and child the following Ascended Master qualities. Mighty, blessed, infinite, I am presence, great host of Ascended Masters. Mighty legions of light, great angelic host, great cosmic beings, and great cosmic light. Come forth in the limitlessness of thy mighty presence and cosmic power into the physical octave of earth. Charge into everyone, into the I am presence of every man, woman, and child, the fullness of the ascended master's love, light, wisdom, power, infinite patience, kindliness, humility, reverence, gratitude, purity, spiritual integrity, and honor in everything that we do now and forever. Eternally sustained by the ascended master's obedience, self-control, management, marvelous directing intelligence, insight, foresight, inspiration, discernment, discretion, diplomacy, peace, poise, and praise. Charge us in our worlds with ascended master love and pour it through us with the power of a thousand suns to blaze forward with such irresistible force that all unlike itself is instantly consumed, perfection made manifest and all set free wherever we move into whom our thought is directed. In the fullest perfection earth has ever known, make every one of us an ambassador from the ascended host of light. We call to the I am presence to each one to take command of his mind and body, produce perfection and hold dominion. Let no one betray the trust that the ascended masters give us. Do thou our own I am presence. Hold our hands, go before us. Clear the way. Make all things harmonious, prosperous, successful, and perfect. Charge forth in, through, and around us such invincible protection and almighty perfection that we move wholly untouched by anything but ascended master perfection in all of our experiences eternally sustained. We ask this at this new moon, forever expanding to perfection, and we thank thee thou dost always answer our every call instantly and infinitely, keeping it eternally sustained and ever-expanding. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And so we ask for all of this work to be sealed, again, and maintained and sustained, ever-expanding as we continue in creating heaven on earth in our own worlds and throughout the planet. I thank you, my friends, for your divine service at this most sacred and holy time.
I ask you to join us every Sunday and Monday for further divine service. As we begin our Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time, we have about 25 minutes of greetings and then Tara and Rama come in and give us a brief update. At 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin our work in earnest to bring heaven to earth, doing all of our ascension work for both individual and collective ascension, both on a planetary and cosmic level. I hope you enjoyed our activations here today. This is similar to what we do on our Sunday and Monday calls. And we would certainly welcome you to be a regular part of the family of light that does this work. It's a teleconference call, so let me give you that phone number. Area code 425-536-6260. Again, area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. There are additional numbers. There's a way to get on through the Internet. There's international numbers. I'd be happy to share that with you. Just simply email me. At the top of the list, just add to the list or requesting extra numbers. Email me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. So I give thanks for each of you being on the planet at this time. And let's take a moment to give thanks to Tar and Rama for their divine service. We give thanks to Rainbow for her divine service as well as I pass the talking stick filled with all 12 solar aspects of deity that we've worked with blazing with the highest of ascension frequencies. With love and honor, I pass it to you, my friend Rainbird. Have an infinitely blessed week, everyone. And we'll see you next Saturday. And see you Sunday and Monday, too. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick. And we're so grateful for your divine service as well. Thank you so much um, for today and for every Saturday. So um, I am here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program with all of us that make it happen. We need $300 each week to cover our expenses with DBS Radio. And um, so we reach out to all all of us to pitch in and see what we can do. Um, we're even from last week, so we just need $300 this week. Uh, here's how we make a contribution. You want to go into your heart space and see what is yours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the homepage, you can click on Radio Station 2, or you could just scroll down. You're looking for the menu. 
school radio station too for our programs there on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So on Thursday night at the six o'clock hour, you'll see the a night at the round table with the panel. There's an icon there. As you click on it, that will take you directly to our account. And the same is true for the program on Friday night at the six, six o'clock hour in Pacific time. And that would be the hard news program with Tara and Rama on Friday night at PBS. And then, of course, at the one thirty hour for today's program, it's the true history of Hershey and Sarah Galactic Origin. So any one of those icons, as you find that spot on the menu, click on that icon, that takes you to our account there. And so thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful for all the ways you contribute, and this is a really good way to be a contributor. So lots of gratitude. So, we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And this week was rent week and and also a car repair and it all got done. The rent got paid, the car is repaired. Hopefully I think it was due that was happening. <laughs> anyway, so thank you for to everyone who contributed and made all that happen. And this week these just a few bills that are due and, and spending money. So those bills come to about $350, just under that. And uh, we like to have $200 each week for the for Tara and Rama's living expenses, that, that cash in hand that they need. So as you can help uh, contribute, this is how we make it happen. You want to uh, access Rama's PayPal account. Uh, or you know, pay through his PayPal account. So you do that by going to rainbowroundtable.net. That's our web address, rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, if you click on the menu, um, that <laughs> all the menu will drop down of everything there. And near the bottom, you see the donate links. As you click on that, that'll take you to Rama's PayPal account or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account, and that's where you can pay. If you have your own PayPal account, you can use that, and that uh, eliminates the the commercial charges. You just need to uh, put in Rama's email there. Um, after you go into your own account, put in Rama's email where you're gifting. And so that email address at PayPal from Rama is as follows. Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at Hotmail. Dot com, And that way you eliminate the commercial charges. So that works. Either way, it's perfect. We're so grateful for your donations. Lots of gratitude uh, for Tara and Rama and all that they do. And, and lots of gratitude for the way we honor them by gifting so that they can stick to the, stick to the program and not, <laughs> and not have to be on the street somewhere or sleeping in the car. So, yeah, we're grateful for all of you. Thank you for that the support. Um, and what else? Oh, yeah, as you're sending something, please send an email to Rama at his email address, is, which is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. Let him know what you sent. And if you want to memo something there, you can, or you can actually do that in the PayPal transaction either way. But that, that's how we do that. And then if you need the physical address, it's Rob D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D, 
Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box, 280-280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip is 87567. So again, Post Office Box 280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So thank you again for taking that action and supporting and paying it forward. Uh, so much gratitude to all of you. So what else? I want to give you the Fremont address uh, where you go to join and look around and see if you like it. If you want to join, you can set up your account from that account uh, and you operate from your own account that way. So here's what it is. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shop. FreeMark.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. The username and it's account number 7000. Make sure you're on the right account. And uh, this is a place that we can enjoy a lot of benefits uh, for our financial health, our physical health, our environmental health. Uh, so it's worthy of a good look-see and uh, it's a good place to participate. So there you go. <laughs> Again, 13 thinkies, honey in the heart, long life, no evil, and I'm passing this talking stick, and it's got those, all all the 12 solar babies in there, and it's got all these rays from the universe and from the rainbow and all kinds of fairies and feathers and a whole bunch of little people, all the elementals, and a bunch of hobbits taking up the rear. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Greetings. All you commanders and eagles and angels back at you. Happy new moon. Solar eclipse. A complete total solar eclipse. Wow. It's helping us to make a quantum shift to high vibes. Yeah. Higher vibes. Yeah. So I'm going to pass the talking stick to you, Ramo. Tell me what you learned today. Um, Tell everybody. I talked with uh, Sweet Angelique the Cat and Tom, and they were in their shuttlecraft over the Great Wall of China watching the sunrise. After the solar eclipse. And um, they sent me a picture. I will send it to you, Penny. <laughs> and they are just saying, stay in the high vibes and the energies of this uplifting frequencies that are pouring in right now. The, the dark side is playing the fear card. Simply with all the stuff going on and um, send more love because it's intense as the energies get higher and higher. They are acting out more and more as you can see with what's unfolding with the drama, with the guns and Place of violent fire. Yeah. And more love. The latest, latest thing I heard, Rama, is that they are suspecting that this 
set appearance and their boy that they premeditated the whole thing. Yes, this is uh, serious stuff. It's about the mind control of the Matrix and the hate being preached by the former president and his cronies. And it, it's not acceptable in the office of the Christ and the new energies pouring in. And what concerns me, they probably all got vaccinated, you know. And what we learned is that it just, you you go brain dead. Yeah. You're subjected to uh, atom size razor blades. Agent Smith takes <sighs> over. And go see The Matrix. Resurrections coming up this month. It's got lots of answers. Also, what's his name? Steven Spielberg is doing a special version of West Side Story. Comes out, I think, on the 10th of December here. Yes. And we listened to uh, the one that, you know, uh, we listened to Mr. Sondheim, Steven Sondheim, before he left the planet, not too long before he left the planet. Yeah. And he told everybody, go see that. That it will bring you lots of joy. And there's some wonderful surprises in there. I could do that. That goes all the way back to the 60s, right? Yeah. West Side Story, wasn't that in the 60s? West Side Story was in the 60s, yeah. Yikes. Wow. Oh, my goodness, everybody. Okay, and... um. um there's uh, the Senate avoided a shutdown with long to-do list ahead. So first one is checked already, fund the government. I don't know if they actually did it, but they checked it. I think they had to do that to avoid the shutdown. Yeah, they did, didn't they? Mm. And then uh, the second one is raise the debt limit again. And then the third one is pass the Build Back Better Act. And the fourth one is the National Defense Authorization Act has to be repassed. Uh, but uh, war is canceled, right, Irma? War is over, like John Lennon said. As you wanted. Yeah. We were going to play a song. Is that which one we were going to play? Oh, after, after we played Joni. Oh, after, not before. Yeah, after. Okay. Um, we're just going to be traveling on this high vibe today. We're going to be doing all that. Uh, what's Abby's going to, what's Abby's subject material, Ron? Um, just a second. I'll just really quick read this. The charge An autopsy on liberal feminism and American Islamophobia. Oh, my God. And this says it all. You know, Iraq never hit us on 9-11. Afghanistan never hit us on 9-11. We did it to ourselves. And we're watching our criminals still go round and round with the money. As of today. And our We're, president ordered 
No justice, no peace, as they say. And we got to do this without revenge of the Sith happening. No. Correct. It's in Mother's lap now. It is. She said, I'm here. <laughs> and her she is in, uh, you know, she says, call on me. I'll show up. Yet she's not going to let you know when she shows up. <laughs> you just might turn around in your bedroom and you'll see her. <sighs> oh, dear. She's pretty fierce looking, but she's, uh... She likes tea. She likes tea? She does? Yes. What kind? Oh, uh, jasmine and matcha tea from mm. Japan. Nice. Okay. Yes. Okay, and then just real quick, the, the charges filed against Ethan Crumbly... One count of terrorism causing death, four counts of first-degree murder, seven counts of assault with intent to murder, and 12 counts of possession of a firearm. Lord have mercy. Uh, and let's put that whole situation in the circle of support in terms of that microcosm of the society uh at large that's a how did that happen how did we get a 15 year old thinking that was just perfectly good good for lunch you know let's go do this for lunch today oh my and yes young people who do not understand and their parents are not on the higher vibe either which, uh, again, these parents were in collusion with a premeditative activity going on with their son. This is really serious. And I think you might say that that's kind of like what's going on with the Republicans every step of the way on the big story, isn't it? Like um, Joni Patry has been saying yesterday in the video we played and in this one, with this energy of Scorpio with Sag at this time, stepping into this holy season, all the secrets, all the stuff is coming up to the surface. And uh, when you get down and dirty, Miss Maxwell, that black book of Mr. Epstein, how many prominent politicians across this planet and I do mean politicians, senators, congress creatures, uh, CEOs, billionaires. How many folks are in that black book that made arrangements, financial and otherwise, with the quote-unquote devil in the details? And it's like what Joni talked about. We must heal the sexual wounding on this planet that has gone on for 13,000 plus years and then some. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. Okay, so um, um, rape is, you know, a 
a crime of war, and I leave it there. I'm sure we're going to hear more about that from Abby Martin. That's right. I so should I read this real crap quick? This is what you had me write about today's message. Okay, let's put that in there. Okay, I received a text message at twelve ten this afternoon, early, from Tom the Ringtail Cat and Sweet Angelique the Cat. They said to me, Lord Rama, we are in our shuttlecraft over the Great Wall of China, and you got to send it to Penny, and then we're kind of figuring our way around a, 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 a new uh, webmaster. Somebody can come forward. Somebody who would just be in the right place to devote their energies to the manifestation of Nasara now. Thank you in advance. Uh, uh, you can send an email to Rama at Coran999 at Comcast.net. We have some possibilities and probabilities, and I think it's the one, but let's just work on this uh, as a team. Okay. They said to me, Lord Rama, we are in our shuttlecraft over the Great Wall of China, and the light coming in from the solar eclipse is transforming every living cell. We are approaching the winter solstice, and this winter solstice in particular of 2021, uh, 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 has a direct connection with the winter solstice of 2012, which would trigger something to do with the end of the Mayan calendar at this point. Yes. And just to make everybody know, there's stages of this because Mother Sekma said the end of the Mayan calendar was December 21st, 2010. Right. And because of the Gregorian calendar and the whole thing is a good couple of years off, off base. And that was just one of many calendars. Well, yeah, there's all yeah. many calendars as there are places on the earth. Right. Them. Uh, but um, in particular, we're pointing about as we're getting off of the uh, being under the thumb of the Vatican and its uh, misqualified energies. Right? Right. Okay. So then we go on and say, um, it also has to do with a quantum leap onto the new timeline the fifth dimensional timeline of 100,000 plus years of peace. As the dark side in the matrix has only been playing the fear card, let it go. Only love, truth, peace, freedom, justice, seasoned with divine wisdom, mercy, and compassion, and beauty for all that it can be. Blaze the violet fire. Right? Right. All right. Now we're ready for Abby, right? Oh, I thought we were going to play Joni. Oh, yes, that's right. Joni first. Okay. 
tell everybody what the topic is, title is. This is, this is, this Joni, is another Joni, uh, same Joni, but it's the 27-minute one. Uh, December 2021st predictions, the grand finale is here. Yeah. It's a different one. And welcome to my YouTube channel. Well, today I want to talk about the month of December, which is what I've been calling the grand finale, because everything has been building to this point. As a matter of fact, it's been building for the last two years to this most explosive event that's coming this month because this is the time that the solar eclipse that is so potent is about to release its energy because for so long this has been building and building and building and it can't go anywhere anymore and that's kind of the sounds that I'm hearing in the background so before I start I want to remind everyone that if you would love to learn Vedic astrology predict the future remember I'm starting a new class in January January 10th go to my website universityofvedicastrology.com and sign up to join our community of astrologers and right before Christmas we have my new jewelry line out which I'm wearing so remember to check that out on my website and sign up for my free newsletter where you will have all of my predictions delivered to your email go to galacticcenter.org so with that, let's talk about this eclipse. What is it all about? Remember, I always say eclipses are the most important point where we can make our predictions from. What signs they're in, what nakshatras they're in, all of this equates to what is happening. And especially any of the stars that it may be conjunct. And in this case... We have this eclipse at 18 degrees of Scorpio. Now, remember, I'm talking about the sidereal Vedic zodiac, not Western tropical. So it throws it back a sign. But talking about this, we really take into account the stars, which are what the nakshatras are based on. Their meanings are derived from the stars. And this is what's so impactful with Vedic astrology because it uses the stars. And looking at this, we're looking at this particular nakshatra, Jaista. Jaista is one of the deepest, darkest nakshatras of all and not all in a bad way because it deals with psychological analysis deep introspection and really getting to the core and the bottom of emotional issues remember scorpio is probably the most intense sign of the zodiac and those of you that study astrology you know what i mean this portion of the zodiac is deep it's profound, and it. 
commercial. Need a gift for your man this holiday? Meet the $60 Japanese knife the internet is calling a samurai sword for your... <laughs> okay. Go to listen again. It's pretty so strong. And it gets to the core because it's really very reminiscent of Pluto in the eighth house. So this is going to be an incredible time for deep analysis, introspection, and emotional healing. And that is what the planet needs. That's what everyone needs. That's what we've come here for, to heal our emotional body. The emotions is where everything is stored, the way we feel, our hurts, our love, all of that deals with who we really are. And that's what's going to be emerging out of this eclipse to see as a society and a world who we really are. But aside from that, individually, collectively, we will understand more about why we're here and our existence on planet Earth so profoundly deep. It's incredible. So looking at this, remember when we talk about the sign Scorpio, it deals with power. And what are we talking about when we talk about power? I mean, so many people are consumed with power and those in government, those in leadership positions, when they become obsessed with power, it destroys them. We can see that that happens to all world leaders, to all kings, presidents. It's going to happen at this point in time. You're going to see many world leaders will shift and change, either leave office. Somehow they will leave. And I'm not just talking about the United States. This is global. And I just got back from traveling in Europe and it was astounding to see what's going on around the world from different perspectives of people in different cultures. And basically everyone feels the same way. Doesn't matter who or where you are, we're all going through this globally. And imagine this two years ago, would you have ever imagined what you, you have been seeing in the world today? Everyone with masks on around the world. This is not just one country. People with masks, people sick, people afraid, people afraid of dying. This is like very scorpionic that it deals with fear, darkness, but it also deals with transformation. Don't forget, it's very symbolic of the phoenix that dies to the ashes but is reborn. A resurrection is really what this energy is about and where it's going to take us all. So this last and final month of the year of 2021 arrives with the most powerful solar eclipse that lands right in Scorpio and almost exactly Exactly on the fixed star Antares, which is the star of war, star of fighting. And that's what everybody's doing over the course of the year that all of this stuff has been coming about in 2021. People have come to the point where they do not trust their governments around the world. Because here's this virus. Why did this virus come out? And why were they working with a 
inventing a virus? Why were they testing a virus? This should not be done. <laughs> and what that's all about no. is, of course, biological warfare. Why else would they be working to develop a virus? It wasn't to create cures, although I would like to believe that. <laughs> But no one's really getting to the core and the bottom of things. And I think the world and the people are fed up. They're fed up with the lack of governments trying to heal and make things better. Instead, the governments really don't know what to do, as far as I can see, because no one envisioned anything like this ever happening. And yes, it was two years ago in 2019 that I predicted that there was going to be a catastrophic change in 2020 that would change the world forever. And this is where we are. But change, let me remind everyone, we have had some of the biggest, most monumental changes in the world. It's all happening right now. When people say nothing happened, I'm like, are you kidding? Everything has changed. The way that we look at governments, the way we look at politics, the way that we look at money, the way that we look at health and disease, everything is in this place of transition and transformation. There is radical changes happening as I speak, more than any time in history. Think about it. Maybe there's not one day that an explosion happens, but it's happening all the time, which makes it even more monumental. So this last two years has changed our world remarkably. It's never going to be the same. And even the way that we trade and make money is going through a change. People don't want to admit it, but cryptocurrency will be the phase in the future. Ooh. Maybe people are fighting it right now. But as I always say, people didn't understand credit cards. They thought credit cards were insane. Mm. And they also thought that the internet was insane when it came out. But once it becomes a part of our lives, we have to accept it, and that's the way the future is. So the way we exchange money in this world is changing. Do you really think that every bank has the dollar bills for the money that goes in and out of a bank? So when people say cryptocurrency is not based on anything, tell me what cash is in a bank that represents the money that they're exchanging. Because it's all an illusion, really. But getting on, so everything in our society, everything is transforming and changing as I speak. But this is the month when we're going to see. This new drug-free toenail fungus treatment is destroying the foot care market. Want to know how to get rid of your toe fungus for good? Then you must... Go listen to this lady talk. <laughs> See something evolve. And I think everything has been building. And you see the planets create these radical shifts and changes, transformations. We're all feeling it. We all know something's about to give here. December, January are the months that the explosions happen. Let me explain. So December 4th, 
we have the solar eclipse. And things don't usually happen on the day of a solar eclipse, but they mark a specific sensitive point of events to come. And when things ride over, planets ride over, transit over that degree mark of the eclipse, 18 degrees of Scorpio, that's the trigger. And usually it deals with Mars. So you're going to see Mars is going to transit over that 18 degree mark. And that's going to be the huge trigger. When Mars comes over 18 degrees of Scorpio, it will be... New Year's Eve. So that's the date, the time that I suspect there can be some violence, some major events that the world will always be different. Another thing that's happening this month is the exact and final third square of Saturn to Uranus. Every time this happens, every 10 to 11 years, this is a cyclic change of major breakdowns, breakthroughs. And as I always say, this is going to be a big wake-up call, a wake-up call. We've all been waiting for it, and we've been so disappointed in how things have been really going that I think we're just ready for something to hit, something that just says, okay, this is it. It's the finale, it's the finale where we know where we're headed in the future. Now, maybe we won't know exactly where we're headed, but there's going to be events that really, really bring out what has been hidden in the darkness. Remember what I say about eclipses. They are the darkening of the lights. It's going to be the darkening of the sun. Well, the sun is actually leadership who's in charge, and that darkening means it's going to change. And I've said in many of my videos how definitely in the United States, our president and our vice president have specific points that are being triggered by this eclipse. Huge. And I know that something's going to give here. Okay, something big is about to give here in the government and with leaders. Now, another thing is that December 15th is the day that Mars will conjunct K2. K2 is all about losses. Mars is violence. So usually you put those two together, and then when the moon comes over a day around this time, sometime around December 15th, there's going to be an event. But right after the eclipse, almost the day of the eclipse, December 4th, Mars goes into Scorpio. And when Mars goes into Scorpio, Scorpio is the sign. Mars is actually the planet that rules Scorpio. So it becomes intensely powerful. And it is going to result in a major explosive energy and event. But it's digging up all this intensity and emotion that we have been feeling and comes to the surface. And the eclipse is another reason why this is surfacing with Mars coming into the sign of Scorpio. And it will be in Scorpio still in January, so don't think it's completely over with after the last day of this year. January is still going to be an intensely crazy month. But I think the big 
the big effects are coming this month in December. So you really do need to prepare. But look at this as a time of self self growth. Because one thing I know about the sign of Scorpio, it's intense, it's profound, it's deep, it gets to the core and the bottom of things. But it also Scorpio deals with power and people that abuse power. In this nakshatra, which is called Jasta, Jasta is ruled by the god Indra, which is the king of the gods. Really, Indra is the one that creates, it is in the leadership of the gods. Therefore, it is the ultimate king. But what happened in the myth of Indra, Indra became obsessed with power, you see. And of course, as I said before, when anyone becomes obsessed with power, they destroy themselves. And this is part and do which we're going to see happening throughout this month. And even in your individual lives, people that are abusive of power and even taking it to the dark depths of betrayals of sexuality and all sorts of really dark things are going to be discovered and brought out. It's almost like the time that the Catholic churches had to deal with all the darkness of uh, the the child abuse. And now there's going to be more things surface about sexual abuse uh, in this world and what's been going on and the control and the power over others. Because you see, when you talk about Scorpio, you're talking about ways that we control other people, which... The three ways that I think of when I think about Scorpio, the eighth house or Pluto is control through money. Money gives control. It gives power control through sexuality, through people, people's charisma, their sexuality, the way they attract and use that in the means of power. And thirdly, death. Scorpio, eighth house, Pluto rules death. And that. Why are dental companies lobbying to make this toothbrush illegal in the U.S.? This U.S. Army dentist built a device to give them. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting mm. ads. Where'd you go? And that is basically the way many religions control you. Because if you don't believe their way, when you die, what's going to happen to you? So these are issues of control and power. And what's going to happen is a lot of this is going to be revealed, all of the issues around this. And I, and I suspect many of the powerful people in Hollywood may have to attest to some of their, their discrepancies and things that have been going on beyond that because communication is huge in this world. We wouldn't have Facebook. We wouldn't have all the people that are involved, Google, in social media that didn't have the power, the power to shut down anyone and anything that they want. Yeah. Hey, they did it with the president of the United States. They are more powerful than he. So 
you're going to find that the darkness of all of these social media platforms that use power are going to have to come out with the truth. But something is changing because being aware of what's really going on is what's going to change it. If you act like it's not there and you push it under the rug, it seeds and it grows. It's almost like I love the myth of Hercules and the Hydra. Hercules was sent to kill the Hydra, but every time he chopped off the flaring heads of this dragon that had hundreds of heads, every time he he cut them off, more grew back. And it wasn't until Hercules got on his knees and surrendered to the Hydra that the Hydra disappeared. It dissolved and disappeared. What is the meaning of that myth? That when we bring to light our fears and we face them, our psychological fears and our secrets that control our life. Many people have secrets and believe you me, they control their lives, whether they know it or not. But when they bring it out, confess, bring it to the, to the forefront and deal with it, surrender. It dissolves. What we're fearful of dissolves, goes away. So that's what I want you to know, and that's a very important message, that we have to surrender to our fears because there's really nothing to fear. That's what we discover. And what happens is we heal and transform our lives. That's the most important thing. So there is more. So I'm, I want to reiterate December 4th is the eclipse. Then we have Mars going to Scorpio. You're going to see the whole energy change December 4th and 5th. And then by December 15th, when Mars crosses over K2, It's going to be anger. There's going to be displays of outburst everywhere. People losing their heads. People going off the rocker. You'll see. Then by the 31st is really when the explosive events will culminate into the big event. And another important thing that I see coming during this time is the fact that Venus is about to go retrograde December 30th. And when Venus goes retrograde, it deals with love and emotion. It deals with our connection to others, how we relate, and relationships. So Venus is the planet that goes retrograde, the very least of all the planets. But when it does, it makes an impact. And most of all, I have found that Venus deals with peace. So what is coming about in this turbulence and in this violence and in this warlike feeling of this month is a sense that we need to get back to being peaceful. We need to find ways to come together to heal our differences and find ways where We're not so separate anymore. That's the illusion. You see, we all feel separate in these bodies. But in reality, we are not separate at all. When we pass to the other side, we will reconnect to all that is. Be one with everything. That is actually our natural state of consciousness. Unity. To be one with all that is. And when we're not, that's when we have fear. Because we doubt ourselves. We doubt what's going on. We don't have that explicit connection to the divine spirit, which is within all of us that connects us all 
trust me, this is the reality. And this is the illusion that we are here to uncover. This month, we will have so many opportunities to really see truth that has been boiling and boiling and boiling to this crescendo that is going to illuminate and awaken so many of us. But those that don't want to be awakened will not will not budge. That's okay. They will not be happy. They will be miserable because the only way that we can find our truth and be happy is to surrender to the divine. Mm. Be one with it. Because so many of us think we have the answers when we connect to our divine power. That's what I'm talking about with surrender. Not letting people have their way with you. No, that's not at all what I mean. I'm talking about surrender to our ego to control everything because that's what Scorpio is about, control. When we surrender... That's when we release and become one with everything and we understand the truth, not fight it anymore. So Venus, by the 30th of December, it's starting to slow down this whole month. Right before it goes retrograde, it's going at a slower speed. So Venus, the planet of love, relationships, opening our heart, is bringing us closer to the need to express experience experience love that's the true healer of this world love and relationships finding a connection to others and most of all family i know many of you say oh i can't get along with my family but there's a reason why you incarnated in this lifetime with those individuals because you're here to heal and if you look at what you're doing in order to heal your life. In other words, what you're putting out there, you are going to get back continuously throughout your life. And if you have complaints about your life, about others, guess Twice as effective as minoxidil. How do you identify hair growth products that do not work? There's no need to... Guess what's going to come back to your face? But when you come from a place of gratitude, love, and joy, guess what's going... Guess what you're going to attract? Those just like you. In that respect, that is the law of the universe. (laughs) Because everything is energy. Imagine when you keep putting out anger, frustration, rage. Guess what you're going to get back? Change that. Look within. Find that connection to the divine. Surrender to it. And experience the gratitude, the love, and the joy that life is. One thing that I really learned while I was traveling around the world is how much joy and how much beauty there is in the world. It is a beautiful place. Come from a place of appreciation from this beautiful planet and the connection to your loved ones because this is the Christmas season in the Northern Hemisphere. And Christmas is all about giving. So I want you to come from a place of love and giving and it will transform and it will absolutely change your life. Because when I talk about the grand finale, really what I'm talking about, essentially what evolves from it 
is trans transformation. So with that, I'd like to close. And if you would like to study with me, don't forget, go to my university website, universityofvedicastrology.com. And also remember, if you would like to be receiving my free emails where I give all my predictions, sign up for my free newsletter. You'll be glad you did. So with that, enjoy Enjoy family, come from a place of love, and Happy New Year. And I'm going to be looking into 2022. So that's going to be another thing that I'm going to be talking about in all of my emails, predictions, and also I have a class coming up December 18th where you can sign up and listen to my three-hour workshop on what's to come for the year of 2022. And you will have access to me and uncensored, uncensored, and we're going to have a Q&A at the end. And I want to answer your questions. So with that, I'll close. Thank you. <laughs> That's interesting. They're both the same. You should just added a few things that's made it 27 minutes, huh, Rama? Yeah. That was worth hearing that again. Okay, so strap in your seatbelt now because here comes Abby Martin, right, Rama? Yeah. Are we going to play a song? Oh, okay. Well, <coughs> maybe we'll play it after this because it's time, huh? What yeah. do you want to do? I'll play it after. Okay, because yeah, let's dig in now. 20 after 4 already. Wow. It's coming. Of her book, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. Deepa, thank you so much for joining me on the Empire Files podcast. Thank you, Abby. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. So I want to get your reaction to this statement by Sam Harris to start out. You know, he's this <laughs> thought leader in the New Atheist Movement. In an article years ago by The Atlantic, he is asked what his reaction is to the term Islamophobia. He points to a tweet saying, quote, Islamophobia, a word created by fascists used by cowards to manipulate morons. He then goes on to say, quote, Islam is not a race, ethnicity or nationality. It's a set of ideas. Criticism of these ideas should never be confused with an animus toward people. And yet it is. I'm convinced this is done consciously, strategically, and quite cynically as a means of shutting down conversation on important topics. Deepa, what is your response? Yeah, um, I think the same applies to Sam Harris, which is his deliberate misrepresentation of Islamophobia as criticism of Islam serves as a way for him to endorse policies that really are fundamentally racist. Now, where he is correct is when he says that Islam is a religion. But religions have been racialized. That is to say, adherents of a particular religion have been turned into a race of people in order to justify all sorts of policies. We certainly know this to be true um, of Jewish people. It is also true of uh, Muslims. And you have seen this process, actually, as I write in my book, beginning all the way in the early modern era in Spain, 
where they introduced these blood purity laws, which yes. were first applied to Jewish people to say that even if they converted to Christianity, their blood was impure and therefore they could not occupy offices. They could not occupy professional jobs. And as we know, they were expelled from Spain in 1492. Similar mass expulsion of Muslims happens in the early 17th century. So I think to ignore this history of ethnic cleansing, of violence, and of the racialization of both Muslims as well as Jews is deeply problematic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Harris's view according to him, is that organized religion itself is a reactionary institution. So any critique or attack on religion is actually progressive, right? Like you have Harris and people like Bill Maher, these influential so-called liberals that perpetuate this belief that it's okay to single out religion and specifically Islam as this kind of barbaric manifestation of religion instead of looking at actual root causes of terrorism, you know, things like structural violence built into our economic system or U.S. foreign policy. Absolutely. I mean, I do not have a problem with people engaging in constructive criticism of any religion. Um, That's totally fine. But the problem, as you said, Abby, very correctly, is that there Daggers are pointed particularly at Muslims, right? Islam is targeted as being particularly barbaric, um, as if Christianity does not have its own history of the Crusades, of the Inquisition, and so forth, right? This is a very selective way in which some of us are presented as good and others as evil. Uh, some of us are civilized, others are uncivilized and barbaric and so forth. So the problem, of course, is that because this is presented in somewhat progressive language as a critique of religion, um, it's abstract and people tend to think that these folks are actually innocent in their intentions, that they have no motivations. But in fact, I'd add Christopher Hitchens to this as well. Mm -hmm. He's part of a trio of new atheists. Um, They're all part of, you know, a certain ideological milieu that actually supports empire and U.S. imperialism. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Sam Harris's infamous op-ed, why I support torture or whatever. I mean, it was just cartoonish. I mean, it really is interesting, this kind of new iteration of the class clash of civilizations myth. I mean, in the 21st century, it's like this notion of Orientalism that continues to rear its ugly head that justifies neocolonialism still to this day. Because according to people like Sam Harris, you know, the million dead Iraqis, all of these things are just unfortunate happenstances of an empire that has good intentions, right? And when we do things, it's with good intentions. And so whatever happens as a result of those good intentions, well, it wasn't our fault. Right. I mean, you know, this is not new, right? This line of argumentation is not something that was developed in the 21st century. After all, the U.S. as a nation state was formed through westward expansion, through a settler colonial project that was about forcibly dispossessing indigenous people of their lands and in the process carrying out a genocide. And the way in which this all got justified, of course, was that, you know, it was a civilized people 
who are going to develop uh, the land. There's a manifest destiny to go off and make the land productive. And it was claimed that because Native American people were not sedentary and didn't use the, la- the land productively, it, they therefore had no right to it. And, you know, it was going to, it's better. John Locke and other argued, uh, uh, and others argued that, you know, um, Anglo settlers take it over and so forth. And of course, you know, the history of genocide is, is papered over in the process. And I think the same has happened with respect to Muslims in the last 20 years. If you look at the official death toll of the so-called war on terror, the uh, the um, cost of war project at Brown University estimates that upwards of 900,000 people have been killed due to, you know, direct U.S. war involvement. Um, now, of course, their definition is direct war deaths, right? If you factor in indirect deaths, such as people dying from the lack of access to medical care because infrastructure has been destroyed, as was done in Iraq in the 90s and then again in 2003 and beyond. If you look at deaths related to the fact that people don't have access to clean drinking water, right? All of the consequences of war, you factor those in and we are talking possibly about millions of people that the United States has been responsible for killing. I'll just give one more example, which is that journalist Anand Gopal has a fantastic piece in The New Yorker about, uh, it's titled The Other Afghan Women, Woman, in which he interviews Afghan women from the countryside. And in there, you know, he's, he, he talks to a number of families and he notes something significant. He says that every Afghan family in the countryside that he spoke to knows 10 to 12 people in their immediate family that have been killed by U.S. strikes. And this is what leads somebody like human rights advocate Malalai Joya, who was the youngest woman of the Afghan parliament, to say that over a million Afghans have been killed in the U.S. occupation. So that's just Afghanistan. Think about all the other places, Iraq, uh, uh, you know, uh, Yemen um, and the Saudi, uh, you know, intervention with U.S. help and so forth. And we're talking about millions. That is a genocide of Muslims and of Arabs and of Central Asians that has taken place under the guise of the war on terror, which, of course, is completely papered over because this was supposed to be a civilizing mission. Right. I mean, and how else do you explain that other than racism, Deepa? Because we're talking about at least 37 million people, according to the Cost of War Project, that have been displaced. I mean, mm-hmm. made refugees up to, I, I think, 56 million or something. I mean, it's really hard to wrap your mind around the profound impact of U.S. intervention in this region of the world in the last 20 years and the ongoing atrocities uh, from drone strikes, special ops, night raids, the judge, jury, and executioner, this notion that we can we have the moral high ground to take people out without due process. It's the undercutting of death tolls. It's this complacency and normalization of, of the things that we're talking about. And how else do you explain that? If this were white people in Europe, it would be a completely different story. That's exactly right, Abby. I think you really, uh, you know, got it with the way you just explained that, which is that, you know, let me concretize this. Um, 
One of the ways in which civilian casualty counts from drone strikes has been minimized is by claiming that all military-age men in areas that the U.S. is targeting with drone strikes are enemy combatants. That is, they are guilty until proven innocent, right? So this is a tweaking of the law to basically disenfranchise people not even count them as human, not even count them as a statistic in uh, drone strike uh, attacks um, as a way to minimize uh, civilian uh, death counts. I mean, this is the profound way in which uh, people have no rights. They are dehumanized. And again, this is not new in U.S. history. After all, uh, U.S. law actually said that Native Americans cannot be considered citizens, right? This is the famous Cherokee v. Georgia case in the early uh, 19th century. And similarly, Dred Scott in the 1850s uh, suggested that whites have no obligations to freed blacks uh, because they are not considered citizens. And therefore, when you remove people from the status of being a subject, of being a citizen, of being a person that actually has rights, you can do anything you want to them, right? You can kill them, you can take away their lands, uh, you can subject them to enslavement and uh, completely get away because no one will hold you accountable to it. Let's talk about Afghanistan. Uh, you've, you've spoken about this extensively. You've talked about the notion of imperialist feminism, colonial fen- feminism, and I just think it's just fascinating that during the 20 years of this brutal occupation and bombing of this country, women's rights completely fell by the wayside in the U.S. public discourse. They were virtually untalked about. I mean, yet the weeks before the invasion, you can see it was the biggest, most pressing issue in the world, Deepa, the women's rights in Afghanistan. And then when Biden, of course, decided to pull the troops out, suddenly Again, this was the most prominent issue in, a, in our discourse. I mean, the, this fantasy that somehow women's rights were advancing under this occupation outside of Kabul. I mean, it's just unbelievable to me. Indeed. Um, you know, the way I talk about this is that Afghan, with, uh, Afghan women were discovered suddenly at two moments, right, when the U.S. went into Afghanistan in 2001 and when Biden was pulling troops out uh, in, uh, you know, earlier this year in 2021. And I had done a study actually with a colleague in terms of how much media attention was given to the plight of Afghan women in the years leading up to uh, 9-11 and the U.S.'s uh, planned uh, invasion and occupation. And it's stunning. Even though Afghan women uh, lived under pretty harsh conditions, not just under the Taliban, but before that under the various Mujahideen factions, which the U.S. had backed, by the way, and funded and trained back in the 80s uh, as part of the proxy war with the Soviet Union, So even though, you know, feminist groups and others knew uh, that these were the conditions for Afghan women, they were really not newsworthy. You know, there were maybe a couple of dozen stories in the broadcast media. All of a sudden, you see these primary definers of news, people like uh, Laura Bush, people like Tony Blair and his uh, wife, Sherry Blair, suddenly starting to brand the war on terror as a war for the rights of women and children, right? This is the colonial feminist or imperial feminist 
narrative. And suddenly in the broadcast media, there are hundreds of stories of Afghan women, you know, fully clothed in their blue uh, signature borkas and why it was, you know, a civilizing mission, the white man's burden to go off um, and to rescue them. And as you correctly pointed out, Abby, in the 20 years, um, these women were completely forgotten. The reality is that um, in the city centers, initially, there was some progress around education, around healthcare. There were NGOs, you know, with well-intentioned people wanting to do uh, some good work. But in a piece that I published in Truth Out, I actually cite uh, a national intelligence report that was published earlier this year, which says in no uncertain terms that these few developments were largely rolled back, even in city centers in places controlled by U.S. Uh, backed forces. So there was, you know, limited development in the city. But in the countryside, which is where 70 percent of Afghan women actually live, there was absolutely no improvement. If anything, women were thrown from the fire, uh, from the, you know, from the fireplace into the fire. The situation got worse because the U.S. allies who took over from the Taliban, these were the same Mujahideen warlords, actually made the situation much worse for women uh, in the countryside. So I recommend the uh, piece by uh, Anand Gopal. If people want to put themselves in the shoes of what it was like for uh, Afghan women in the rural areas. Read it because the picture is not one of, you know, this really oppressed and sad woman or whatever. The main protagonist in her story is someone who is fierce. She stood up both against U.S. attacks. She also opposed uh, the Taliban um, she's highly critical of her husband. She's got a great sense of humor. In other words, there's a sort of flattened image that we get in the West of these women as poor sad sacks, when in fact they're very much agents of change in their own lives and in their communities. Wow, that was extremely well put. And it is just, it's shameful how these women were tokenized and used and, you know, churned just for a media cycle. Um, to perpetuate this notion that we should just stay in this indefinite war. It's absolutely grotesque. And yeah, I mean, their agency and power was completely detached, you know, from this narrative. And they were just painted as these downtrodden people who need, who need saving. Deepa, this perpetual notion that we need to save these poor women. And how did that happen in Iraq? I mean, let's just talk about the effect on women's rights that these imperialist ventures actually cause because you've, you've written about this extensively. I mean, I, I have a quote from one of your articles where you say that quote, 70% of salaried women in Iraq had government jobs. And when the entire government ministries were dismantled by the U S after the invasion, women lost their jobs. And a lot wow. of times this meant that they had to earn their subsistence by selling their bodies, Deepa. Mm-hmm. It is, it is stunning. Um, what happened? I mean, the situation in Iraq is slightly different from the situation in Afghanistan in the 2000s. Keep in mind that before I go to Iraq, I just want to make one more point about Afghanistan, mm-hmm. which is that back in the 1980s, Afghan women in the cities worked outside the home. 
They held jobs as teachers, as lawyers, as doctors, and so forth. So it's not true that in Afghanistan, things have always been bad for women. That, you know, we really need to study the history of these countries to expose not only, you know, the kind of image of victims, you know, people who are incapable of doing anything, um, but also the complicity of the U.S., in supporting these reactionary Mujahideen forces that begin the attack um, on women's rights. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Switching over to Iraq, Iraq was a highly developed society, modern medicine, you know, uh, fantastic uh, development in, in terms of buildings and roads and all the rest of it. And absolutely, women held jobs outside the home. But once that country was destroyed, and certainly the destruction began in the first Gulf War of 1991, and then was exacerbated in its effects with the draconian sanctions regimes that the U.S. and the U.N. imposed. You know, there were two U.N. secretary, I think assistant secretary generals, um, Dennis Halliday and Hans von Sponek, who were in charge of the sanctions program, both of whom resigned in protest, one of them even saying that what is happening is genocide, right? So that's the backdrop, but still it wasn't as devastated, um, you know, as it is today um, when the U.S. decided to invade in 2003. And then the situation just gets so much worse for uh, Iraqi women who have to sell themselves, you know, who have to sell their bodies into sex work. And then, of course, if you just look at that, if you are a Western journalist and you drop into Iraq uh, in this time period, you know, after the U.S. Uh, invasion and occupation, and you see that women, the only way they can sustain themselves is through sex work, you know, you draw the conclusion, oh, this is what Islam does to women, you know, uh, this is how these backward societies treat their women. No, 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 no. Let's look at the conditions under which uh, you know, the only uh, option left for these women uh, was this kind of work. I think that history and that context is super important. And, you know, I'll say one last point, And, you know, if we want to talk more about this, we certainly can. Uh, in my piece and truth out, you know, I make a comparison between how on if the U.S. pulled out at the end of August from Afghanistan, the very next day, Abby, you'll remember on September 1st, the Supreme Court decided that it would not overturn the ban on abortion in Texas, right? This mm-hmm. is a horrific ban, which pretty much makes it makes most uh, abortions illegal, right? And which takes away a fundamental right that women should have, which is control over their own body. So here we have this interesting juxtaposition. On the one hand, the claim to liberate Afghan women. On the other hand, a decision that devastates uh, the rights that women do enjoy here, thanks to the feminist movement um, of the 1960s. And yet, you know, uh, journalists didn't make that connection and actually question the imperial feminist narrative to say, how on earth could you possibly claim to be liberating Afghan women when our own Supreme Court right here is attacking women's rights? Yep, exactly. Exactly. And to push, actually have the audacity to push the notion that U.S. intervention will help liberate women after what we've seen 
after what you just outlined, Deepa. I mean, it's, it's, it's laughable. It's, it would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic because of mm-hmm. this is the reality. And, you know, just the fact that the U.S. media claimed, you know, acting as stenographers for the state basically said that we need to stay because the Afghan women basically taking away their agency again, saying they can't possibly organize for better living conditions without us being there as the overseers, you know, as, as the rulers of their domain. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, that's the racism, right? Abby? Yeah. It's like, there's a way in which this Orientalist and this Islamophobic network is meant to make us feel better. Oh, we are so much more well off than, you know, these poor women or what have you. But that does a disservice to women right here. Right. Because it discounts the agency of women in this country. Let's not forget Mm -hmm. that to win the right to vote, it took no less than 100 years of agitation by the women's suffrage movement to actually get that basic fundamental right. Right. To be considered a citizen, to actually be able to articulate political choices. Um, And similarly, Roe v. Wade was passed at the high point of the women's movement of the 1960s. Uh, and 1970s because women agitated, they fought, you know, they fought for all sorts of things, not just the right to control their bodies. But, you know, I teach my students that if you, if you just look back 50 some years, you know, in this country, women couldn't get a credit card. They could not uh, have a bank account. Um, There were these master and head laws where, you know, your husband pretty much, uh, uh, had control over anything you may have inherited. Um, and so how, why has that changed? It changed not because there was some, you know, enlightened moment. It changed because women fought for it right here. So in the end, imperial feminism not only erases the agency of women in uh, Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in other developing nations, but right here in the United States, and it prevents women here from forming solidarity and relations of solidarity with their counterparts around the world based on the notion that, look, we all, no matter where we live as women, do face oppression. It looks different in different contexts, but we have an interest in working with each other, understanding each other's difficulties and fighting against the rulers in our own societies um, who do very little but speak, you know, talk a big talk about uh, women's liberation. That's fucking crazy. I did not realize that those laws existed a mere 50 years ago. And it is absolutely to absolve our guilt, our repression, our patriarchy, and these laws that we're talking about right now, that in 2021, we could actually have a virtual ban on abortion that will set a groundbreaking precedent in this Supreme Court that's dominated by essentially Christian fascists. I mean, that, that that's that's the plan, you know, that this is what the Federalist Society is all about. And this is what Trump's intent was. And all of these people who, you know, who are working toward this goal, Deepa, to strip away women's rights. And it is it's just surreal to sit back and watch this unfold. Um, meanwhile, everyone's up in arms about women halfway around the world that we should have no business being involved in. Um, and instead of standing in solidarity with their struggles and their plight, I want to take us back to 9-11 because, you know, such a big part of your book and such a big part of the legacy of the war on terror here at home, of course, was 
the war waged against Muslims here in, in mosques and the Bush administration's war on Muslims with things like the Patriot Act, mass surveillance, this entrapment mechanism that reached far and wide of virtually every single mosque in certain areas had to worry about being spied on and entrapped in these plots. And it's just incredible that in conjunction with George Bush being rehabilitated, you know, after the, the, the systemic torture, after these brutal wars, after the entrapment program, I mean, he's welcomed into many liberal spaces, many circles with open arms, making tens of millions of dollars on speaking fees. I guess just bring us back to that time, that, that palpable tension, that, that horrific onslaught against the Muslim community in the wake of 9-11. And where has it gone? Because we, you even talk about how there was actually a spike under the Obama administration. I mean, just walk us back through that era. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the <laughs> welcoming of Bush into various uh, liberal circles is just so alarming, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I comparison to Trump, he seems wonderful. And yet... It's, it's just, you know, the, the barometer keeps shifting further and further right so that somebody like Bush can appear to be palatable today when in fact, and you know, this is what you've asked me to talk about, he is the author, or at least he was the president when a series of really draconian measures were used to target Muslims. So let's, let's talk through some of these. Some of them, many of them still exist today. It's not as if the uh, Biden administration is going to do away with them anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's begin with the uh, mass surveillance programs, right? Now, it's not the case that surveillance of Muslim communities began after 9-11. They've been around at least since the early 1970s when the national security state made an association which said that all Arabs, at that time it was Arabs, because Arab came to stand in for Muslim at that time, all Arabs are potential terrorists. And so they need to be surveilled, they need to be interviewed, and so on. And Operation Boulder was a program that was introduced by Nixon, actually, back in the uh, early 70s. And you've seen many iterations of these kind of programs, which are roughly modeled on COINTELPRO, the infamous FBI program that was used to target, you know, uh, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, um, you know, the anti-war movement and so forth. So anyway, move to the 9-11 moment. These sorts of surveillance programs are then completely expanded uh, you know, in, in fantastically huge ways, so that some scholars like uh, Arun Kundanani have argued that the surveillance of Muslim communities is equivalent to what East Germans experienced under the Stasi, right? This is a horribly repressive police force. Um, and so you've had, for you know, take a concrete case, there are many FBI programs, but let's take the NYPD's surveillance program of the tri-state area. They sent people into mosques, who they called mosque crawlers. Um, they sent people into um, bookstores, into universities, um, all to gather information about these suspicious people who they believe uh, are potential terrorists. Never mind, of course, that not one terrorism uh, conviction resulted from any of the surveillance work, right? But that was the mentality, is that, This is a suspect community. 
And that's how racism works, right? It is uh, through the understanding that people are guilty. This homogenous community is guilty before they have actually done anything. This does not apply to white people, even though we know that white supremacists and neo-Nazis and so on are responsible for far more deaths after 9-11 than so-called jihadist forces. There are no programs, you know, of mass surveillance of uh, white communities, you know, going into churches or into sporting uh, leagues or what have you. But it, that's how racism works, right? It's, it's an entire community is homogenized based on the actions of 19 hijackers. So you have that. And it's very, very, um, it's disconcerting to be part of the Muslim community. There's a really good documentary called The Feeling of Being Watched which is made by somebody who lives slightly outside of uh, Chicago. And she's a journalist and she interviews her community to see the levels of fear and sometimes even paranoia that comes from being treated in this way. So that's one program. Let's take the case of, you mentioned uh, entrapment. Let's take the case of the FBI's entrapment program. They have, uh, the last time I checked, over 15,000 paid informants um, these are people who are sent into Muslim communities, into, you know, and, and when we say Muslims, it's not just, you know, Arabs, it's not just people from South Asia, it's also black Muslims, right? Um, uh, a significant portion of Muslims in the U.S. are uh, African American. And so these informants go into this, these communities, again, based on the notion that all Muslims are, quote unquote, potential terrorists. So let's nab them before they actually do anything. And they entice people typically, and this is what uh, journalist Trevor Aronson shows in his analysis of more than 400, 500 uh, such cases, they prey on vulnerable typically poor and working class men who often also have mental health challenges. They give them ideas to carry out an attack. They even provide the, you know, material like fake bombs and so on and encourage them to go out and do something. And then, of course, when they do carry out uh, such an attack, they're nabbed and, yay, yet another terror plot foil. This is what happened with the Newburg Four, four African-American uh, uh, men who were entrapped uh, by the FBI. And just, you know, coincidentally, the media was uh, was there to, you know, uh, catch this, uh, stop this, you know, to catch the stopping of this plot and so forth. The, this continues. This continues even uh, today. The problem is it goes very much under the radar and therefore, very little is, uh, you know, said about it. And you, you, you talked about how under Obama these got worse. Absolutely, it did. Um, Obama's countering violent extremism, which is his counter radicalization program, involved not just informants, but now recruiting members, respected members of the Muslim community, imams, teachers, coaches, doctors, things like that to serve as informants within their own community. And what's so crazy is if you read some of the interviews with people who've, you know, been, who were recruited by the Obama administration to do this, they later find out that they themselves have been spied on as well. 
So there's absolutely no trust in these community leaders um, as well. So that's the nightmare that Muslim Americans have been living under uh, for the last uh, two decades. And of course, disproportionately, the impact of all of this is on working class uh, uh, Muslims, whereas middle and upper class can, you know, have access to uh, lawyers and can protect themselves somewhat against these uh, methods of uh, uh, targeting. Wow, I had no idea that Obama's program actually did that. Uh, that is incredible and super counterintuitive, and I'm not surprised at all that it had such a negative effect. And really what this program did and continues to do is just have a mass chilling effect on political activity too. I mean, people who do nothing wrong, who feel like they can't engage in their own society or democracy um, because of, of who they are, because of the, the, their skin color, their religion. It's just... I just want to say Hillary told Obama to do this or he would be dead. Yep. That's how they play. Mm-hmm. It's a tragedy through and through. And then you have Trump. I mean, this is someone who it, it was really shocking, I think, for a lot of people because, you know, after the era of Obama, you have a, a man rising to power who was basically – a completely open Islamophobe in an unprecedented way. Um, you know, of course, you have the systemic Islamophobic policies like through the Bush administration and stuff like that. But when you have like someone embracing racism and being racist and, you know, praising people like General Pershing, for example, who supposedly <laughs> dipped bullets in pig's blood to genocide Muslims as some sort of example that should be followed. He basically made explicitly clear that Muslim lives should be devalued. Uh, did anything change for Muslims under the four years of the Trump administration or was it kind of just still the same status quo policies? Yeah, well, so in the book, I actually um, differentiate between various kinds of Islamophobia or anti-Muslim racism, both in terms of its rhetoric as well as, uh, you know, policy. Now, the one thing to be said is that policy has stayed remarkably similar uh, whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy through the course of the last 20 years, you know, whether it was Bush, um, Obama, and then Trump. And by the way, when I say the last 20 years, by in no way, shape or form, am I saying that the war on terror is over? As you correctly pointed out, Abby, um, you know, it is through drone strikes and special operation forces and so forth that the war on terror will continue the sort of dramatic wars and troops on the ground, that strategy has changed, right? Whereas, you know, the thousand bases, a thousand plus bases that the U.S. has around the world, uh, you know, obviously massive expansion since 9-11, those are not getting dismantled anytime soon. And it's from those bases, really, that, you know, many of the drone strikes take place, including the one in Afghanistan um, back in August where, you know, um, a family was killed, including, I believe it was seven children. Um, uh, That strike was carried out from, I believe, Qatar, a base in Qatar. I could be wrong, but it's certainly one in the region. Anyway, so policy stays the same, but language and rhetoric um, keeps uh, changing. So let's examine that. Um, Trump comes to power on a blatantly xenophobic, that is anti-Mexican, anti-Central American platform, as well as on an Islamophobic uh, platform, right? 
So even during his campaign, um, he, of course, is talking about how allowing Syrian refugees into this country is equivalent to, you know, I don't know, the Trojan horse. That is, uh, they are, they are, it, it, the way he put it is that the Trojan horse will look like a joke compared to the number of uh, Syrians who are coming in, who are these fifth columnists, who want to take over the U.S. and so forth. So what he does is he's, he legitimates right-wing Islamophobia. Right. So liberal Islamophobia is the kind that you see in people like uh, Obama, who, you know, talks multiculturalism, who says, you know, I reject the clash of civilizations um, argument, which was something favored by uh, the Bush administration. That's, you know, conservative Islamophobia. Whereas uh, uh, Obama is all about, you know, Muslims have contributed to world history. They are very much a part of the U.S. history and so forth, but nevertheless carries out the same policies, right? The same radicalization policies, escalates the drone wars um, and so forth. Now, Trump's language is blatantly right-wing Islamophobia. There has been a small network of far-right-wing groups that have come together, that have been working together since about the 1990s, but then who solidified their relationship uh, after 9-11. They're called the Islamophobia Network. Um, and they put out the most bizarre, uh, you know, sorts of uh, ideas about Muslims. So the notion that 80% of mosques are grounds for terrorism training, this is something wow. that one of the think tanks associated with the Islamophobia network put out, which then becomes a talking point where other politicians like Newt Gingrich and so on give uh, Amplify in the media. But for the most part, they tended not to be part of the mainstream in the years before uh, Trump came to power. However, what he did is he recruited some of these people and therefore legitimated them and legitimated their conspiracy theories um, about uh, Muslims as fifth columnists, as wanting to institute Sharia law and so on. And, you know, by recruiting them to official positions, they then are able to legitimately ask for time in the mainstream media, whereas earlier their somewhat outlandish claims um, could be dismissed as such because it was just so out of the mainstream. So the biggest accomplishment, if you want to call it that, of the Trump regime um, is, you know, that he legitimated this far right wing form of anti-Muslim racism. And of course, he does that most dramatically with the Muslim ban, right, which is to stop people coming in from five Muslim majority countries uh, because they present a threat. Never mind, as a Cato Institute study uh, has shown, that people from these countries were not responsible for a single terrorism related death. Uh, in the U.S., I believe from the 1970s uh, to when the ban was actually passed. So with no grounds to do this, you know, he's acting on a blatantly racist narrative about people from Muslim-majority countries. And, of course, the far right and his base uh, eat it up and are quite thrilled about that. It's such an important point because I've heard way too many people conflate, you know, I think we're just so disillusioned with Obama and Biden, it's like, it, it's, it's hard for people to really understand the damage that Trump did because it's kind of easy to 
wrap or like you say the paper over his legacy by being like oh well he didn't start any new wars so well really on paper um you know the policy wasn't really that different but rhetoric matters but rhetoric matters and also the assimilation like the entry of of the people who were even considered too far extreme for even the bush administration people like frank gaffney john Mm -hmm. bolton mike pompeo these are rampant islamophobic neocons who were outlier crazy outliers during the bush administration they were folded into the trump administration legitimated and then as you said paraded around the mainstream media seeding out these ideas in the mainstream and rhetoric has consequences You are legitimated by the president of the United States, the strongest position in the world through his Twitter feed, through retweeting people, the QAnon stuff. It all folds in together in a really disturbing way. And I I just I just hope people really realize that. And, you know, here we are with Biden and, uh, you know, it's a new day, Deepa. I mean, you know, (laughs) I mean. Uh, you know, let's talk about that because it is, it is an interesting direction that we're going because in the public, the public perception is that, okay, the war in Afghanistan's over, the Iraq war is over, Biden made this announcement for the end of combat operations in Yemen, Iraq, and, and, um, Afghanistan. And, you know, Syria is basically totally ignored now, even though we're still there protecting the oil. That now you have the Asia pivot introduced by Obama, but really embraced and reset by the Biden administration that is essentially directing the propaganda at new enemies, you know, non-Muslim countries like China, where they're actually using the treatment of Muslims as a reason why the U.S. needs to intervene. Forget about the last 20 years. Forget about the last (laughs) couple centuries. Now we need to help Uyghurs. Now we need to, you know, excoriate China for human rights abuses. And we really need to embrace this great power global power competition doctrine with China, I guess, how do you see Islamophobia playing a role in this coming period? Right. Uh, I mean, that was a huge and complex uh, question. (laughs) (laughs) Only you can uh, (laughs) such an excellent question with answers in it. So (laughs) let me offer some reflections on it. I mean, first thing, I, I think you're absolutely right, which is that uh, where you started your point is that people rightly criticize Obama and rightly criticize uh, Biden, but we cannot underestimate the damage that uh, the rise of somebody like Trump actually represented. I mean, the January 6th Capitol riot is a significant moment. I'm sure it will be written up in histories of this period as the moment at which white supremacists and the far right actually got a sense of their power enabled by the commander in chief, right? Mm -hmm. Enabled by people uh, within government and at the top of the society. And the fact that, you know, if you look at the anatomy of who was involved, um, it, it was a lot of business owners and, you know, sort of middle classy type people but it was also, um, you know, members, current members of the police, uh, current and former members of the military. And, you know, this country is extremely polarized uh, between, you know, the reactionary right after, what was it, 80 million people voted for uh, Trump? Uh, I forget, but it was yeah. an astounding. Yeah, 8 million uh, more people than before. Yeah. Right, right. 
uh, we cannot discount what that means and how, you know, what some scholars have called white lore, which is the kind of stories that white people tell themselves quietly, how, you know, racist stories, right, and stories of victimization and so on, how that became legitimized in the mainstream so that some people felt empowered to not only storm the uh, capital, but also, you know, uh, you know, attack police officers knowing full well that they would be treated with kid gloves, you know, by some chance BLM protesters had done that, they would either be dead or put into life, uh, into prison for life. So it's important to, to look at what this particular presidency actually uh, legitimated. Um, it's also important, I think, to look at the shift he orchestrated in terms of international relations. Whereas earlier, at least from, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had in the U.S. something called liberal hegemony, which is this notion that the U.S. is this multiracial, feminist, and even gay-friendly uh, nation and because it's so multiracial and progressive and so on, it is an exceptional state. Of course, the idea of American exceptionalism goes back much before that. But therefore, it has the authority to police the world and spread its values and so on. Trump reversed that, right? His his policy was called illiberal hegemony, which was basically based on an America first, uh, you know, making America great kind of um, attitude. But it's not the case he did that he didn't intervene around the world. He absolutely did, you know, whether it came to, uh, you know, the Middle East or what have you. I mean, look at the case of drone strikes. Drone strikes actually first began in the Clinton administration. It steadily uh, escalated after that under Bush and then was dramatically increased um, under the Obama administration. But Trump actually topped it even more. I mean, it's quite incredible. People like Nadia Benjamin and others um, have studied uh, the number of uh, drone strikes and Trump really, really ratcheted it up to a completely different uh, and new level. And that's, you know, and, and we've heard Biden say that he has no problems continuing the war on terror uh, using uh, drone strikes. So the policies are similar, but they're also, you know, things that got escalated quite dramatically by uh, uh, by Trump. So then to the, you know, this, the sort of latter part of what you asked, which is the pivot to Asia and what Islamophobia is going to look like um, in this current period. So first of all, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, the recognition that China could not be contained was something that was articulated as policy in the uh, Obama administration. And one of his foreign policy papers talked about the pivot to Asia, but he was not able to carry that out because the U.S. was bogged down in, uh, you know, wars with ISIS and so forth in the Middle East. Trump actually is able to sort of push that to a much greater extent. I mean, there's this one video clip on YouTube, I think, um, where you hear, you know, <laughs> clips of uh, Trump saying, China, 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 <laughs> <laughs> which really became his central focus. But it became a central focus in a bipartisan way, even before Trump made it a big deal. What Trump did is he he introduced older racist tropes 
about uh, East Asians and about uh, the Chinese, the notion of yellow peril, which goes back to the 19th century, the idea that, you know, Chinese are dangerous, duplicitous individuals who uh, come into the U.S. to, you know, again, carry out all sorts of plots in ways, uh, you know, not dissimilar to how Muslims are considered, right? Racisms don't live in their own little uh, pockets. These racist ideologies often blend and mesh with one another. So Trump, uh, you know, brings back those ideas of yellow peril, but also his use of the Asian flu, the Chinese flu, right, in relation to COVID. And that escalates attacks on Asian Americans, uh, especially East Asian Americans uh, in the United States. But in terms of policy, there is a very clear consensus that great uh, power politics is really what is going to characterize uh, U.S. imperial dominance uh, in the coming decades. The New York Times has been running a few pieces in the last few weeks about how the CIA, for instance, which has used a lot of its resources on counterterrorism, is now reallocating some of those resources to intelligence uh, in relation to China and information gathering and you know, um, of course, they have for the longest time been trying to recruit spies um, in China and have successfully done so and in Pakistan and elsewhere. And actually, there was another New York Times piece lamenting uh, the way in which Pakistan and China turn CIA spies into double agents. So we are back in <laughs> the era of, you know, the 1950s type uh, spy games and uh, intelligence gatherings and cold and hot wars. Uh, but by no means is Islamophobia gone. By no means is the war on terror gone because the infrastructure that was created uh, thanks to the war on terror is not going to be dismantled. So just between 2018 and 2020, the U.S. ran so-called counterterrorism programs in 85 countries around the world, right? Um, they're not going to suddenly stop doing that uh, just because, you know, there's a move away militarily uh, from parts of the Middle East uh, towards China because rivalry with China plays out on every continent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if It's so funny how if the Iraq war inadvertently strengthened Iran, the Afghan war inadvertently strengthened China, because while the U.S. was wasting money on the means of war and death, China was building these roads, China was building these pipelines all across the region in order to tap into the wealth there. And in fact, um, uh, Afghanistan has these uh, minerals uh, uh, that, you know, are... uh, you know, likely to be very, very useful. And the people that they are, you know, folks have written about how the people that they're going to immediately try to uh, sell these rare uh, minerals to is uh, China. Uh, And so it may just displace opium and the drug trade in terms of the Taliban's uh, key source of revenue. So um, that's the situation. But uh, I I do think that anti-Muslim racism, the fear of terrorism and the labeling of anybody who refuses U.S. political hegemony as terrorist, um, that is not going to go away um, anytime in the near future. 
I just, I, I'm going to let you go soon. I just have a couple more points that I want you to comment on, Deepa. And you mentioned just this kind of shift from this multicultural kind of Islamophobia to the rampant, you know, open, flagrant racism that Trump embraced. And now we're kind of back to this Obama-esque uh, type of policymaking and, and rhetoric. And it just reminds me of how I, I do hear a lot of well-intentioned people on in liberal spaces and left spaces using language like Wahhabist or Islamist or jihadist to describe, you know, members of ISIS and Al Qaeda and things like that. And I guess I just wanted to ask your opinion on if this language is problematic at all, because I'm, what I'm afraid of is painting, you know, millions of people who ascribe to something like Wahhabism as potential terrorists is problematic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, when I did the second edition of the book, actually, I, um, so the first edition had more of a discussion of these forces uh, of political Islam. Um, and what I went into is how these, you know, groups, these parties are by no means homogenous. They arise in different countries, in different contexts, with different aims and ambitions. And what's remarkable is that some of them, there's continuity between left forces back in the 70s and 80s who, with the collapse of uh, secular nationalism and with the collapse of communist and other parties, gravitate to the parties of Islam as a way to continue their activism. I'm not trying to paper over al-Shabaab or al-Qaeda or ISIS or what have you, but to somehow take these groups and to paint everybody else with the same brush, what's known as the ISISification of political Islam is deeply problematic. I think that people need to study who these forces are, what they're doing, and what their aims are, and not buy into the ways in which, uh, you know, uh, the elite in this country and their academic mouthpieces um, actually attempt to homogenize uh, groups, whatever you call them, uh, Islamists, um, uh, and so on, um, because that's that's really a political maneuver to continue to maintain the war on terror. I removed that chapter, by the way, from the second edition of the book, because I did a complete rehaul of the book, uh, new research, brought it all the way up to the Obama, uh, to the Trump era. And there's so much work that's been done on Islamist parties and formations that there's no way I could, you know, uh, adequately do justice to that literature. So I'll just say this, which is, um, you know, jihad versus Mac world, that kind of formulation is extremely simplistic and people should avoid falling into that trap. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Um and thank you for talking about the second edition of your book, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. I encourage people to get a copy because it is incredible. It's it's full of new material. Even if you have the first edition, this is like a whole new book. So definitely check it out. Follow Deepa's work. And then I just wanted to close it out with a couple of thoughts if you wanted to comment on it. Um, you know, we didn't get into the actual history of the deep roots of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment that has really defined the history and culture of, of Western society. I feel like it's been such a, a part of American pop culture for so long too. You know, these racist depictions of villains wielding swords through the desert and cartoons and such. And then you have another kind of facet of this, which is the current of anti-Palestinian, um, you know, the mentality associating Palestinians as this kind of iconic 
dangerous Muslim terrorist, which undercuts a lot of a lot of the narratives and and perpetuation of Islamophobia. It's always this association with Palestine. And, you know, it's just so interesting. I, it, I don't know if you have any comments on that, but you know, this, this propaganda has been seeded out there even well before the U.S. coming on the world stage as an empire in World War Two. Absolutely. Since we have very little time, I'm yeah. going to the first part of your uh, comment question. Um, I'll just speak to the part about Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on a book that's called uh, tentatively called Terror Craft. And I have a piece out in the journal Recent Class with the same title. But I actually trace the joint production of the first Arab and then Muslim terrorists as a collaboration between primarily the neoconservatives in the United States and Likud party leaders and intellectuals in Israel. And what I show is how for the U.S. as well as for Israel, um, it becomes very important for Israeli enemies, that is, you know, Arab uh, nationalists who are fighting against settler colonialism in that country to somehow be projected as enemies of the West as a whole um, and as people who are branded terrorists um, in order to justify policies of imprisonment um, and so forth. And so there's a lot of collaboration. This idea of the terrorist as a racial figure is something that goes back to the 1970s and it, and it involves a pushback against progressive forces who come to the fore in the period of uh, decolonization struggles from the 1940s to the 1970s, who really problematize this idea of terrorism as somehow being what non-state actors do and instead focus on colonial nations as state terrorists, right? And so to push back against that numerous resolutions in the U.S. General Assembly, acceptance of Palestinian rights in the U.N. General Assembly. Yasser Arafat is invited to come and speak uh, and so forth. And so to push back against that, um, there is a series of conferences that are organized by the Jonathan Institute in Israel, headed by Benjamin Netanyahu, that creates this new narrative and along with it certain policies. And you see that in the Reagan, um, you know, the first war on terror uh, orchestrated by Reagan in the 1980s. So I could talk on and on, but maybe you'll have me back to discuss Terracraft another day. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Deepa, for your time, for your incredible uh, contribution to this subject. And I really appreciate your work. Thanks again. Thank you. Always a pleasure. nice. That was Deepa Kumar talking with Abby. And where is Deepa from? Uh, somewhere in India, I think. In India? I could be, I'm not sure. Doesn't it say on the bottom? No, it doesn't say. Well, well then uh, go look on there somewhere and we'll find out. Yeah. That was just absolutely enlightening. It was probably going to be worth us all uh, send send a link to Penny Rama, and then people might want to listen to that and watch that again. Yeah, she said many things. Okay, very quickly, we're going to do this now, right, Rama? This one? No, which one? Oh, um, 
I thought you wanted to do Gaia. Oh yes, let's do some. Let's let's see. We got forty five minutes of that. Um, All right. Isn't there a short? Just a short one first. Then the next one's thirty three minutes. Okay, so we're uh, okay. Let's just go ahead and do that then. Uh, there's commercials in this, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's okay. YouTube. We're hearing new sort of energies coming at the ad time. It's not the This normal. is called What's Going On on the Planet Right Now, which, you know, correlates with what Abby and this lady, Deepa, just said. That Send more love. Yes, let's go. Let's do it. Hi, everybody. Thanks for watching this. I wanted to tell you this is a little time sensitive. I invite you to take a deep breath and slowly, as you exhale, allow all the tension in your body to dissolve, melt away. And let us quiet the questioning logic and intellect of the mind. Let us gently talk to it. Say thank you for always being a part of me. And let's quietly move into that safe place that is always here for you, that safe place that reminds you that you are eternal, that you never had a beginning and therefore you never can have an ending. You simply always exist. And in this beautiful place of infinite existence, let us acknowledge the wonderful messages that we can now receive from Kryon. Greetings, dear one. My name is Matias Estefano, and my purpose is to remember. At a young age, I began to remember living in a colony of the ancient civilization of Atlantis. Then, I began to remember living... User ones, I am Cryon, of Magnetic Service. Each time we come to you in this way, we are so aware of all who are listening. For many years, we have presented the channelings. And for many years, those channelings have been recorded and placed in places where you get them. And you get them for free, and anyone can listen to them at any time. This was what I asked my partner to do many, many years ago.
And all the time that we have done this, I have told you this. That in a multidimensional state, it doesn't matter whether you're watching or listening to that which has been recorded or not. Because we are aware of the listener. Awareness of the listener. If you are listening or watching this in a time that it was not broadcast, a year later, we see you there. We know you there. You're part of the family. We're always with you. You're never alone. The fact that you have given intent to listen to this in your now, it's our now as well. Your eyes are here. Your ears are here. Your consciousness is here. We have a compassion for this. This is the compassion of the creative source. We know you. So this is live, no matter when you listen to it, no matter when you see it. And that is what we always wanted to say to you. So you understand, <laughs> it's the awareness we have of you as the listener that makes it so profound. This is the last of four channelings on that which is compassion. Now, we may do some other compassionate kinds of explanations in the future, but these four are the ones we wish to give you at this time for you, for what's going on on the planet right now. This is the fourth time I will give you that which is the definition of compassion as we see it, not the one you find in the dictionary. And even this description is filled with metaphors. Listen. Compassion is the connection with God, with spirit, with the creative source. A connection that allows you to meld with the energy of open-heartedness. With mature benevolence. With understanding of everything that is. Again, with perhaps even more explanation, a connection with that which is the creative source, that in itself, critical, is first, connect to spirit. And next, understand that that will allow you to have a complete and meld with things you don't normally meld with, energy, open-heartedness. Perhaps some of you feel you're not necessarily that way. You would be if you connect. Open-heartedness. Mature benevolence. Not simply benevolence. Mature benevolence is that which comes from old souls which have seen it all and are arriving now at this time and understand what the difference is between simple benevolence and been there, done that benevolence. Mature benevolence. And finally, understanding of what you're seeing. That's a big one. There are so many who don't understand what they see because they only see it in 4D. And those who are multidimensional have a second sight and a third sight, an understanding sight and a peace that happens because of it. That's compassion. And the fourth compassion is this. Something we've been teaching for years, and it's called compassionate 
action. Here is the premise. When you have compassion for any of the other three, number one, for others, number two, for the plan, number three, for yourself, what is the action that comes from that compassion? What do you do? Compassionate action is something that doesn't always happen. It's not automatic. There are many who simply have compassion. They feel certain things. They develop certain compassions, certain certain kinds of, of I would say, perceptions around it, and that's it. And it stops there. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's the rest of the story. If you have compassion for things, people, situations, for yourself, for the plan, what's next? What follows that we call compassionate action? What if there were really two parts to all compassions? And there is this, the understanding, the realization, you see it, and then you do something. Now that something that you do can be almost anything that is also compassionate. Let's give an example. You're compassionate to a person. And we rewind to the, to the first lesson, the first facet, compassion to others. And we told you, it's not feeling sorry for them. It is not pity. You have that mind that is melding with spirit and you have compassion for all that is them and what they're going through. Let's say they have, they have lost someone. Let's say you see them and they're in their sorrow and crying and you feel it right here and you start to have immense compassion for their situation, for their soul, for them. What's next? How powerful are you? Do you think that you have a connection to spirit? Do you think you're listened to? I'll tell you. There are millions of us who are listening to you all the time. Yep. Many people are not aware they carry divine power within them. Some things you're going to go through, you can overcome by up. When you pray to God, what have you been told that is? In the very linear 4D way. You have no idea. Every single time you open your heart to speak to spirit, we're there. So you see this person and what do you do? What if you were to put your hand on your heart, dear spirit, give this person peace and strength. I see them being hugged by God. I see them understanding more about what has happened and not and not having it affect them for the rest of their life. I see this mother who has lost their child. And I see that mother, perhaps, dear spirit, you will allow and send the energy of love so she is comforted. Nothing can, can illuminate that which has happened, but her reaction to it for the rest of her life can be mature benevolence. Where she sees it and it doesn't control her or make her cry every time she thinks about it. 
But instead, dear spirit, let her feel loved and understand. And so your reaction then and your compassionate action is instantly to say a prayer. To say, dear spirit, give her love, send her love so she can feel it. And maybe it goes further. Dear spirit, let this person find light in places that that person doesn't expect. You might see that there is an individual who hasn't lost anyone but is always, always sorrowful. It happens. Always perhaps depressed, it happens. A person that can't really see light anywhere, you have compassion for them because every time you're with them, you think, I wish so much that they could improve. I wish for them and I wish you can do more than that. Compassionate action is you going into that which you do so well, a connection with spirit, spirit to, to help them balance. Dear spirit, Let them find that which I found. Put something in their path that they can't miss, like you did with me. Let them find it in their own time, with their own choices. But put things there so they can find peace where they don't have peace now. So they can understand that they don't have to worry all the time. Some of you have had these things put in your path. My partner has a name for it. It says, Major Look. <laughs> With free choice, you make the decision that says, what if there's more than I was told? What if all of these things, this strange idea of channeling, the strange ideas that the Spirit has a magnificent plan, all these, what if this had, had substance? Substance past what you were ever told. By any spiritual leader on the planet. What if it goes further than that? What if you are magnificent? Then you say, oh, and it brings you here. And you start studying the things that will, will, will lengthen your life and heal your body. And then you turn and you see someone who hasn't got a clue. And you say, oh, if they only knew. If they only knew. And you'd have compassion. And now you start the prayer. Or the visualization, if you visualize, if you visualize, <laughs> even the feeling. Dear creative source, I know you love this soul. Put something in their path to make them look. With free choice, if they will or not, and if they don't look the first time, do it again and again. So maybe they can see light and find the comfort that they, that they could have, like you did with me. Like you did with me. Compassionate action. What if there is an action every time you feel compassion? When you feel compassion for the plan, which we told you about before, part of the four, what would be the compassionate action? How about this? You drop into your heart. You say, dear spirit, thank you for all you put us through to bring us to this point where we're starting to climb that ladder by ourselves of enlightenment, starting to clean up our planet, our societies, our culture, very, very slowly, so that there will be no more war. So that we'll start to understand each other and how to work with each other better. Thank you for that. 
Could it be that compassionate action is thanks? Yes. Every single one of you can figure out what would be the action you would take that would be most compassionate after you have the compassion. Yes, this is advanced. That's why we presented it to you last. I hope you've understood these four areas, and if you have not, you can always listen to them again. These channelings on the Healing Wednesdays, the channelings will also be available for all to hear, not sequestered only to the membership. But you're hearing them first, and you're hearing them now, and you're now, and in your real time. As I said, we know who's here. I'm crying in love with humanity. Mm. And so it is. It's. Hi, everybody. Thanks for watching this. I wanted to tell you this is a little time sensitive. Tell us what the next one is, Rama. That was so wonderful, everybody. Just um, let's be with that. Let me find it. <laughs> okay. I just want to say that we got a piece we didn't play from a while back and just to think of the I can just share it and you can think about it until we listen to it but it's it's called Egypt Alchemy and the Age of Aquarius oh there are many secret gates on our earth no we're not going to play that one we're going to play I know I'm just trying to get this ready oh okay there are many secret gates on our earth that can take us to another universe within seconds, and most of them might still be active. In this show, to unco- we uncover the secrets behind these mysteries. This is a real convent conversation with real facts and evidence. Jay Wiedner is joined by Johnny Enoch and Suzanna. Lotus. Together the three discussed Johnny's new show on Gaia, the Hungarian roots of Count St. Germain and Sargates of ancient Egypt and the coming spiritual renaissance for planet Earth and much, much more. Refer to the below link and it goes on from there. You got it now? Yeah, this is... All right. Uh, cry on from this past Wednesday. Okay, here we go. So this is 33 minutes, right, Rama? Yeah. Here we go. Good number. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. I'm aware of who's listening. Perhaps even why you might be here. Among those who are listening, you are experiencing, perhaps what we will call an awakening. This is going to be one of four channels this month where we're going to talk about the attributes of awakening that perhaps are a little odd. That is, you don't expect this kind of a thing when you start to awaken to a larger truth or perhaps you're opening the spiritual box. You just don't expect these kinds of things. We'll get to that in a moment. The premise is this, which we will then summarize each time we discuss this this month. 
Humanity has been seemingly, metaphorically, in a box of consciousness. And what that means is that if consciousness could be anything as high as you can think, there has been a box that seems to have kept it from going any higher. Now that is a box of your own co-creation, dear ones, but it's a box nevertheless. Old consciousness has been with you for eons, decades. It doesn't seem to get any better. Just a few years ago, it was the same as it was 20 years ago and 20 years ago and 20 years ago. One of the attributes right now of your culture, this society, this planet, is that that box has been enhanced. And that is what the shift is. Now, there is a rule, and we have given it to you before, that spirit gives to you, and that is hands off. In other words, you have to take a look. Free choice is that way. Spirit does not show up and give you a miracle so you'll fall on your knees and believe. you got to look for yourself. Hmm. So imagine in this box of consciousness, let's compare it to a darkened room. And in that darkened room, humanity has always been and lived. You don't really see each other very well because it's a very dim light. Therefore, there's a lot of misunderstanding about who is on the other side of the room. In fact, it is so dim and so dark, you kind of surround your wagons, as they say in your culture, and you live so you can see one another, work with each other, and there's a lot of fear about what is around you. Because it's dark. That's all a metaphor. But that is what a dark consciousness creates. Therefore, there is mistrust, corruption, war, and it has remained for eons. Suddenly, let's say in this metaphor, a door starts to open. A door that perhaps has always been there, but you never saw it. Because there is a tremendous light that has been turned on behind the door. And as the door cracks open, that light starts to escape. It's bright, very bright. So you only see the crack, but it's amazing. Even the crack, you would say, gets almost everyone's attention. What do you do with that? A new door is there. There will be many who will say, this is an evil door. It's what we were told about. It's what we've expected. Therefore, stay away from it at all costs. (laughs) And then there will be those who say, but light, it's light. Take a look. And the others would say, that's a trick. It's a trick. See, it's in scripture that there'll be a trick. But there are some who say, I want to see it for myself. And I'm going to decide for myself instead of what history told me it might be. Uh And as you go to that door, metaphorically, you start to see the greatest and grandest light you've ever seen. And you start to realize, this is what you've been waiting for. It is an invitation to look at something brighter in consciousness and better in consciousness than you've ever known. Therefore, there is an unknown quantity there, but it feels so good. It looks so good. And the closer you get to it, the brighter it becomes for you. There are many metaphors we can go on and on. As you absorb the light, you glow. As you walk around that dark room, you glow. And in that glowing, you expose more light to many others who for the first time get to see each other in a different light. (laughs) That's the metaphor. We'll call it awakening 
to a grander truth. And that's what these four channels will be. What is it like right now for you to have this metamorphosis of going from dark to light in consciousness, to awakening to a grander truth than you were ever told existed? That's why there's so much fear. No one ever told you, perhaps, that this kind of God was there. They told you only that there was a judgmental God that you should fear instead of one that was intrinsically in every cell of your body waiting for you to hold out your hand and go to the light. Some of the attributes we're going to talk about in this channel, the others we'll talk about in the other channels. And they're unusual. Now let's talk about why they should be here at all. If you are starting to awaken to a larger spiritual truth, you would then say, I'm going to see my guides better. I'm going to experience God in a more fulfilling way. I'm going to see spiritual things come and I'm going to be aware. And that is an elevated consciousness. I'm going to start going into mastery. And that mastery will then make me different as I see these spiritual things. Dear ones, that is a nice fantasy. (laughs) Suddenly angels will appear. (laughs) And that is not the way it works. The way it works is that you, your consciousness, your biology, the very essence of you will start to change. And why is that? And that is because God is in you, in every piece of DNA, in every cell. And that is where your awakening occurs. You are going to change. And in that change, you then develop a higher consciousness and you're going to start to see it. You're going to start to use it. Eventually, after this change and you're comfortable with it, indeed, You're the lighthouses of the earth. And you are the ones who will start attracting good things to yourself, living longer. And we've said this before. And others are going to come to you. And you're going to say, how do you do it? What's the answer? And you can then tell them what you know. But right now, you're shifting. This is the shift. Number one. Some of you are going to have an odd feeling that you are shifting and changing because you're starting to understand more about the things that used to drive you crazy. (laughs) People with certain habits, people that perhaps do certain things, or situations around you, situations that you've always really objected to, situations that make you, they say, made you nuts. And I say, no, again, it make you angry. And you're looking at them for the first time and going, oh, I understand it. I don't like it, but I see why it's happening now. In fact, you even have other ideas of how you can work with yourself to move into peacefulness about Uh. things that drove you crazy. Now, that's new. In the past, when you see that and it really makes you angry, you're angry. Sometimes it develops anxiety and fear, and suddenly you're looking at it in a different light. That is starting to happen to many of you. That becomes what we will call a peaceful understanding countenance 
of the ununderstandable. Be interesting to see how that's translated. There are things that shouldn't be happening in the way you see things and deal with things that now is happening in your life. How do you explain that? Situations that made you uncomfortable and anxious suddenly are starting to be met with your consciousness, with your mind, in a better light. Now that, of all things, dear one, should tell you what's going on with you. Because those are attributes of mastery. Some of you will say, well, that's not exactly the thing that's happening just yet. In fact, I have some opposite things that are happening. Well, we'll cover that in session four. (laughs) Because those are more attributes. Here's one you didn't expect. You're feeling a disconnection with some friends that you've had before. Now, this has nothing to do with what's going on on this planet right now. It has nothing to do with some of the attributes that are on the news or some of the things that would separate you. I'm talking about feeling a disconnection with friends. Now, friends are those that you would you would be with and enjoy being with and, and have activities with. And now you're even looking at the activities and you're going, I'm not sure. You might start to analyze it and we say, why, why, why? Why are you disconnecting from this really this lifetime friend? And you would say, well, because they they complain a lot. And you might say, well, so what? And you would say, I'm starting to hear it in a different light. And their complaints are starting to slap me in the face somehow. And I'm uncomfortable being around them. And that's new. I always just thought it was fine. And now it isn't. You feel an actual disconnection. Oh, but for some of you, this next one, not all of you, is perhaps the oddest of all. Are you ready? You're starting to feel that your family is not really your family. Your blood relatives, sisters, brothers, mom, dad, they're not really that which is your family by the definition of family. And it's not that you are removing yourself from them. You're just saying, what if they're not who I think they are? Now, that seems to be mysterious and odd, and some of you who are experiencing that are feeling guilt about it, not understanding that a master will start to see the family very differently. And part of that is seeing Mother Earth, Gaia, in a different light as perhaps being the source of the real family. These are some of the odd things that start to happen in awakening. There are more. There are psychological issues. There are physical issues. Really strange ones. And by the time we get to channel four, we'll tell you why this is truly happening the way it is. Oh, my God. Blessed are those right now 
who are going to this light and this door metaphorically and are not afraid. For they are going to find themselves magnificence in their own cellular structure while they're here. And they're going to feel loved beyond measure. I am crying in love with humanity. And so it is. Greetings, dear ones. I am crying. Come a little closer. What if I told you you're not who you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> that has many layers of understanding, dear ones. But the truth is this. You think you are that which you have been taught you are. No matter what culture you have come from, you are shaped by what you've been told. The guest today brought it forward in scientific terms. And now we tell you, it is so. And that part of the unprogramming or deprogramming Of what you have been told is what this, the circle of 12, is all about. It's coming to a grander conclusion upon examination of you, your life, your purpose. That grander conclusion is coming to that which is far different than anything you were ever told. What if I told you you're not who you think you are? I'll give you an axiom. We've said it before. You need to hear it again. Every single human being on this planet has a greater part of themselves called a soul. It's the bigger you. Every human being on this planet comes in fresh with the ability to find the creator. We've said it before. At some level, some intuitive level. It has happened for over 85% of the planet believes in God, a monotheistic creator, one, one energy, the creator. But that's as far as it goes. And then there are literally dozens and dozens of systems you believe that that creator wants you to be in, participating in order to find the creator. And that, dear ones, is your training. What if I told you you're not who you think you are? What if who you are is a pristine human being? When you wipe away the programs that you've been told about who God is, what if you stand there without those programs, what would you do? I will tell you this, you are designed to find and use the creative source. You are designed for mastery. All of you, every one of you. You are not designed for suffering. You are not designed to be punished or to be judged. Dear ones, all of that has been given to you by your own cultures. And some by those who really believed as they told you. They would tell you that that beautiful, wonderful, loving creator is somehow separated from you so much 
But that beautiful, loving creator will then punish you because you did something wrong. Or even worse, punish you just because you're a human being on the earth. <laughs> Does that really sound right to you? Mm-mm. Dear ones, that is what is trained into you. And that's not you. Mm-mm. If I started telling you who you really are, you start seeing the reactions that you have are programmed. Mm-hmm. The things that you don't expect about yourselves or may even be surprised that you have are programmed. They're, they're the way your mother and father reacted or told you you should react or spiritual leaders told you to react like this or don't believe this or go here or do this. Isn't it time perhaps to start your own reactions based upon compassion, love, And all of the things you are starting to learn are really there for you. Oh, there are so many who say, I am that I am that I am. And nobody's going to change it. This is who I am. Let me tell you, that has also been trained into you. And that is called the never-changing attribute of human nature. The never-changing attribute of human nature. Mm -hmm. That is not true. Human nature is how humans behave as a whole and have behaved as a group so much the same for eons that has been cemented in place and called human nature. And it's not looking at something that is all that pleasant either. When that term is used, it's usually used in a negative way. What if I told you that wasn't right either? Human nature can be whatever is happening with your culture, with your planet. Human nature is changeable. You're not going to hear that from psychologists. What happens if an entire planet starts to change its mind about what's important to them? What happens when an entire planet starts to love each other? What happens after hundreds of years and there's no more war? You're going to have to rewrite the term, aren't you? And human nature will become something it never was before. Because it is changeable. That's why we're here. We want you to discover things that you can change. We want you to see and admire yourselves in a different way. We'd love to bring to you a whole different idea of who you are. And then you can agree with me. Maybe you're not who you thought you were. And by that, I would say this. Those who have awakened to a bigger truth in these last years, have an attribute that they know about. And it goes like this. They look at themselves. They look at themselves perhaps a few years ago. And they shake their heads and they say, who was that person? Did I really say that? 
Did I really do that? And we've said this before. There's that attribute of disbelief of who you used to be. You changed your own human nature. And now your nature is far more understanding and benevolent and kind. You're no longer a complainer. You watch what you're saying. You start to bring abundance into your life. Because it's attracted to your mastery. Dear ones, this is the same as everything we've taught. There are those who would question all of it and say there has to be a give and take. What would happen if everybody became abundant on this planet? It can't happen. I will tell you it can happen. It can happen. Let's, let's see. The result of it would be peace on earth, dear ones. Abundance is not a pile of gold. Abundance is you taking, being taken care of so you're not hungry. Exactly. Abundance is, is far, far different than perhaps that you even defined it. So that you're peaceful in your society financially. Yes. So that you, you are in a, in a place where you don't worry. Right. Abundance is having peace. You reapply the whole terminology instead of a pile of gold. It becomes you being peaceful, having enough to eat, not hungry, and surviving easily in a society. <laughs> and there are still those who would say it can't be for all. There's something wrong with this picture. And that is also something you've been told that is incorrect. Other planets have done it, dear ones. They know how. And it also has to do with what is coming where you get your energy from, where you get your food from, the workflow of what you think might have to be in order to generate certain things, and that all changes. And you start <laughs> to understand and realize, wow, everyone could benefit, no matter who it is. Right. What if you're not who you really think you are? Oh. I want you to go across this bridge with me. Because I want you to rewrite that Whole scenario for you and others. Stay with me. This may seem like the same kind of an exercise you once had, but not really. Mm -hmm. I want you to take my hand and get ready to cross the bridge, that metaphoric separation between what is known and linear and what is unknown and multidimensional. Mm -hmm. The unknown is often frightening to people because they don't know what is truly next. What if truly next meant something grander and bigger? Never negative. Always positive. That's what we're talking about. Take my hand. Let's cross the bridge. It's a grand place you find yourself in that drips with compassion and peace and love. And you realize this is the real you. Not the one you thought was you. This is your soul, dear ones. You are in your soul's energy. And that is what is on this side of the bridge. Your soul's energy. Where all things are possible. Where truly the idea of miracles and magic is every day. Whatever you think those words mean. Attainable and doable. Because you are part of the creator. Who created all things. That's your soul. 
is eternal in both directions. Always existed, always will. That's your soul. And right now, in this finite of time, it exists with you and a human body. I want you to go into this theater, through that portal, that door that we often ask you to go in, into the theater in the round. This one where you never know who's going to sit in the seats today. And whether you're going to be standing or sitting on the stage or whether you're going to be alone. The theater in the round is a, is a theater which has an audience that surrounds it, which is sunken. The stage is risen, so you must, you must walk down into the audience and up onto the stage. There's no one in the audience yet. It'll come in later. So if you wish to, and you want to join me, this one is a bit different. Go ahead. Get on the stage, sit in the chair. The chair is there. The spotlight is on it as always. And it's a chair with your name on it. It may even be made of gold. It's so precious. It's where you sit and relax and enjoy and be because of what's going to happen next. This is a difficult one to describe, this experience, and it's timely. And that is to say that years from now, if people listen to this and when they do, it's one where you kind of had to be there to understand what is going on. There has never been a time, dear ones, when there's been more of a division of attitudes than now ideas than now. All through this particular world and especially in your culture and in your society, you're polarized. You're starting to line up in many different directions because of what is happening. And it's not just political, dear ones. Those who believe this and that and this and that, so many layers of belief and disbelief and ideas of right and wrong and shoulds and should nots that is starting to separate so many of you from long-time, beautiful, loving friends, from family. And you sit here and you wonder, is this ever going to heal itself? What do I do now? Indeed, some of you had such disappointments that you're trying to get a point across, for instance, of what you truly believe or trying to say something and your friends are just the opposite. They say, how could you be so dumb as to believe what you're believing? And you're looking at them and saying, I feel the same way about you. And the door oh. slammed, and you haven't seen them for a while. And you just realize they're gone. Because that can't heal, you'll say. That's, not, that's a tough one. Where family will call you up and say, well, I know we're related, but it wouldn't seem like that because you're not thinking straight. And they'll go after you on some kind of a thing. And it's not always political. And you hang up the phone and realize that's a wounded relationship I used to have with somebody I loved. That's who's going to be in the audience today. And they're filing right now. And I want you to see they're filing in and they're actually grouping themselves. Unusual for those who believe this and believe that, those in political parties. There's, it's an odd thing to watch, isn't it? They all group themselves. And they don't really know what's going to happen. They're seated. I'll tell you, this is a metaphor. Are they there or are they not there? It's a metaphor for what can happen. They're looking at you because you've invited them to be here. 
in a way you said esoterically, come into this theater that I visit often. I want to show you something. I want to show you something. And they sit there. And suddenly as they sit there, perhaps an angel appears with you on stage or something. And a bubble surrounds them, the whole stage, the whole theater. And suddenly in this bubble, a consciousness magic occurs. And all of the things that separated you and them and them and them disappear. They can't even remember them. (laughs) Suddenly, for a moment or two, they can't remember any of the things that devised, that, that separated them and divided them. And they're looking around each other. They're actually meeting each other again for the first time. And they're recognizing, and there's this, like, there's, there's this reunion. And then they look at you, because this is what you did and what you have brought them. And they see and understand it's a wave of love going to you, because you brought them here. Somehow you produce a miracle in their lives and they're meeting each other again. And some of them start to weep and get on stage and come to you and say, I don't know what you've got or what you've done, but thank you. Thank you because I love you. Please forgive me for anything I ever said because I love you. And they start looking at you and cheering and applauding what you brought to them. They never could have done that. What's a miracle? Everything that divided you went away. Why is this important? (laughs) Because that's the way it's going to be in a few years. In other words, all of the things that exist today that would have separated you so severely from those that used to love you will no longer be there. Because that's what happens over time. Attitudes change. Political parties change. Conditions change. And then you look back and go, why? Why did I think this way or do this? Why did I say what I said when it's all so temporary? Meanwhile, all of them are in a place right now of tremendous appreciation for what you brought to them. You're ones when you leave this place. And you go back to what you call your reality and you think all those barriers are there again. Think again. For the friendship and the love that brought you together for the first time is still there. And perhaps a few compassionate healing words will be all that's necessary for them to look at you and say, how did you do this? Or you might call them up and you say, first of all, I want to tell you no matter what you think about me, that I truly love our friendship and I really, really want to say. I don't, it doesn't matter how long we might be apart for this, but please, please know that what, what attracted me to begin with to you or to your family, what I loved, what I loved about you, I still love about you. And then when you hang up the phone, watch what happens. <laughs> Cause they'll start to see the magic of the angel that you brought them today. Stay here. I want you to stay here and enjoy this just for a little while. Is this real or is this not real? You tell me later when things start to change. And so it is.
All done, Laura. Yeah. Wow. How about you share a few insights? Um. Holy cow. (laughs) All I can say is, listen to the force. This is what he's saying. Mm -hmm. I'm saying it simpler. Just listen and you'll hear it. What's that song we were going to play earlier? Oh. I want we play that now. Okay. Here we go. Tell everybody will recognize, right? <laughs> Rama, you know what I just thought of Pavarazzi with um mm. our friend. Celine Dion. No, Mayo. Um Bono. Oh. Ave Maria. Mm. Absolutely. Bring that yeah. goddess on. Just a oh. We're going to play some beautiful music tonight, everybody. It's three beautiful male singers. Operatic. And I'm just going to have to let you listen because I don't know all the names. All I'm saying. And, and then there's this young lad. He's about 10 years old. And uh, he plays an alto sax. That's outrageous. I think it was arranged for his size. I'm just saying it's short. And, but anyway, and this one of the tenors sings with him. And it is just, we're going to get that sound in our vibrations, everyone. Did you find one, Rama? Yeah. Okay. Just a second. Oh, good, you found it. Okay, everybody, this is wonderful. Feels weird picking it up. The legacy of that shield is (laughs) right on the money, everybody. Let's keep that in our hearts. And we'll take a little break on that one. And we'll be back with music and a look at the stars with our brother Richard and Kay Pacha and Tanya Gabrielle. Until we see you then, just a short while now. Remember BBS Radio, best radio there is. <laughs> Namaste for now, everyone. Namaste. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. All right. Good evening. Good evening, (laughs) sir. Good evening. Yeah. Strange stuff going on. I hear K-Potch has got a whole lot to say about it, too, Richard. Well, look, the eclipse was 18 hours ago. Yes. All right, it's exact. It's 3 a.m. today at 13 Sagittarius, all right? Mm-hmm. And Venus is conjunct Pluto, all right? And mm-hmm. the sun-moon is sextile Saturn, 9 Aquarius, and it's square Neptune. Ooh. 
And if we count just the next three degrees, if we give Venus with is is within three degrees of Pluto from now, really wow. until January first, and I'll show you why that is, is because the Earth is traveling along right along with Venus, right? Here we go. And if we and if we line them up, look at look at this alignment here. Here's the Earth traveling along with Pluto, and well, I mean traveling along with Venus, right in alignment with Pluto, going on and on and on and on. Now we're going to also see that Venus is going to go retrograde because, like right here, here you'll be able to see. Watch this line because if you draw a line between the Earth and Venus, you're going to see that that line is going to start going backwards through, right? Now, since we're, well, it's still, it's still passing, but see, as we come around, now there, okay, I, I, I did it too soon. Watch. Here we go. See how line between Earth and Venus going backwards, going backwards, going backwards, going backwards. And this is like what's really going to blow your mind. Watch what happens here. (laughs) The Earth comes around and... This is not until March, okay? (laughs) But, you know, so Venus is still, right? If you draw this line between Earth and Venus, it's still going to be, you know, Venus is still moving through Capricorn. I mean, Venus is in Capricorn, uh, you know, uh, until, I think it's what? Well, it is until March because look what happens here. We come up. We come up. And can you see Mars coming around? Yeah. Mars comes around. Oh, poor Dios. Look at this. What is that? Oh, my it God. It is an exact Earth, Venus, Mars conjunction. Oh they God. are at exactly 27 degrees. Oh, my goodness. Okay. On March 2nd. Of 2022. Still in Capricorn. Venus is all this time going retrograde right on through the sign of Capricorn. Conjunct, you know, it goes up and it conjuncts Pluto. Then it goes back away from Pluto, back to 11 degrees. Then it comes back forward and hits Pluto with Mars. Is this not amazing? So, you know, this is what's, you know, this is what's really, you know, going on for, you know, um, let's, let's, uh, shrink things in here a little bit. What else did I want to show you? Uh, we've got, how can I do this? Well, I have to go back to where we are now. Hmm. Let's, uh, let's get back to, I'm still at January 17th. Let me get back here to December. It's using an animation program. Come on. Come on. Is this not the coolest program? Solar System Scope. 
is the name of this program. Okay. Solar and what we've got now coming go. up is, as you can see, let's hopefully, we've got to shrink it a little bit here in order to, well, I'd like to, oh, my goodness. Okay, there. Yeah. Not so easy to see, is it? No. Well, if you draw, it's Mercury square Neptune. So what you have to do is you draw a line from Neptune to the Earth, and then it's a 90-degree cut out to Mercury by the time we get here to, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that is Mercury square Neptune. Mm-hmm. Then we have, can you also see this, Mars square Jupiter. Here, this this is a little more obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Can you see, you draw a line here, boom, down to Earth, square over to Mars. See how that's going on? Mm -hmm. So that is Mars square Jupiter. These are all geometrical, uh, you know, configurations, you know, of the, you know, based on this whole solar system. And, of course, the starry background gives us the whole orientation Mm. of these different aspects. So there you have it. We have, you know, we have the eclipse coming. We have, uh, and, of course, the other thing that that doesn't show up on here is Black Moon Lilith. Mm. What we have is uh, Black Moon Lilith is, you know, she holds the Earth. It is a gravitational point that holds the moon in her orbit. Okay, so she is in opposition to this eclipse. Mm. So we've got uh, Lilith over here. You can't see her. She has no physical mass. But black moon Lilith is opposite the moon and the sun. The earth is right in between. Okay, this gravitational uh, pull holding the moon in her orbit in opposition to the moon herself and the sun. And, of course, Mercury. That's, there's Mercury hiding back there <laughs> behind the sun. <laughs> no wonder you can't think straight. <laughs> the sun is blocking out Mercury. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me look at the camera and talk more about it. Okay. Well, whoosh. It took me an hour to hike down here. It's probably going to take me two hours to hike back up. (laughs) So I'm just going to sit here and relax, talk at you for God knows how long. There is so much to say, more than I could possibly cover in a single little Pele report. I want to do more. I am going to uh, post a little meditation on... uh, on the eclipse itself on Friday, um, for those interested. But yes, the solar eclipse in Sagittarius, the moon blocking out the rays from the sun, you know, breaking the auric field, the shield. That sun is our protector. I mean, there's a lot of glare right now. I can't even see it. <laughs> what this video looks like, but 
that sun is warm and beautiful and powerful today. Ow! Amazing times. Amazing times. So, the 13th degree of Sagittarius. Again, I have to read you the Sabian symbol because this is very powerful. Uh, not only is this dealing with a kind of a, a karmic time period, this degree, but it is a south node eclipse. And the south node of the moon we know is K2. It has to do with the past, with our karma, with what we're bringing in, with what has happened before. And if you don't like the word karma, you know, some light workers, oh, there's no such thing as karma, whatever. Consequences. You don't brush your teeth, they rot. You don't eat, you starve. Is it karma? Just call it consequences. <laughs> there's things we do, and there's things we do right and well, and they progress us and evolve us, like our mantra today. And there are things that we mistake, we err, we mess up, and we got to go back. Maybe you had to repeat seventh grade. I don't know. You know, <laughs> so you know if you, if you mess it up. You plant your seeds, you know, in the wrong place. You don't grow any food. Maybe you got to go back there and replant. Whatever. <laughs> but whenever we're in this this cyclic unfolding, this cyclic evolution, we have these time periods, and there's a there's a good time and a good space for everything. You plant your seeds in winter; it's the wrong time. You plant your seeds in the fall, it's the wrong time, right? So there's a time and a season for everything. So it's not only, you know, doing the right thing, it's also doing it at the right time. Time and place, time and space, Saturn, ruler of Capricorn, Venus conjunct Pluto in Capricorn, Pluto in Capricorn from 2008 to 2024, transforming, evolving the forms and structures. I'm going to read to you about Capricorn. I got to. It's, it's too good for you. But I want to start out, okay, with the Sabian symbol. You guys know it if you've been watching the, the Pele Report from before. Uh, again, it's available on my website under the Resources tab. Uh you know, the PDF, downloadable. Sagittarius, 13 degrees. A widow's past is brought to light. The karma of past actions as it affects opportunities presented by a new cycle. I mean, I've been saying this for years. <laughs> the end of patriarchy. New paradigm astrology. We're starting a new age, the age of Aquarius. A new cycle is beginning. But the karma of past actions affects the opportunities presented by the new paradigm. What the widow's past is remains obscure. But the point is that even as a past cycle is closed, a phase of married life ends, 
the karma of whatever deeds or misdeeds this cycle witnessed will almost inevitably intrude into the new life period. Also, once a cycle of activity is concluded, much that was unclear or unconsciously motivated in the events it witnessed can now more easily come to the clear consciousness of the mind. I could repeat that. It has to do with reflection. I'm going to come back to reflection, a Capricorn-Saturn principle. Reflection on the clear consciousness. We see things that we didn't see maybe before when we were in the midst of doing them. (laughs) Yeah. It is possible to joyously herald the dawn from high above the actual stresses of existence, which is the preceding symbol, Sagittarius 12 degrees. But the new day may be found loaded and darkened by the unfinished business of many a yesterday. We are the widow because our soon-to-be-concluded Piscean age has buried most of the ideals it once revered and proclaimed. Yet the new age will have to deal with many oppressive ghosts. This is a symbol of retribution. What are we dealing with? Some of you that have been following me and listening to some of my things on YouTube and off YouTube, maybe you're in my school of astrology, but you know, we are dealing with totalitarianism. We are dealing with a power grab to completely control, dominate, and enrich themselves off of the works of the many the few, the elite, the shadow of Aquarius. I always thought that after, you know, Hitler and and the World War, we would have learned our lesson about propaganda, about media, uh, about politics and politicians, about money and bankers and power and, uh, you know, and, and greed and conquest and hoarding and and selfishness. This is just like the illusions of Pisces. And what's happening now? We are getting revisited by the same kind of, whether it's the Romans from thousands years ago, okay, or more recent, you know, patriarchal domination and power grabbing has been the shadow for a long time. And that is feeding what I'm bringing forward as the uh, mantra for this week. And this week, this solar eclipse sets the tone for the next six months. Venus is in Capricorn for four months. So let's look at Capricorn a little more closely. Like I said, you know, Pluto, okay, Pluto is in there for 14 years. Okay, you know, Venus is coming around for four months. 
It's going to be joined. Mars is going to enter. The sun will enter. Mercury will enter. We're all in this very powerful, powerful Capricorn time. We know that the Pluto polarity point is cancer. That is our evolutionary journey of, uh, you know, of, of moving towards and evolving. So, you know, Pluto is our past, like the south node of the moon, the theme and the plot of the past. And so we are, you know, we are revisiting. And some of what was unconscious, the karma and the actions are presenting us with consequences. And these consequences, you know, have a lot to do with our social forms, our social structure, our culture, or lack of culture, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. Our social structures, our socio-political, religious, economic structures. This is Capricorn. This is Saturn. I want to read to you from Jeffrey Wolf Green. He's my teacher the founder of evolutionary astrology. And we, you know, looked into, you know, his Pluto, Evolution of the Soul, Volume 2. Let me just read you a little bit. It was so funny because I went to just, you know, like check up on some of this stuff. And look at, I'm getting messages on my phone. I have it in airplane mode. And I'm still getting like... You know, the media is intruding. Technology is intruding upon our personal space, right? So anyway, yeah, the page came out. This this page, I've gone through this book so many times, the pages are falling out. This page fell in my lap, man. It's so great. And it talks about Capricorn as being the principle and organization of time and space, is the archetype, yeah? It correlates to the phenomena of finitude, finitude, or mortality, and to the nature of how collectives of people organize themselves into structured groups or societies. With consensus formed, man-made laws, regulations, norms, taboos, and customs. This in turn creates social expectations of how people should integrate and conduct themselves within the group or society. In parentheses, the expectation to conform, which in turn becomes the basis of social judgments. And when the expectation to conform to what the consensus expects does not occur, this becomes the basis of guilt. Capricorn, Saturn, is this function of guilt, the archetype of guilt, out of not conforming to a consensus, a group of man-made laws. Let me go on. In addition, Capricorn correlates to the structure and nature of consciousness in human form, to the nature of structure in any form, and to the use of form, information, 
<laughs> it also points to the need to change the nature of structural form when that form has become counterproductive to necessary change. That is, when it has served its use and become crystallized. In psychological terms, Capricorn correlates to the function of conscious reflection, which allows for a simultaneous awareness of the overall state of our beingness and what we need to change inwardly and outwardly in order to grow. Because of Capricorn's correlation to time and space, finitude and mortality, it also correlates to psychological, emotional maturation, aging, defining the focus of our life via goals and ambitions, and the self-determination, self-determination that this requires. Negatively speaking, this can produce the psychology of futility, pessimism, fatalism, and self-defeat. These may be some of the issues that we are now confronting in our evolutionary journey right now. The powerful state, the external authorities, making laws, mandates, lockdowns, restrictions, government overreach, creating a sense then of guilt if we do not conform, if we do not follow the old patriarchal hand-me-down crystallized laws, rules, and mandates that are actually serving a power other than the evolutionary needs of humanity and the individuals that comprise society. So, that brings me around to not only the mantra, but also the theme that I would really like to bring forward for this eclipse at this time where I am announcing the release of my new book, What is Love? Ow! <laughs> And this song for this week is All You Need Is Love. <laughs> nothing you can do that can't be done. There is nothing you can do that can't be done. There is no song that cannot be sung. This is the power of love, the power of intuition, the knowingness of the heart-mind connecting the heart-mind. 
So I wrote this book. I'm going to uh, tell you about it in the end, but you know, it's going around through each one of the twelve archetypes, and each one of the twelve archetypes giving input as to what is love, and love is the ultimate power. Love is the ultimate union that conquers separation and judgment and brings us, ushers us into this age of Aquarius, which is this age of unity and diversity, this age of enlightenment. We are emerging out of the Kali Yuga, the age of darkness, and we are emerging into the age of light. And one thing that we need to carry within us, one thing we need to pay attention to, one thing we need to follow and understand is that we are individuals that are unique expressions of source. Creator witnessing itself in eight billion different forms, structures, egos, identities. So this path of the Pluto polarity point in Cancer is to come home. Come home to where I am, my feelings, my emotions, my water. So beautiful. The moon's nodes. The moon blocking out the sun. <laughs> like... Get a taste of those emotions, baby, man. You may be feeling them. And I hope it's not futility and defeatism, but understanding that the darkest night is just before the dawn, that every cloud has a silver lining, that the dawn comes after the darkness. But there is a phase, and the phase that we're in right now with Venus and Capricorn is we need to reflect. And things are being brought up in the collective consciousness with Jupiter and Saturn, Mars squaring Jupiter, right? And even Mercury squaring Neptune, the collective unconscious, bubbling up, boiling up, overflowing into our consciousness for us to witness what have we done to create collectively what we are experiencing collectively? And what is the way forward? What is the way out? I'm saying that the way forward, the way out, the evolutionary soul path is the intuition, Sagittarius. Sagittarius, Jupiter, Right brain, intuition, knowing, trusting, believing. I am one with source. I am a ray of light from the sun, the source of light. It's in me. I'm an agent of light on this planet. And trusting my heart space when you flip on a video, when you flip on a station, when you read an article, sense, sense with all of your being. Get the, you know, the sound of the voice, the, the, the body gestures, the, you know, just the energy, the aura of that, you know, of that individual. Check it out. 
and trust. Your body's, your intuition is giving you signals. This one is nuts. This one is crazy. This is just, you know, a charade. This is misinformation. I, I just sense it. I smell a fish. Something smells fishy here, right? I, it's like we gotta, we gotta build, develop that muscle of intuition that we know what we know. We know truth. We sense truth and beauty and justice and what is fair, what is equitable. We know this. We don't need to be told. We don't need mandates and dogmas and programs and cut it out. If anything, it's education. You know, we need education. We need better education in a lot of the countries, a lot of the schools that I've witnessed. That's one of the first things they tried to wipe out for the last 50 years <laughs> is destroy the schools so we have a dumb population that doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> so they'll believe whatever we tell them. Oh my God, I'm watching this movie, The Brave New World. It was made in like 1980 off of the book by Algis Huxley. You got to check it out, man. Brave New World, it's on YouTube. Oh my word. <laughs> They've got alphas and betas and deltas. <laughs> wow. The guy was a prophet. Anyway, the mantra for today. Life is feeding me misinformation so that I develop my intuition to separate truth from illusion as the next phase of my evolution. Or should it be four? For the next phase? As, as the next phase of my evolution. It's like, this is a test. This is only a test. This is a phase. This is only a phase. This is moving. This is waking up. This is coming into the need to trust ourselves to be more sovereign, more autonomous, so we go forward and create an age of Aquarius that is diverse. It's not homogenous. <laughs> We're not carbon copies. We're not cookie stamp, you know, uh, everybody the same, 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 walking the same, looking the same, wearing the same muzzle, <laughs> whatever, you know. It's like, no, 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 no. Diversity. Just like the flora and the fauna. Look at nature. So diverse. There's power and strength. We build our immune system through diversity. That's why they don't, uh, you know, that's why it's always been taboo to sleep with family members. Right? You know, it's like, no, we you know, don't, you know, we need to diverse. We need to integrate. We need to spread out our, you know, our seed and, and really spread out and, and gather in and we grow stronger. By facing, by eating, by dealing, by exposing ourselves. Expose yourself to different viruses. You know, there's 10 to the 13th 
viruses on this planet, the idea that we're going to live separate, we're going to like isolate and you know inoculate and and, and protect ourselves from ten to the thirteen. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like cut it out, man. Viruses are essential to the evolution of the species. Like oing. Anyway. Freaking A, baby. Well, yeah. Check out my book. I'm going to do a meditation on Friday. I got my school going on. I'm, I'm going uh, through all about the planets with my students on Sundays. And I wish you the best during these times. I know it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. You know, I've been out there and I've been on the road and I've been seeing people, you know, all over the place and, you know, really uh, feeling the energy of these times. So hang in there. Be a beacon. Be a beacon. All you need is love. And maybe you need to repeat that over a million times. <laughs> One more time for the mantra. We'll wrap it up. Yeah. Life is feeding me misinformation so that I develop my intuition to separate truth from illusion as the next phase of my evolution. Go for it. Do it, baby. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Ow! Okay, this is it. I got the book. It just came in the mail. What is love? It's an <laughs> astrological adventure by Kaipacha. <laughs> Illustrated by Daisy Moon. The amazing Daisy Moon. And let's see what, uh, let's see what this book is about. Well, first we have what is love? In the beginning, there arose within them the same question at the same time. What is love? No sooner had it arisen than a loud voice rang. You will find your answer in the realm of the ram. So off they went on their journey, not knowing what it would take, where it might lead. Or what was at stake? Here they are, dee, 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 in their little moon boat. There they are. Now they're going to turn around, I think, right? Ah, there they are, star and moon. So, as they approached Aries, the horned ram of the sky, his powerful presence brought fear to their eyes. Look at Aries. And they asked him, what is love? And so Aries goes into it and he tells them. But watch out for one day it may come and then go vanishing out of sight. Because when it comes to love, there is more to say. To the starry bull, you must find your way. (laughs) I love these guys. (laughs) And off they go. So off they went on their mighty quest. And now Taurus the bull was magnificent indeed, surrounded by luxury beyond belief. 
Look at Taurus. Look at Taurus the bull. Cut it out. He's too cool. Too amazing. What do you think about that? And then, after Taurus comes, you know, if you know astrology, it's the little Gemini twins. <laughs> and, the, and, of course, the twins say that love is change. It comes and goes. It's never the same. You can't define it, box it, or predict. It's as smooth as silk, but can sting like a whip. That's what Gemini thinks of love. But he sends them on to the crab, the little bull. I mean, the little crab. And it goes on all through all 12. There's Leo. There's Virgo. They keep going on. Look at Libra. Amazing. This is the kind of book that you will treasure for lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes. <laughs> and of course, the grand finale is Pisces. Pisces the fish. Swimming around in a beautiful dream. Yes, indeed. And Pisces really lays it out for him. I don't want to give away the ending. I don't want to give away the ending, but it is really. And the end is only the beginning. So, <laughs> whether you are a child, a baby, having a baby, or you're just one big baby, we've all got a big baby in us. This is a book for children of all ages. <laughs> Namaste. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Happy New Year. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. <laughs> All right, real real quick here. So the moon's in the middle of Sagittarius. Uh, tomorrow it will remain in Sagittarius. And then Monday and Tuesday, the moon will be in Capricorn. It will do that conjunction with Pluto and Venus uh, probably late Tuesday. Wednesday and Thursday, we're going to have moon conjunct Saturn. On Wednesday, moon conjunct Jupiter on Thursday. And then next Friday and Saturday, moon in Pisces. So that's, that's the week ahead. The, 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 the tricky ones, well, the tricky one was yesterday and today. And then, uh, when that moon conjuncts, you know, interferes with the vibrations of Venus, you know, the moon is always in between us and the other planet when uh, when it does its conjunction thing. And it interferes with the easy flow of the energy, see? And then it comes around and if it's, if it's an eclipse, then the moon, you know, blocks that energy. Otherwise, the, the energy is... Uh, Generally, uh, combined, combined. So, uh, a week of five conjunctions between now and next Saturday night. Five conjunctions. Pluto, Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, and Neptune. And have a good evening, because we're going to go out with, uh, I guess, Tanya until the top of the hour. So, talk to you next week.
where we look at an upcoming astrology numerology event that impacts all of us. And in this case, we're going to dive into a transit for Mars. And you're probably watching this around the Sagittarius total solar eclipse, the new moon eclipse, which happens on December 3rd and 4th, December 4th for most of the world. And because Sagittarius is a fire sign and Mars is a fire planet, there is a connection between all these Mars transits that immediately follow this Sagittarius total eclipse. So in that eclipse, Jupiter is awakened and Jupiter being the ruler of Sagittarius and Jupiter takes us into a place of multicultural acceptance of every creed, every religion, every culture, and embrace the wonderful variety of the human experience. It is a planet of expansion and joy and fortune, wisdom. And so there is a lot to discover always with Jupiter. Jupiter governs long-distance travel. Now, Mars makes one of its transits to Jupiter a few days after that Sagittarius total solar eclipse. So what happens is the eclipse is on the 4th of December, and then two days later on the 6th, Mars is sextile to Pluto, and then on December 8th, Mars is square to Jupiter. So this is an extraordinary sequence of Mars events that initiate fire and passion and new beginnings because Mars is the natural ruler of Aries, the first sign of the zodiac. So with Mars and Pluto coming together first on on December 6th in that sextile, that's a harmonious, very easy transit. And Mars and Pluto really like each other because Mars was the initial ruler of Scorpio, the ancient ruler, Pluto, the modern ruler. So they when they come together, it's, it's very intense. It's goal-directed energy, and it brings tremendous results. So this is a wonderful go-to moment in early December for you to demonstrate some extraordinary energy and achieve a lot of success. Your ability to work with enthusiasm, with your internal fire, enhances your career, enhances your life. You have energy to spare and you have the endurance to direct what you're passionate about towards a goal. So set your intentions because you will have the determination to move towards, you know, Mars loves to go for it, right? And Pluto is very intense and unveils and empowers. So you feel very magnetic, very attractive. Both of these planets are incredibly sensual. And so it also activates romance and love. And so you want to keep coming back to those frequencies that you want to experience in your reality. This is really the key because Mars is going for something. So you have to direct this energy. And of course, during the day, you may fall out of the frequency that you are intending, but that's okay. 
That's what life is about. So we notice that and then we keep coming back to it again and again and live from that place of courage. And if Mars is anything, it is courageous. You're not limited to experiencing any frequency right now. You're just limited in the form that the frequency comes in due to some of the restrictions. So your part in the process is to manifest that frequency, to work on the manifestation process. The universe will always bring you the appropriate form of the frequency and the universe will produ- will provide you, once you tune into the frequency, it'll provide you that experience of the frequency in a very expeditious way and usually very energetically economic way as well because that's how the universe works. So as you're learning to tune in to the experience, the frequency that you want, this will help to liberate yourself because you have less forms to experience the frequency. So you're really going internal to make it happen. And that allows you to actually refine and hone in on what frequency actually is because it will appear in your life. So really empower yourself to consciously manifest those things that you want that are for your highest good. And you will just feel happier because you are manifesting what it is that makes you feel good. Now, again, the forms may not look like what you expected them to look, but if you can let go of those expectations, very important, you'll find that your life is simply much happier. And it's because you are experiencing the frequencies that you're consciously creating right now. So as you do that, you can also help support the collective because you're starting to create new ways, new institutions, right? We don't want to fight what we don't want. We don't want to rebel. We want to create the replacement. We want to focus our energy on what it is we want, not what it is we don't want, because that will just create more of that energy, right? It'll take us down. So it is very important to really focus on what it is you want in place of what it is you don't want, right? Not to fight what you don't want. So then we come to the final meeting of Mars, the final transit, and that's on December 8th. And this is my favorite one because, first of all, it involves Jupiter, and the sun is in Sagittarius in most of December until the 21st, and Jupiter rules that sign of joy, but also because December 8th sets off a double eight code, and that's because December is an eight universal month. In numerology. So a double eight means we feel energized, we feel empowered, we take the lead, we see a big vision, we overcome obstacles in a fearless way and realize that every obstacle we overcome, every challenge makes us stronger. So it's this eternal sense of being in touch with the divine that is represented by the eight on its side, the infinity symbol. Now, Mars squares Jupiter on December 8th. And Jupiter, of course, is about expansion. Mars about going for it, that that energy, that instinct. So you have a lot of energy to begin something. And you have a strong desire to make positive decisions, positive transactions, which affects business and personal. Now, because Mars has this drive and Jupiter has this let's let's go everywhere with this drive you know expanding you may feel like you're crusading for something so 
especially a belief because Jupiter governs beliefs, right? And we're in Sagittarius with the seven Sagittarius. So you want to really look at what it is that you are feeling so connected to. And is there a need to go on a crusade about it? Or is there just a need to listen and observe when it is appropriate to really insert that fiery Mars energy and empower yourself in your own life, right? So like I said, this aspect really favors business success. It favors anything to do with if you want your work to be recognized because you have the courage to stand up for yourself in any form. And the thing is with Mars, just remember, this is a square, so it can get aggressive You want to be firm instead of aggressive. You want to be strong and courageous. So use this energy wisely because it is extremely potent and beautiful as long as you don't burn the candle at both ends. And so that means if you're confronted with a situation where you need courage to stand up for yourself, this is important. Anything that's not for your highest good, this will give you the energy to say no. And so moderate your energy resources. Don't run out of steam, but definitely use the wisdom of Jupiter to, you know, stand your ground. And because of the newness of the Mars energy with Jupiter, you can start creating new ways of being so that some of the things that are going on right now, some of the restrictions some of the control mechanisms that are around, that you perceive, you know, around you. Maybe they're not impacting you, but you perceive them around you in whatever capacity. Those will start to shift because, in general, the collective is going to start energetically demanding that there be a different experience right now because everybody will be feeling internally to stand up for their own freedom. You know, Mars wants to be free to explore and Jupiter explores everything. So the collective has a need now to release control, to release a sense of victimhood and stepping back into power. Remember, we started those subsequent Mars transits with Pluto and Pluto empowers. So how do you get to that point? Well, what we do First is we need to realize what is disempowering us. So we create mirrors in our external reality and those mirrors wake us up to the fact that we are playing safe or playing victim, right? And that we've abdicated our power in some way. And that's what we're seeing going on around the globe. So we're basically then once we recognize that the mirror, we're saying this really doesn't work for me. This is not what I want to create. And so it's waking us up to the fact that something isn't appropriate any longer. And so the thing about the times we're in right now is many people have not experienced this or or at least not challenged it if they have experienced feeling victimized. Some have never thought about it until they've been presented with it at this time. So as a collective As we stand together, this is really needed so that we can all rise within ourselves, you know, internally, personally, to select new frequencies and decide how we want to feel. And when you decide how you want to feel, you are no longer a victim. That decision itself 
removes you from victimization. So when you decide how you want to feel, you cannot be a victim. You cannot be victimized by anything because you're consciously selecting the frequencies that you want for yourself. Being a victim is when you are not taking responsibility for the frequency that you're focusing on, right? That is what being a victim is. You're not taking responsibility for your frequency. And so you may be feeling possibly like you are giving your power away right now. Maybe it's past life energy because there's a lot of that coming up. We've got a lot of planetary energies right now that are helping us to purge. And so part of the purging process is any past lives of persecution, past lives of victimization, all of that is going on. So it's not to judge it. It's just to understand that it may appear. And your power is about connecting to your heart. And when you connect with your heart, you can't limit the energy that you tap into. So that double eight is really representative of that infinite energy, the source energy. So when you're in fear, when you're in doubt, when you're worried or you feel shame or guilt or judgment of any kind, then you usually say, I don't like what I see and you separate yourself from it. Well, Here's the thing, that thing that you separate yourself from and don't deal with is source energy. So you're literally separating yourself from source. You've cut yourself off from source energy. So when you get into your heart-centered space, you don't judge, you don't feel guilt, you just acknowledge. You allow it to flow through you. You don't limit the flow of anything that is appearing in your life. And so that way you experience the whole gamut, which is the point especially with Jupiter, to experience it all, the whole enchilada, the whole, you know, source energy experience, then you're not a victim because you're not saying, I don't like that. I'm not partaking in that. Well, it appeared in your life for a reason. You attracted it into your life, right? Take responsibility for that. And then go into your heart. Have compassion for it, right? So right now is really the time with this Mars triple transit to stand in your power. And when you stand in your power, you stand in your heart. And when you stand in your heart, you have courage. Mars is all about courage. So take this as an invitation to step into that place of being the leader, the person who has total compassion, does not judge, just is being excited and happy to experience life and never gets caught into that stream of anger and frustration and, you know, fighting energy because that's when you join the energy that you don't want in your life. So remember, focus on your frequency that you want. That is going to remove you from any sense of being the victim of anything. So enjoy that week. It follows the eclipse. And it is really a powerful time as we end 2021. And remember, you have a star code as well. Your birthday, your birth name, your astrology chart all emit a frequency. And it describes your destiny, your purpose. So if you want to learn more about that, go to starcodeclass.com. It's a free masterclass. 
It's all about you and it helps you understand the people in your life. So you don't have to judge them, right? You can just have compassion and appreciate them for who they are. So enjoy that at starcodeclass.com. Have a beautiful week and I'll see you at next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. I think Richard's gone. Yeah. Well, uh, to be sure, there's more of us here. And Rama, how about you share with everyone the conference number? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, so we'll see you there. Uh, and then we'll be right back here in the top of the following hour. From there to here and back again. And so, we are really grateful this has been one awesome day. And keep it all flowing with peace and happiness. Namaste, everybody. See you on that conference. Best radio in the, uh, Universe here at BBS Radio. Sat now. Mm. Wonderful, Ron. Wonderful. Welcome back, everybody. So we want to do Regina Meredith now, right? Okay, yeah. Let's do that. Let me share this a little bit, everybody. Alchemy and imagination. Many books over the centuries have been lost to history, yet ancient wisdom is still available to us. Stephen Ross returns to Gaia to speak about ancient teachings, including using the power of imagination to manifest reality in the hermetic concept of as above, so below. That's what we were talking about in terms of the Hall of Records, everybody. Yes. And don't let anybody fool you into believing this, that, or the other thing. That 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 uh, Andreas, um, what's his last name? He is not alive. And they did what they did in those vaccines. But there is an alchemy here, though. So let's see what happens here. Ross shares how exploring the library of German alchemist Alexander von uh, Bernus allowed him to analyze the interdimensionality of von Bernus's home. This expanded Ross's own understandings of these mystical and esoteric texts, inspiring him to share the importance of the profound truths these works carry for us in every age of time. So let's just do it. This is 46 minutes. Here we go. Stephen Ross.
you like to visit a castle? I'm from Los Angeles. It's like, yeah. <laughs> As an alchemist, von Bernis was so powerful. During World War II, the Nazis were afraid to even go into the castle. His wife is still alive. She's 95 years old. When she answers the door, she looks at me and she says, I've been waiting for you. Well, Everybody does this. All these famous people do this as soon as they see you. I, I was kind of in shock and I said, uh, we're all staying? No, she wants you to stay for three days. I open the trunk and there's parchments and scrolls dated 1300s, 1400s. So when I say I could feel these energies, I could pick things up from books, I want everybody to understand so can mm -hmm. they. One does not have to go and stay in the alchemist's castle. It's dramatic enough to get me on your show to share with your audience right. that anything in this world can happen. There's a world of knowledge and books out there that most of us will never have access to. Fortunately, our friend Stephen Ross has had a lily-gilded life when it comes to being led to precious and profound books and documents. In our last conversation, we spoke about his meeting with Manly P. Hall and being given access to his famed vault. Today, we're going to hear the story of Alexander von Bernus, who lived in Germany in a castle, and Stephen was given access to more than just books when you visited his castle. Hmm. Uh, this is, I, I didn't even know this story until maybe six months ago you and I were talking and I said, we have to do a show because it always essentially comes to the same place, the same things that are required of us to engage in our own lives, but your stories are also quirky and different. So welcome back, Stephen. Thank you, Regina. And I always have to hold something back so I can be reinvited again. <laughs> Oh, so this is strategic, or otherwise we would have done yes, this years it, ago. Yes, it was planned, yes. <laughs> so first of all, let's talk about the time when, and we mentioned this before, you and I were both wandering around Europe looking right. for stories on alternative, but particularly energy and color healing. So people know this if they've seen us before, and we're bumping into the same characters, but you were there regularly because you actually had an office in Stuttgart where I was just there to pick up a few stories. Right. And right. so you so you had a couple of friends that you met, Carl and Heidi, right? Yes, they I were didn't know them. my staff. They were your staff, Actually, Carl and yes. Heidi. So they said, Stephen, psst, there's this castle. And so pick up the story from there and tell us what happened as you were on your search for alternative healing therapies. Regina... Let me start by saying thank you for having me as a guest today. Always. I love it. <laughs> um, Carl and Heidi and I would take two-week journeys throughout Europe investigating healers and clinics. So, in fact, we were going to leave on a trip, and Heidi says to me, Stephen, would you like to visit a castle? I, I'm from Los Angeles. It's like, yeah, a castle, Okay. <laughs> So as we're driving to this castle, Heidi tells me she grew up in this area. It's the Von Bernis Castle. And Alexander Von Bernis was a very famous alchemist who lived in the 1900s to about 1950. And we visit, we come to the door and they say his wife is still alive. She's 95 years old. And she doesn't speak any English. We'll translate. But when she answers the door, 
she looks at me and she says, I've been waiting for you. Wow. Everybody does this. All these famous people do this as soon as they see you. I, I don't know. I'm very fortunate. Hey, I live a very blessed, magical life. And Carl and Heidi look at each other because the Baroness, von Bernis, was speaking English. We sat down and uh, in this room were floor to ceiling books. And on a coffee table is a book about Paracelsus from the 1600s, just sitting open there. And I'm glancing around. It's unbelievable with the paintings. They're all speaking German. And even though you and I traveled, I only speak two languages, English and Pig Latin. So I did not understand any of the German. I speak English and Pig French, I guess. (laughs) Well, you and I still were able to make these journeys. Yeah, we were. So... Um, they spoke for a couple hours and we were all getting up. I saw them get up. And as we're going to the door, the Baroness puts her arm, her hand on my arm. So I look at my staff people and they go, she doesn't want you to go. I said, what? She wants you to stay. I, I was kind of in shock. And I said, uh, we're all staying. No, she wants you to stay for three days. Now, of course, I had my suitcase because we were going to be traveling. Carl and Heidi said to me, we will return in three days and we will pick you up again. The Baroness says you have full access to the entire castle, which was three stories. And we will at least show you where your room is on the very top floor. So we go up and there was a room on the top floor of the castle and there was a trunk there. And, of course, I was wondering, am I allowed to open this trunk or not? She said you have access to everything. And what did I do that night? I opened the trunk, and there's parchments and scrolls dated 1300s, 1400s. In Latin or German? In in Latin and German, um, just an incredible collection of materials. And throughout the castle are... Again, floor-to-ceiling books, uh, paintings of some of the old masters in there. It was incredible. But I'm going to stop there so to take a breath and not go on and on and on. Oh, well, I want you to go on and on because what, what I'm going to say, I'll just prompt you further. Okay. Okay, she also told you you could have access to his office. Now, his office was kept 100% intact, it sounds like. Nothing had been touched since his death. How how long had it been since he had died? He had died uh, 30 years before I went into the room. But for clarity, when Carl and Heidi were to pick me up, they did pick me up. We were walking out. And once again, the Baroness put her hand on my arm. Mm-hmm. And I thought... Another three or four days, but <laughs> she told them she wanted me at that time mm-hmm. to go follow her. And I followed her down corridors, hallways. She takes out a Hidden big passageways. key. Exactly. What do you mean one of those huge ones you see in the movies? A big key. Yeah. And unlocks this room. And that was his office. No other person had been in that room other than the Baroness since her husband had died. And I'm, I'm just looking around. Uh, Carl and Heidi didn't say she's taking you to the office. They just said she wants you to go with her. And I did. 
Because I always follow what women tell me to do. Of course you do. There you go. So you are a good son. <laughs> I sat there. She was meditating. I meditated. Just sat quietly. About 50 minutes later, she touched me again, and, and we walked out. And driving home, Heidi says, Steve, that is amazing. Nobody has ever been in that room other than the two. So, What did you absorb? We have a lot of other things to absorb here you're going to tell us about, but what did you absorb in that room? Well, in that room, I, I could feel the energy, which was very profound because um, as an alchemist, von Bernus was so powerful that during World War II, Jewish citizens would be in the castle and the Nazis were afraid to even mess with him, with Alexander von Bernus or going to the castle. So that was his zone. Um, it was very powerful because the three days before that final time in his office, I was getting downloads all the time, the energy, um, I was to find out that von Bernis had access to all of Goethe's library, who is also very famous, and Paracelsus material, and that they had found people after von Bernis had left, special diaries that von Bernis had written in of Paracelsian formulas and old manuscripts handed down for years that this alchemist had. And being a sensitive type, I just was picking up there. It's a lot going on in here. Right. And I would just wander through. And I would, this hasn't always happened in my life, but I would touch some of the books that were in other languages and I could feel the essence of the information. Yes. And it's fair to note here, too, that in your own library, your beautiful, beautiful library um, in Sedona, Arizona, World Research Foundation, you, too, have some original works of Goethe yes. and also Paracelsus. Yes. And <clears throat> I do want to add, because one thing I wanted to accomplish on the show today is to be empowering people. So when I say... I could feel these energies. I could pick things up from books. I want everybody to understand, so can mm -hmm. they. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of people understanding they can do it. Hopefully we'll get into it a little bit later. No, we're with, going to. With the three keys. I want to hear the rest of this story first. So. Okay, so yeah. let's, okay, <clears throat> so let's go back now. You're sleeping there. Yes. And stuff starts happening. Yes. Let's talk about some of it. Well, some of the things where I was really journeying, I, of course, you're aware of the book on dreams. I've been guided by dreams since I was 23 years old. So that's 73, that makes 50 years. And in those dreams, uh, taken different places. But while I was there, it was kind of interdimensional because, uh, that's who this individual was and the environment, the place, the castle the vibrations were really set up to um, elicit experiences mm -hmm. like that. And uh, no again, less staying. Yes. Yeah, staying in the home overnight. Yes. I yeah. mean, it, it was very profound, but I was picking up a lot of the Paracelsian concepts 
even though Paracelsus lived late 1400s, middle 1500s. Why? Because that energy was permeating place. And it's good for the listeners to understand environment is everything. Vibrations permeate environments, which is why this alchemist was a great alchemist, but he was able to do even more because the environment is conducive. So if we want to do beautiful things, it would help if we have a beautiful environment. Which you do. Beauty is very high. Beauty is very important, as you know, in in my life and what we uh, share with individuals. And while we may have a library, I always encourage people, have a spot in your house Uh that just is so high in vibrations but it doesn't necessarily need to have all kinds of statues and whatever. It can. But if you have beautiful thoughts, uh-huh. if you permeate and just say, you know, in this spot, I'm not going to think or talk about politics or religion or negativity. I am just going to enliven this area with beauty. It will grow. It will become more powerful. The Paracelsian concept is You resonate as above, so below. We have within us these parts of us that resonate with the cosmos. So if we think about beauty, we can draw all the beauty that exists in our geographical area, in our state, in the country, in the world, in the universe. Yes, it's, we can concentrate it into our space. Correct. Yeah. So getting back to the castle, being in that kind of environment, immersed, and I don't think it was an accident, it was three days. Mm-hmm. That is, mm-hmm. there's a lot in literature about yeah. three, three days. and triplets. Yep. So those days allowed me to get into this incredible space everywhere I looked. And, and here was the barrenness. Of course, I saw her frequently. We couldn't communicate, but she was smiling all the time. She's a beautiful little thing. She's a beautiful little flower. Yes. And and when she finally passed about six or seven years later, the state where she lived really confiscated all of the library because those were archival books and treasures and originals. So that stuff's gone. It's gone into a place where it's a little bit harder, although, again, not everybody could go into the castle. Right. But when materials like this disappear into universities um, or government locations, you don't always have access to it. And right. that becomes right. a shame. It's, which is why the amount of dedication right. you've had to putting into keeping your library together so people can come and see all of this displayed in one place in peace is amazing. But so it's gone now. But so let's talk about the Baron reaching out towards you. Yes. Well, after my experience in his office, mm-hmm. we decided, Carl, Heidi, and I, I needed to go back to Stuttgart to kind of get my bearings again, and then we would proceed throughout Europe. Well, I go back that evening, and I was staying in Carl's house, and Carl had a um, actually like a three-story house with an attic. So that night, the attic was really nice. 
I was staying up there, and in the middle of the night, I hear footsteps. And I said, uh, who goes there? Yeah, who Who goes goes there? (laughs) What? What? (laughs) And I heard, Von Bernis is here. And I thought, whoa, because I don't, I'm fully awake when I'm awake. He was there, and I couldn't wait. So the next morning, I call Heidi, and I go, Heidi, Heidi, please call the Baroness. Tell her what happened. 30 minutes later, Heidi gets back, and she's laughing. She goes, Ilsa von Bernis, she already knew. She said, Stephen visited my husband in his office, so my husband decided to visit Stephen where he was. So she knew about that before the call. She did. Yeah. And what did I get out of it? Yeah. The continuation of life. Uh, that's already a premise in my philosophy. I believe very strongly in that. But that was made very, very evident. Uh-huh. He visited me. I decided to visit Stephen. <laughs> so I said, yes, it was very <laughs> profound. I love it. And so... As we go through this, he, in some of his, um, you know, some of the alchemical information you're most permeated with in this lifetime is that of Paracelsus. And so I would like us to be able to go into that a little bit now because I see you brought along something here. Yes. So a little gift. Let's rather put it than, toward the front. Rather just than just being a talking yeah. head, I wanted to have something here, something tangible. Paracelsus said the key to all of the acts of the disciples, the key to all manifestations, all materializations, is not by some sort of language, not sort of gyrations, not symbols. Three things, imagination, faith, and will. You must imagine what you would like to manifest or have happen. You must know that it is going to happen and have the will to continue on the course until it actually manifests. Now, he said that in the probably around 1510-1515, but that has been passed down for a very, very long time. Everybody has access. This is what, again, I, I was so happy to be on the show is to point out to people that we all have these abilities within us. We don't necessarily need to have gurus or go to special places or have endless courses or go to six-level courses. Those are just three words, but they're very, very powerful. They're very powerful, and this is this goes far beyond some of the... Um, Programs we've been exposed to, like the secret and how to get what you want in life. No, this is a very high order of application of these three things. And I think it's really important that you tell us about that and clarify what that even means. When you really think, now imagination today has a connotation, oh, you just imagine. The person just imagined that. It's not really real. But that is not what the ancients conceived. Imagination, when you go back to the times of Plato and Pythagoras, uh, 500 BC, 300 BC, the greatest gift given to humanity is imagination. Now jump forward to people like Albert Einstein. With imagination, there are no boundaries. With imagination, 
you can go anywhere. Imagination is very, very powerful. Now, many, many years ago, I read one of my greatest sources of collecting. Um, and in that newspaper, which some people would call a rag, it talked about if you want to dream about skiing, just jam your imagination, jam your reading. The National Acquire had this. You can have skiing in your dreams all night. That is jamming this conduit, this imagination conduit. But when we clear it up, when we allow it to do what it does, we can go anywhere. We can travel to the ends of the world. And the ancients said, we don't need to go into space. This was obviously before space. Absolutely. We yeah. can go because our imagination takes us there. Uh-huh. So using the imagination, being complete in what you might want to manifest. You want to manifest whatever it is. Maybe it's loads of bread. Maybe that individual reached that state so highly, so proficiently. Whatever is imagined will manifest when you absolutely know but now it goes back to trust, Regina. It does, and trust then leads into faith. And let's talk about the trust, but I think for a moment, uh, oftentimes because of society and what we've been taught institutionally, we have a great limitation put on our imagination. And this is part of yes. the illness of society today, is that lack of true, profound, from the soul, imagination. Yes. Well, most of the things we have, people are put into a box. Right. You can only do this. You can only do that. If, if this is your background and people are believing that to the extent that they don't trust themselves and it's going back to trust and, and the faith. Yes. If people understood, and I know we were going to get to this later, but I'm going to kind of jump. Uh, go, go for it. Good. You're so sweet. <laughs> I'm just following. When is enough enough? Big question. Oh, boy. We're not smart enough, not handsome enough, not pretty enough, don't have enough money, the billionaires. Don't have enough hair. Don't have enough hair. That's right. (laughs) When is enough enough where people will be content? The billionaires don't have enough billions. They're always striving. They're always looking for more because uh, who's more powerful, who's faster, who's stronger, all of our competitions. Hey, I have a sports background, I understand, but we've been locked into not thinking we're good enough who we are, where we are right now. That is the strongest message I, I want to leave with your viewers today. They are enough right now. We are all exactly where we should be. And the people that we idolize, the people on TV and the movie stars and even the speakers and the people who said, hey, I transcribed those chicken scratchings on the wall and it means this and that. And you sit and go, wow, that person's really smart. I, I wish I was that smart. If you really see the lives of some of these people today, they're going through the same thing everybody else I see is. a lot of their lives, and yeah, they, they're going through the same thing as everybody else. Exactly. So yeah. my point of all this is 
believe that you are enough, that you are right and you're good. And he's like this, the imagination, faith, and will. You don't need to take a million courses to learn this. No, not at all. The truth paths are usually very simple, but not always easy. Yes. And so in determining that, there has to be a kind of a, a more direct path for someone understanding what is enough. And that gets down to understanding your true values in life, true values, if we still have any, yes. besides consumerism, right? And which has been shattered. The whole COVID thing in that era has shattered consumerism in certain ways. Yes. Um, it's been fascinating to watch how people respond where you cannot have instant gratification. Yes. You can't just go buy the car in the color you want when you want or even a toaster because of, you know, the shortage of these the electronic chips. But maybe that's just part of the reason this happened. I think so. I, there is something in it where, okay, if that's not where you're going to get your satisfaction from in this crazed last 50 years of consumerism, pause. What does matter? Yes. And so I would like you to share with us how you feel. If you were talking to someone and guiding, coaching them, because you're a good coach. Hmm. How do you determine what your true values are so that you can determine when enough is enough. Well, that is that is the question I would ask the individual. What are you striving for? What are you looking to reach or to achieve by going to a million psychics or going to all these conferences? And uh, I don't want to say at any time anything is bad, but that's how I would begin with someone. What are you expecting to find there? What what will show you that you have reached what you're looking for? Most of the time, the person will go, I don't know, I just want to learn. Okay, well, when when would that reach a point where you could be satisfied? What will make you happy? What will make you feel content? And then say to somebody, have you reached that state? What makes you feel good? Now, one thing that I will share with people, how many people will say if they are involved in something beautiful or if they, they, they are looking at something beautiful, I want more of that. No, you're looking at a beautiful picture. You're looking at a beautiful scene. You're taken into that beauty. You don't sit there and go, I want more. I wanted it more intensified. Yeah, no. no, that's true because you're having a fulfilling experience. Exactly. Yeah. So somebody needs to determine what is going to make you satisfied and fulfilled. Now that kind of shakes people to their foundation. They go, whoa, I just have never thought about that. But I then would wait, as Paracelsus said, if you want to learn about any herb, flower, tree, individual, sit humbly, quietly in front of them. Don't think and just listen. So normally what I do in that situation is just wait to hear what the person's inner self is feeding back to me at that moment because we've kind of stirred the pot. And in stirring that, they are, I'm not going into them. They are releasing 
they are sending out vibrations. Their higher self is sending out energy. And then for that particular person, I can say, didn't this particular event give you pleasure? And they go, yes. Well, why aren't you doing more of that? Well, because uh, people say I should be doing... You're not big on the S word, the should word. Exactly. (laughs) Now, here's, here's one of the greatest quotes of Paracelsus. Do not belong to another when you can be your own. Mm. And if people allow that to really resonate, do not belong to another when you can be your own. Well, a bumper sticker version of that today is you might as well be yourself because everyone else is taken. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. So talk about the profundity of what that actually means. It is having the faith and trust in your own self that who you are and what you're doing is right and is good. And my belief is we are always put in places where we need to be and have the experiences that we need to have. And always, if an individual is always looking at somebody else, why can't I be like them? Why can't I have that? A person is not realizing that there's other dynamics involved with those people also. And you had mentioned earlier, if people really knew the lives that some Mm -hmm. of these superstars you're going through they would not choose that that's exactly right and And meanwhile you're dispersing all your energy projecting it onto someone else and amassing none of this for your your own betterment yes And, and so this is the big message be confident in yourself trust yourself and know you are unique you are exactly where you should be and you have unlimited capabilities. Too many people feel, and, and again, getting back to the imagination, faith, and will, um, they can't do it. I'm here to tell people they can. I started off, you and I joke a lot about, Stephen, you have all these things happen, but I was extremely shy. I was so shy growing up. During my day, you would call the operator um, or you would dial a number and the operator would say, that number's been changed. The new number is, uh, I was so shy. I didn't even call the information operator because I didn't <laughs> like to talk. I was very shy. But as I progressed, one thing I always did, if something came into my mind, I just did it. Right. I, I, I would follow yeah. through. So it's a matter of following through with the things that come. How many of your audience goes, you know, I thought about that invention three years before it came out. Right. Well, well did somebody follow through? Yeah. So it is a matter of following through, trusting the self. One does not have to go and stay in Al- Alchemist Castle. It's dramatic enough to get me on your show to share with your audience right. that anything in this world can happen. And now we have the application of will. Because will can often be abused and misused yes. as well as used uh, correctly. Yes. So let's talk about the correct use of will well, compared to, me, to what we often do. Well, to me, the will is staying the course. For me, will means that 
you must give things time to manifest. So the will means I know it is going to happen. Now I stay the course until it manifests visibly. People don't realize that what you're imagining exists. It already exists in the faced off only this much from the dimension we're in. Exactly. It exactly. It's waiting to drop into our third dimensional physical reality. So what's yeah. going to make that happen? Knowing, realizing your intent. And what's going to help more is when it's going to benefit the most amount of people. Yes. That is the little caveat on here. I can imagine, oh, I want to be powerful and control everything. Well, that may not happen for you in this metaphysical spiritual way, but it will happen if your intent is to assist to help people, to bring beauty into the world, because then the spiritual realm will kick in their energy that will help things manifest. I couldn't agree more, Stephen, and I've noticed that certainly throughout my life is when something, when I touch with something and think, oh, this would be a worthy project, um, and it has that element to it where this is information that needs to come through now. People need to have a deeper understanding. You know, angels' wings start flapping. Yes. Everything falls into place. I don't really have to do a lot, and it does start. The train starts leaving the station, exactly, in, in a good way with me on it. Right, <laughs> and and I would hope that people realize you are the star. I'm on your show, and people shouldn't just believe. Oh, it only happens to those people. No, 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 no. This happens. I see it when people have what you're talking about. Right. This identification and passion about whatever this thing is, and especially if it serves. And they're not doing it to serve their ego. Yes. This is a big component of it. A lot of people think, no, I want to be better known for this. No, this is important if it has value to humanity. Yes. To be better known part does not have value to humanity in the way we're talking about. Um, about a week ago, there was a story about a football player who has been very successful NFL pro who um, called 911 and was looking. He said he was going to commit suicide. Oh. Uh, my point of that is that, again, what we think people's actual lives are, the athletes, the movie stars, is is very, very different than what people imagine. And I, I wish that people could understand that as opposed to um, what we see on every TV commercial. You got to look thin. You have to have this. Uh, you got to have this body. I'm working my exercise bike. It's, it's this competitive nonstop. Trying, trying to, to get to a ourselves. place, yes, trying to get to a place yeah. where we're not right now. Why not just look at where you are right now and say, wow, <laughs> this is great. But that's being in the moment. That's being totally in the moment. So to me, that is, you know, one of the travesties of humanity. And it's a travesty of the media in general um, that is perpetuating this season of discontent in everyone all the time. Yes. because. Well, there's a product, there's a service, there's a person on the other side that will cure that for you, yes. right? And yes. so left really never encouraged to take time and just be with ourselves and our own thoughts and let them take us 
where they will. And I'd like you to talk about that for a moment because that can start feeding into the imagination to begin with if you get some kind of quiet time. Well, I'd like to share with your audience two things. What makes me happy? Well, when my checkbook balances at the end of the month, I'm ecstatic. (laughs) There you go. Now, I'm a guy who lives in castles for three days. I'm a guy who has great adventures. But you know what makes me happy? My checkbook balances. Stephen, I have to tell you, you know how many people I've interviewed. And some of them, you know, some of them have, you know, gotten out there, made it onto mainstream media even, and documentaries have been done about. But that's the one thing I hear most often. This is this kind of work off the beaten path is not richly rewarded financially always. Right. And people don't understand these these people struggle alongside them with the same things. But the difference is you are doing the thing you're born to do and love. They're doing the thing they're born to do and love. So we all have to struggle in one way or another. So why not start moving that direction in our own lives? Yes. And People are going to find that it makes life more enjoyable. Um, before I got into esoterics mm-hmm. and, and philosophy, um, I was a sprinter at my university. Mm-hmm. And one thing, I was running at a, at a, a level that uh, there was some very good athletes. In fact, one of my races, the world record for 100-yard dash, was tied. It was the worst defeat I had ever had. I was three yards behind. But my coach runs up to me and goes, wow, you broke our school record. And I go, what did that guy run? And he goes, they announced the time. And I go, hmm, that was a world record. But my feeling was if I ran faster than I did before, I was content, even though, quote, I'd lost. Right. I couldn't have gone any faster than I did that day. Right. And so my point of this is start with the little things to be content with. Uh, you asked earlier, if somebody comes for counseling, I would ask them again, what makes you happy? That's it. And the thing is this, this, journey called life of which I believe we is a cycle of life. We have many and it continues each time we pick up some grace, some beauty, some information along the way, stumble a little bit too. But <laughs> the whole notion that we're here for something maybe simple, like maybe we're here to help rescue dogs who have lost right. their homes. Right. That's a beautiful thing. Look what look at what a little canine critter adds to our lives to dedicate yourself to caring for your dog or caring for dogs in a more public sense all the way up through someone like you creating this library and being able to help people find their purpose in life and and even connect with the whisperings of the soul and everything in between is valuable and beautiful and we just throw ourselves in front of the bus all the time thinking we're not enough we can continue striving and, and again when is enough enough? Yeah. It, it, it seems so simple, to those two little words, but if people really got themselves into that thought, do you know, of course, there would be less prescriptions used, but yes. not everybody wants less prescriptions right. used. Uh, the idea is there's a simplicity to life. 
The simplicity of these three words that could manifest great things for people, the simplicity of love and beauty and contentment. Um, people talk about that, but I, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say the majority of the, of the very well-known people that make all these circuits they are not living the things that they talk about. That is true. They I talk, would say that. They talk good stories. Um, their lives are a mess. They, talk, they can talk about calmness, and when you meet them, they're sometimes bouncing off the walls if their ego isn't big enough. The idea <laughs> is it's just not the right message. Why can't we just go back to the simple? Uh, if somebody says, you want enlightenment, go to Tibet, Meditate for 10 years and you're going to reach nirvana. That's true. But what were the transcendentalists doing? They were hugging a tree and getting cosmic consciousness. Mm-hmm. So there, there are easier ways to do these things. Yeah. Um, and I think they're just as much fun. Maybe people, Absolutely. maybe people will say, well, no, no, I, 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 the only way I'm going to get a game. What, what? This brings us back to no pain, no gain. Yeah. Means you have to struggle, suffer, and oh, no, I'm okay. not a fan of suffering. No, I do not think that it is an obligatory element to walk the earth. Right. So, what are people going to get out of our sharing today? Of, of real, I can take this and use it. I would say the most important thing is be content with what you have and realize who you are. And that you are as great as anybody else walking on this planet. Nobody has any more access to wisdom than you do. They may have uncovered a little bit more. They don't give it to you. You already have it. It's up to us to just kind of relax and allow it to manifest in our presence. How? By beauty. Plato's banquet on love talked about how to reach the highest stages of love. The same thing goes with beauty. Once we begin to understand, why can't I take that feeling that I had looking at that beautiful picture and why not understand that I'm I'm living in this beautiful world with access to all of this Understand that we do have beauty all around us, and we will become beautiful. We're back to my opening statement about environment is everything. What was the castle? The castle was a perfect environment. What makes the supreme healers on the planet? Is it just their energy, or is it that they create an environment where you and I believe we are going to get healed? Right. Right. It supports them. And this is something that you have you have held as kind of a core to your being your whole life. Yes. And as a result of that, you have been able to um, have magical things happen, have access to all this wonderful stuff, have learned the keys and the secrets to healing, which you have helped many, many people heal themselves. Um, All of this. And I think in part because you have created this, and I've been in your home, I've been in your library, you have created this environment of absolute beauty from the thoughts down to 
the objects in the house. And as you say, it can be the tiniest space. Right. We all have the power to create beauty. Right. It starts with this. Yes. So final thought before we sign off, Stephen. Our time is almost up. Our time's up. up. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I think my final thought has been my thoughts all the way through um, to tell people they are love. They are beauty. They are so unique. Why not share their love and beauty with others? Because no one else can share your love and beauty like you do or like I do to be content and know that we are each unlimited in our potential. We're exactly where we should be and not keep trying to gather more and more and more. Couldn't agree more. And to have the boldness to even think, shocking how many times people won't even think a new thought. Like, oh, no, that won't come true. No, that's frivolous. To have the boldness to even think a new thought, especially if it's something that attends to beauty of some kind. Yes. Think a new thought, which can let and lead to an imaginal type of creation of some kind. Trust, trust, trust. Trust yourself. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for that because a lot of people need it right now, Stephen. We're all thinking we're not enough, especially after, yeah, year and a half, two years of COVID, picking up that on average 29 pounds, everybody's beating themselves up, lethargy. So this is a really good time to hear this message. And uh, I love you. It's so good to see you in the flesh again. Thanks. I love you and take care. Thank you, Stephen. As always, I'm grateful for our time with Stephen. If you want to reach out to him, you can go to wrfworldresearchfoundation.org. And what a treasure trove, including his own books there, which you'll have access to. And can they buy them on Amazon now? Uh, I have some, but my books are on lesscomplicated.net. Lesscomplicated.net. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. <laughs> hmm. Okay, what are we going to do next, Rama? Ramatayas. Okay. Ready? Yeah. This is called Awakening the Conscious Ego. Matthias de Stefano. 27 minutes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which species had the most influence on human design? I am your host and guide, Matthias Stefano. In this episode, we will uncover how the leap in human evolution created a vehicle for humans to transcend the third dimension. The design of every species was held by the sixth dimension. So us, in other dimensions, we design the patterns and the purposes of every species, every race, in every world, every planet, every system. So those patterns and those those structures were already settled for everyone in 
every reality. So what we could do with that in the fourth dimension, the third dimension, was just to play with those tools that were given to us so we could try to improve our own genetics, our own way of being. So for other beings in other planets, what they started to do was to reach for those planets where the evolution and the and the patterns of creation were able to adapt to their own patterns of creation. That would be the main characteristics of the species being burned from water, earth, fire, and air. Those beings were in the normal evolution for, for every planet and here on earth, they were the, the, the perfect design to make improvement and evolution for a natural order. There was no alien and no confederation involved in the creation of the species on Earth. It was just Earth trying to uh, to evolve itself in different ways, in different patterns, using the main tools that the sixth dimension gave to us. So from there, it was just improvement after improvement through the patterns of evolution in this planet. But they knew that this planet, Earth, was in the process of awakening. So through millions of years, they start to reach this planet, to watch this planet, to see how was the evolution of this planet. So they tried many times to create a civilization in this planet, not only from one million years ago, but also from before the dinosaurs. We had many tries to create civilizations in different times of our history, before dinosaurs, with the dinosaurs, after the dinosaurs, and we were trying to 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 see what the planet was trying to to reach. But one of the things that makes us made us know that that humans were the chosen ones was because we started to use words. Humans took a different path in geometry that was not exactly the same like other beings on the planet. They start to recognize themselves as a being. They could recognize themselves and think about themselves and saying for the first time, or kind of say for the, for the first time, I am this moment in which I introduce myself to another being with my hands, with my movements, with my eyes, with my language, sounds, was the moment where not only tetrahedron, cube, icosahedron and dodecahedron were working on us, but also was activated the octahedron. When the essence was activated on us and the natural order of the planet was trying to evolve into consciousness, the other planets in the confederation start to feel that vibration, that there was a species recognizing itself. We can understand this like if we could imagine that the whole galaxy is like a big spider web. And there are some species that are like spiders in different planets. So when you 
see those spiders, they, they are still in their planets waiting for the waves of vibration and time to be filled by them. So they can, they could see and reach by vibration where there is something new vibrating in the same level of consciousness. That's how the network works. They just being in their own planet start to feel that something is changing in the purpose of the network, that something new is vibrating. For some planets that are those spiders, they felt like we are new spiders in evolution. And for other planets, we were like a fly. And every aware being in the galaxy knows that when they feel this vibration that resonates with them is because not only a species is becoming aware, but the planet is becoming aware. Yeah. And that was the main key that told us that Earth was thinking about who she is. Yeah. She stopped to evolve normally through the four elements and suddenly awakes the fifth element that unites them all, that is the awareness of itself. This vibration resonates in the whole universe, the whole galaxy, and every planet that is aware of itself tries to reach that information and to seek that information. And the most similar vibration between Earth, hominids, and the galaxy that we that we share was in Ar Arturus. So that's why Arturian people realized that this planet was able to handle their own vibration and their own patterns. This is how the Arturians started to codify this these patterns of geometry that they have into the idea of putting those patterns in those hominids in that new planet so we could develop our our consciousness but it was not because they were interested in humans they were interested in speak with earth the only way you can speak with a planet with the consciousness of a planet is if there is a species able to speak and able to think the goal in the galaxy is not about civilizations. It's about how civilizations allow us to talk with the planets, to talk with the self. So in order to improve these new cell phones to talk with this planet, we needed to create a better pattern to improve the hominids becoming homo sapiens sapiens. The first humans were born in Africa, but the Homo sapiens sapiens were born in Middle East. The human was created around that area because that region there has so much power in energy. It's one of the main portals of the whole flow of vibration in the planet. 200,000 years ago, when the first Aletheid came to this planet was to bring all the information of the blood of every other being to communicate with the blood of the planet. We have to recognize that it was not about humans, it was about the planet. They were trying to talk with the planet. So the first codes from every planet has to be in the water of this planet. That's why the Alitir came to settle in the islands of the Pacific 
so they could be in touch with the water and bring that information. After that, the other races start to came to the main portal of energy in the planet, which was Middle East. The plateau of Middle East with Iran, Turkey, Arabia, Syria, and Sinai, all that plateau has so much energy that allowed them to come and took humans to make the improvement of all the consciousness of other planets in this plan. So the first ones to be arrived to this, to do this kind of test in Middle East were the Aesir. The first humans to be prepared were women because they were able to reproduce and to improve the DNA. So women were chosen to create this new species, this new race. And it was in what we call now the Persic Gulf, which in that time was called the Eden Garden. Eden was a place where the Aesir, the Anunnaki, were able to test with women, with men, and make the improvements for the human design. While the Arturians were designing the humans through geometry and DNA. We can say in such a way that Arturians were working in the laboratory and the Anunnaki were putting the strength in our blood by living with us, by being in touch with us. So both experiments were the same in different ways. Arturians were using the Anunnaki so they could improve how humanity would be. They needed some species more stronger to be in touch with humans. And Anunnaki, they were the only one more similar to us that could live in the third dimension and that were a little bit more accepted by the immunological system of the planet. So that's why while Arturians were designing us in geometry and patterns and DNA from above, they were living with us and using us physically. The Arturians realized that the pattern of the being is the octahedron. And that octahedron is like the seed of reality. We call that the seed of universe. The octahedron is like a small diamond that connects every reality with the self. So what they did was to improve the chakras, not only to be engines to move energy, but also to be itself a being, each one of them. So what they did was to improve our way of walking, to be straight, looking forward, and to align every code of the octahedron one over the other one, so the flow of energy would be better and we would be able to channel like trees the light and the darkness all in the same correct way. There's two ways to channel information. One way is surrounding Earth, doing like horizontal moving of energy, and there's another way, vertical. So animals move the horizontal, and we were the only ones uniting the the consciousness of the digitals and the consciousness of animals. By being animals, 
that can breathe and be like trees. This improvement of consciousness in geometry and patterns help us to channel the information and to be connected to the network of information of the whole universe. Being in this shape with our heads up looking to the sky, what, what allows us was to become like hills, like mountains, downloaded all, all the information. And that moment that we became like the torus itself in geometry within, we were able to download all the culture information that made in just 50,000 years make a very quick leap in the creation of Homo sapiens sapiens. When a being realizes that he or she is, the personality starts to begin. It starts to create the idea of someone. So that means that for the first time, I can say, I am. And the word for I or I am in Latin is ego. Ego, ego sum in Latin means I am. So when I say ego, ego, it means that I recognize that I am an individual separated from the other ones. So when we start, we have two, two stages or three stages to recognize the ego. The first one is the subconscious, which is very far away from us and the meaning of what the ego is. In the subconscious, ego means everyone being the reflection of just one truth. In the unconscious, it means the being that tries to survive besides the other ones. So in the process of unconscious is I recognize that I am a being and I have to survive over those other beings. In the process of consciousness is when I recognize that I am a reflection of the oneself and that I have the power to transform reality. So in the process of creation of humanity, naturally, we are the subconscious ego of the planet. So we are in need to understand who we are. That's the main question that from the ancient times we have, who we are, why we are here. And that's the subconscious answer and questions that the planet has. Then we have the unconscious. The unconscious ego is the ego based on the animal and plant's emotions. I have to survive. I have fear. So this ego is the same than the other ones, but it is willing to eat as much energy around to survive itself. And that's the ego we are more related to because we are still unconscious. Naturally, in this world, all animals try to live as short as possible. And that's because our main goal and the only goal was to improve genetics and to pass the information as soon as possible. So that's why we needed to reproduce as soon as possible so we could die at the moment that we see that our sons or daughters are improved project of ourselves. So every being in this planet doesn't have a long life like a mammal because we needed to 
improve constantly in the world where we were. We started to live a lot, like many years, like hundreds of years, even uh, some some of them like thousands of years, when the first genetists came and they adapt their codes of DNA to our bodies. So a few of the people, like in Mu, like in Atlantis, they were able to live a lot uh, longer than any any other. But those people were called the blue ones. So the blue ones were special in, in our planet because they were able to live a lot. But when we say a lot, it's different from what we think now. A few of them, because they were more close to Arturian people, they were able to live like 500 or a thousand years, but they were the less of them. Other ones were able to live like 80 or 90 years. For now, for us today, that's normal. But for that time, humans usually used to live 35 years, and that was too much. So living 80 years, it was like living a lot. And why did this happen? Because the energy of an improvement of DNA allows us to transcend information, not only by blood, but also by, by mind. So when we started to work with mind, we discovered that we were able to live longer because we were able to, to achieve more information being alive. And we recognized that biology was not the only way to survive in this planet. And that's why we improved ourselves to live longer. And also because of the programming of the DNA from Arturus, it helped some of us live a lot, like thousands of, of years. But the problem with that was that we were repeating exactly the same problem that we had in the fourth dimension. That the idea of this planet, as many of other planets, is to improve the being and to, and to transform ourselves constantly. For the six-dimensional beings, death was not the ending, was going to the cocoon to become a butterfly. So it was a process that we needed to transcend our idea of who we are. Because the one self is just one, but reflected in so many, that we need to experience those many to understand the self. So that's why we needed to die. In one hand, we had the process of the natural process that helped us to, to, to die because we needed to, to improve ourselves. And in the other hand, there was some other beings that were trying to structure ourselves so much that they created so many illnesses, viruses, and a lot of things that could attack us so we could not live longer. And their main goal was that if we don't reach farther than 33 years old or 35 years old, then we will never reach the moment of alignment in emotions. The first part of our life, which is uh, until our 21, 24 years, is the time when more energy we create. So for many beings from other dimensions, if we reach how to handle by ourselves 
that amount of energy, it meant the end of their harvest of energy. So that's why also from other dimensions, they needed us to die as soon as possible so we could have as much energy we could have and then die and create a new one, a new one, a new one. So we would never reach the age of a balance, which would be the after the 52 years old. So in different dimensions, there were different projects for us to shorten our lives. So there were many reasons why we had to live shorter because we needed to transcend. In just one word, we needed to transcend. So that's why if we, if we live uh, for thousands of years without consciousness, what we could do is to kill the planet because the only ones that can live thousands of years are the beings that are aligned and balanced with everything in the planet, like the oldest trees, the mountains, the minerals. Otherwise, imagine a civilization like us that lives in unconscious, living thousands of years and using the resources for thousands and millions and millions and millions of people that doesn't know how to handle a planet. So that's why we need to die. Otherwise, the planet will die. The beings from other civilizations also had to go through the subconscious and unconscious ego to reach the conscious ego. When they reached the conscious ego, they just recognized that they were uh, a, an expression of their planet, an expression of the of the galaxy, an expression of their own stars. So they they recognize the power of the self, but they respect the power of the other selves which they know they are other parts of themselves. So ego is something really useful in evolution because in the first stage, help us to survive. Ego help us to understand that we have to keep living, that we have to transcend information through lives, through death in our whole lives. So ego is not something bad. It's what makes you know who you are. The problem of ego is when it's unconscious and you think that you have to survive in uh, in your environment, that you have to fight in order to take care of your place. That's the animal way of thinking. So what we have to do is to improve our ego, which is the self, which is the octahedron. When we have this organized being in every one of our chakras, and we have this alignment in every one of our chakras, the ego stops being something that tries to make us survive and becomes something that helps us to recognize who we are and the power to transform reality. It's important to know that we've been many thousands of years trying to go outside this planet, and still we do today, looking into the stars, trying to see from where we came from, gods, aliens that came from the stars to create us. And in such a way, we are trying to to go back home and try to reach the stars and to see the heavens. But the reason why we were here is because Earth, 
is not because we were created on Earth to go outside the planet. It's because in the structure of the universe, every planet is a portal to get into any dimension. And to recognize that we humans are Earth, and that's the meaning of human. Human means, in Latin, earthy. So when we recognize that we are Earth, that we are part of Earth, and that everything that happened in our history, it was to teach us how to be bounded to this planet, how to reach the depth of this planet. It helps us to understand that we have an important task to accomplish here, which is make this planet aware of himself, herself, itself. So every thing that we do in our normal lives is creating thoughts and understanding for the planet. And we have to leave away this idea that we are a species over a rock that is that is just floating in the universe. We are this rock. We are this being. And this being is thinking. And the main reason why we know the Earth is thinking is because we exist. So when we change our mind in stop thinking about Earth and humans, and we start to call us Earth, that's the most important thing that we could do to remember that every civilization that accomplished to be in the Confederation to bring balance to the galaxy is not because they reached the mind, it's because they reached their heart to be bounded to the core of their planets. They became their own planets, and they resonate with the planets, and that's what made them a very high-level conscious beings. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I am your host and guide, Matthias Stefano. In the next episode, we will explore how the agricultures work with the sixth dimension to influence human evolution. Okay, so Rama, what do we want to do now? Linking symbology through time. Okay. With Johnny Enoch. All right, let's do this. How many minutes, Rama? 27 minutes. 27 minutes. Have you ever been scrolling through your news feed on social media and ran into a seemingly benign esoteric symbol, but below it is an elaborate explanation that it must be evil because it has a hidden meaning? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not always the case. Is there are numerous meanings for the various logos, names, and colors we use, and you might interpret them differently once you know what to look for. In this episode, we will explore the hidden language of symbolism, why it exists, and how you can learn to read it. Every day on the commute to work, most people are used to seeing that two-tailed green mermaid on the side of a coffee cup, 
which is not only a siren that lures people in for caffeine, but it also represents an important figure from European folklore and the serpent mother of the royal families known as Melusine. However, she's also the Egyptian goddess Isis and the sign for Pisces. Maybe you've noticed a Mazda car emblem when you're in traffic, which says in their own literature that they are named after the Persian Zoroastrian god Ahura Mazda, and they use the symbol for one of the elemental aspects of human existence, which is a winged man in a flying disc, Fravahar or Fravashi in the Avesta. But sometimes esoteric symbolism is even more shocking when it's found in a story of a popular iconic comic book hero or a movie that you've seen countless times. You might be surprised to learn that Superman is an encoded story about an Anunnaki ET savior of humanity from a Nibiru-like planet called Krypton. Both writer Jerry Siegel and artist Joe Shuster were of Jewish descent. Superman's name was Kel-El, his father was Jor-El, and the symbol on his chest was the Hebrew letter Lamed, which looks like an S and is connected to the house of El. According to the book of Genesis, the Elohim were gods that created us in their image. But in order to find out why we have esoteric symbolism, we don't have to look much further than our great teachers of the past who became martyrs for having an idealism that was far before their time. At other times, there were rebels that burned great libraries to the ground, forcing the mystery schools of antiquity to hide sacred knowledge behind a cloaked veil of allegories and symbols. Any knowledge that was intended for the public or the profane was considered exoteric knowledge. Countless civilizations have come before us, but a lot of their writings were lost to great wars and cataclysms, but they left behind a language of symbolism preserved and passed down by the mystery schools. This symbolism is powerful due to how the collective consciousness of humanity responds strongly to it, and there's a hidden language all around us. Take our statues, for example. In the ancient world, when people were bowing before gods and goddesses, leaving offerings, prayers, and marble sculptures, the wise would stand back and observe hidden knowledge personified into stone about celestial mechanics and solar pageantry. We even find that today with the statue of St. Peter at St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican, where people have kissed the feet off of it. And according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, it's actually Zeus or Jupiter, the ruler of Cassiopeia. Members of secret societies are taught to leave behind signs and tokens in their work. This could be the reason why your Gmail logo looks like a Masonic apron and your App Store icon is a compass and a square. Traditionally, in order to decode any of these symbols, you're required to have a classical education of the seven liberal arts and sciences. This would include things like grammar, rhetoric, logic, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. But sometimes we use esoteric symbols and we're not aware of it. For example... Many alphabets have hidden meanings behind their letters, including our own, which we inherit from the Phoenicians or the Hebrew and Arabic. The Egyptian hieroglyphics are a great symbolic alphabet, which can be read in multiple ways or directions, depending on the way the characters are facing you. For example, we have a long writing style that you see on temple walls, a shorthand version, which is much like how we will have a cursive writing, and then we have printed writing, and then there is a mystical way of reading the letters that was reserved for only the initiates. 
When we examine esoteric and exoteric languages, there were two ways of writing them. One way was from left to right, which was exoteric or publicly known knowledge because you're writing it away from the heart. If you write anything from right to left towards the heart, these were the secrets of the ancient world. If you look at Jerusalem from the center of its landmass from space, it's divided up with all the languages to the west being written left to right, and all the languages in the east are written right to left. According to Madame Blavatsky, the mysteries, like when you're reading ancient scriptures and mythologies, are like a lock that has to be turned seven times to decode them. Here are the seven keys, according to her. We have a physiological or anthropological key, which we also call the human key or being biographical. When we turn the lock again, we would have an astronomical key, meaning that we'd have astrotheological aspects encoded into a story. We'd have a symbolic key. We all have a theogonic key, meaning a certain religious tie-in. We'd have a meteorological key, which we would also connect to numerical or geometrical values. We also had a metaphysical key. And finally, there was a mystical key. She also mentioned a combination of a cosmogeological key and even a general scientific key that was called the key of matter. We see this in the Bible as it is an encoded document that borrows from the ancient Egyptians, the Hindu scriptures, Jainism, and Buddhism. It's filled with many secrets that were hidden in its symbolism by the mystery schools with much of the actual hidden in the literal. First of all, one secret is that the New Testament is actually older than the Old Testament, and they both contain hidden astrotheological stories about not only the procession of the equinoxes or ages, but also the solar mysteries with Jesus, the Son, and his 12 helpers or constellations, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being the four seasons. Let's examine the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We know that it comes from the Sumerian Enuma Lish. And according to some scholars, they now believe the story of Abraham and Sarah is in reference to the Indian Brahman or Brahma, and Sarah is a Saraswati river mentioned in the Vedas. We find occult anatomy is encoded into the story of Cain and Abel with the two lobes of the cerebrum were also called Cain and Abel by the ancients. The legend of the curse of Cain is the curse of unbalance. And for the murder of the spirit or the equilibrium, which is our balance, Cain is sent forth as a wanderer upon the face of the earth. Maybe you've watched Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves before. This is a symbolic story about how it says Israel was white as snow, meaning purity, with its name coming from the Egyptian Isis, Ra, and El. And the Seven Dwarves are the personalities of the Seven Churches of Asia. On my trips to the Vatican, I always notice a famous statue in the courtyard of the Fontana della Pigna, or the Fountain of the Pinecone, which is just outside of the Egyptian wing of their museum. What's very interesting about this is that on either side of it, we find two peacocks, which represent immortality, especially in relation to the Indian mysteries. And just behind it, we find an open Egyptian sarcophagi telling us that this is the passageway to everlasting life. In this connection to opening up 
to regeneration in immortality, we're seeing that this is symbolic of the spiritual doorway to the brain, which is the pineal gland. This is often symbolized in the mysteries as a pine cone. In fact, the pontiff even has a pine cone at the end of his staff. And Jesus mentions it in the Bible when we look at Matthew 6.22. He says, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Probably the most common symbolism we find all throughout the mysteries is the serpent. It is found all over the world and represents different types of energy. We find it in Asia with the Naga, in Mexico with Quetzalcoatl and Kukulikan. In Egypt, we find it on the headdress of the king protruding from the pineal gland. It's on the caduceus, or the medical symbol we use today on the side of your ambulance, showing the serpents moving up the spine and awakening the pineal and the two swan wings on either side, or the hemispheres of your brain representing the equilibrium. The serpent is among the oldest worship symbols venerated in the world. Anthropologists have even found caves in Africa that portray serpent worship going back 70,000 years. What we believe is this tradition comes from Atlantis, as according to the Arab geographers, the mythical island was often referred to as Antilla's Island or the Dragon's Isle. The serpent is symbolized as the awakening of the spirit fire, immortality and regeneration within us. It is also represented on the cartouche of the Egyptian royalty or name titles. When it is facing inwards, it means the initiate is seeking immortality. But if the serpents are facing away from each other, it means immortality has been attained. The alchemists, inspired by ancient Egypt, Greece, and the Gnostics, often used the symbol of the Aurora Boris, or the serpent eating its own tail, to symbolize immortality and wisdom. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge after conversing with a talking snake that moves up a tree or the spine as portrayed in the Sistine Chapel by the master Michelangelo. According to Blavatsky, she says this is based on the tree rites of ancient India, which is where we get the tradition of the Kabbalistic tree of life and the Jewish candelabrium or menorah with its tree branches holding candles that represent the planetary bodies of our solar system and the chakras on the menorah. Later in the book of Genesis, in chapter 49:17, it mentions how the tribe of Dan moved along the path of the serpent or the ley lines of the earth, which is why our ancient temples have been built with geomagnetic energy and how the adder was biting at their feet. The serpent can be geomagnetic and move along the ley lines of the earth, or it can be a type of universal or invisible energy from which the ancients called Fohat, and which Tesla called Scalar, the German secret societies called Vril, and today we call it Zero Point. Blavatsky tells us in the secret doctrine that the ancients understood that our universe and solar system was formed with serpentine movements of Fohat using the debris in space. In fact, we know in our sciences that this is how it works. Take the formation of rocky planets, for instance. We're told that an embryonic mass gathers from the plaza of stars, and then there's a pushing and a pulling from centripetal and centrifugal forces. And because of a heating and cooling with radioactive decay, we have the gathering of moisture. This is not only what causes the formation of these subterranean complexes that are like a honeycomb pattern, 
But this is also where the underwater mantle comes from. I think it's amazing that Blavatsky and the esoteric teachings have said this all along with these serpentine movements in the universe. Colors also hold special meaning in esoteric teachings. Not only the ones that we can see, but also the invisible ones outside of the visible light spectrum. To the secret societies, the colors red, blue, green, and yellow were very important because these are the hidden prismatic colors of the sun. We not only find the symbolism on the Golden Dawn's rosy cross, but the symbol is also found on the Eastern Star of Freemasonry. Some colors have been important to alchemy, with gold and silver being like the sun and the moon. But then there are the rainbow colors, which are also associated with the chakras and auras. When we associate them with a constellation, we typically put their formation in a wheel. Not only are color frequencies associated with musical notes and the music of the spheres, but when they're represented in a rainbow pattern, they can symbolize a kundalini awakening as the energy sources of the body are lit up. Another area we need to examine with esoteric symbolism is architectonics and the unique and interesting design of occult cities. The principle for this comes from Plotinus, who wrote an essay called The Beautiful, where he said that we find this beauty in all things through symmetry, and the importance of aesthetics was that the more beautiful your buildings were, the more heightened of a consciousness a civilization would have in comparison to today, where a lot of our buildings are these square, block, stone-cold-like places. We also find an example of what's known as the triptych arch inside of government buildings. And this is where you would see a doorway that has three layers. Again, inside of there, we find the solar trinity of the morning sun, the midday sun, the evening sun, or you go back into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mind, body, and spirit, Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu, Osiris, Isis, and Horus. We also find these occult secrets encoded into cities like London, which the Romans called Londinium, or the ancient name Laodon, named after the Celtic sun god. It should be noted that if you ever visit Westminster, you'll notice that there is a very important obelisk there, which comes from Egypt, and it was raised in an area called On, or Heliopolis. This is the city of the light. It's very important to masonry. And so by placing that obelisk there and in other important cities, such as New York, France, as well as just outside of the Vatican, this symbolism tells us that the light of the mystery is there. But this symbolic link to obelisk doesn't end there, as we also know that Big Ben, which is built on the Ben Ben stone, is also in the formation of a giant obelisk. The same is true when we look at Paris, or Paraisis, the city of lights. When you examine the Eiffel Tower, we know that Mr. Eiffel spent time in Egypt, and he based the Eiffel Tower on an obelisk. That city is literally loaded with esoteric symbolism. 
But when we look at these obelisks, we find them all over the world in front of important governmental buildings or even in Washington, D.C. with the Washington Monument. And why that is, is that these act like acupuncture needles on the planet to realign energy that we're all receiving on some level. But churches and temples are filled with beautiful historicity and symbolism, especially if we look at the work of Jay Widener and Vincent Bridges' classic book, The Mysteries of the Great Cross of Hendai, where they go into fantastic detail about the observations made by the alchemist Fulcanelli, who decoded the Gothic art hidden in European cathedrals, which included Kabbalistic meanings, cycles, and transformation. If you've ever looked at the outside of a church, you will notice these giant steeples, which are shaped like phalluses, and the windows look like yoni openings. Sexual symbolism is found all throughout our ancient religions because it represents God's procreative power. And this was very sacred to the mystery schools. When you go inside of the church and move closer to the altar, you move closer to the womb, which is where the preacher stands. The yoni and phallus were worshipped all throughout the ancient world and were never meant to be anything vulgar. On my visits to the ancient archaeological island of Delos, or Mykonos in Greece, you still find evidence of the ancient phallus-worshipping cults. We find symbolism for the yoni if you look carefully at the depictions of St. Mary on her veils, or the gate of the temple, the oval nimbus, and the vesica Pisces, which you might recognize as a symbol for MasterCard with circles superimposed on each other. And if you look carefully, you'll see that the opening for the yoni is in the middle. In the 16th century, there was a famous occultist, an astrologer named John Dee. He was the original James Bond, or 007, for Queen Elizabeth I. This is actually where Ian Fleming got the idea for his beloved spy character. 007 is not only 00 squared with the two eyes for the queen, but it represents two-ball cane, or two balls and a cane. This is a symbol for procreative power and can be seen when you look above at an illustration for Solomon's Temple. This symbol is also important in Freemasonry, and curiously enough, it looks just like the Facebook logo. We also find these symbols on the American $1 bill. As Jordan Maxwell has been pointing out for years in his lectures, there's a lot more going on on the outside of the American $1 bill as it contains the original seal for the Bavarian Illuminati, which was founded by Adam Weishaupt on May 1st, 1776. As well, in one corner of the bill, you can find almost microscopically that there is the Owl of Minerva or Athena. But as he'll point out to you, that if you examine the area where the pyramid is, we see that there is a circle around the pyramid showing us that the builders of the Great Pyramid and Stonehenge were connected. We also find the coronas of the rays of the sun blazing in glory around the circle. As strange as this may appear, we also find this connection is true of the symbolism traditionally used on American restrooms. You might find that the men's room had a triangle or a pyramid representing this procreative energy of life, just like the word for pyramid is the pyramid or the fire in the middle And the women's restroom was a circle for the circle of life, or the womb. There are many important connections to occult symbols of numerology and patterns in esoteric teachings. Some of these come from a knowledge of Pythagorean number systems. The secret societies also like to use ciphers, 
So you would have an alphanumeric system like the letter A is 1, B is 2, C is 3. So, for example, 1313 is MM for Master Mason. But there are many astrotheological numbers that stand out, like how Enoch lived to be 365 years of age, which is a personification for the days or cycles of the sun. We find that the number 72 is also very significant as there is a shifting of degrees in astrological cycles. This is found over and over again in the mysteries with the 72 virgins or 72 like the Greek Septuagint Bible where we are told that there are 72 scholars that translated it. In numerology, we have a basic foundation of numbers. Number one means new beginnings, creativity, and willpower. Number two is partnerships, trust choices, and balance. Number three always means mastery, completion, or advancements. Remember also we said that this is connected to the Trinity, or mind, body, and spirit. Number four represents hard work, achievement, and stability. Number five represents adventure, passion, and exploration. Number six is typically associated with growth, learning, and protection. Number seven universally represents spirituality, mysticism, and healing. Number eight is associated with new opportunities, good fortune, and abundance. Nine is the number of initiation, or the months you spend in the womb. Number ten was always sacred to Pythagoras as a perfect number, not only because the symbol for it is the X, which is like a cross, but it was meant to symbolize the attainment of greatness. It is also the number of nodes that we find with the Sephiroth on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. One really cool secret is that after you understand the universal symbolism of numbers, you can learn to read the tarot. Tarot cards are a great system that use esoteric symbolism. Their uses were not always for divination, however, but they also have meditation purposes, and traditionally they were used for sending secret messages. It's much easier to understand the esoteric keys to the cards with the numbers and suits so that you can ask the cards what they mean to you. These are the esoteric keys to decoding the symbolism used for the suits and the tarot. When you take pentacles, for instance, think of them like money because we see little coins with pentacles drawn on them. When you look at their astrological signs they're associated with, these are earth signs like Taurus, Virgo, Capricorn. So it has to do with issues involving money, wealth, power. In fact, when we look at what time frames are associated with this suit of the tarot, what you will look at is the season of autumn or years. So, for example, if you pulled a two of pentacles card, this would represent two years. When we look at wands, think of these like creativity and fire and putting out energy into the world. These are associated with clubs and regular playing cards. We know their astrological principles are fire signs like Aries, Leo, and Sagittarius. If you're looking at their meaning, we're looking at creativity, passion, or taking action. The time frames associated with this suit would be weeks or the season of spring. When we examine swords, we find that they have an intellectual or mental association with them which you can memorize by using an association with the saying, she was sharp as a sword. The equivalent in playing cards is actually spades. There's an astrological association here with air signs, with Aquarius, Libra, and Gemini, 
Again, these are matters of intellect, thoughts, and observation. The time frames associated with these suits are months or the season of winter. When we look at cups, these are matters of the heart, of emotions. Think of drinking in, taking things in. The equivalent with playing cards are hearts. The astrological association with these are water signs such as Cancer, Scorpio, and Pisces. The time frames are days of the week or the season of summer. Once you master reading the suits, you can apply the knowledge of esoteric numerology to them. For example, if you get a one or an ace of a suit like swords, this is a new beginning involving an intellectual matter such as a new job. If you get a two of cups, this is a new partnership or relationship involving an emotional connection. There's a cool trick you can use to read the major arcana also. This is just the story of the trials and tribulations of human life. The first card is zero or the fool, which is why we call this the journey of the fool. A little secret is the same man on the magician card of one and the same woman on the high priestess card of two are the characters that follow you through the entire journey all the way up to card 21. But the 21 is the one and two coming together of card one and two of both the masculine and feminine in perfect balance for the androgynous nature of the universal spirit. Using this understanding, you can try doing your own tarot spread by asking a question and seeing what cards come out of your deck or split them into three cards of one, two, and three for past, present, and future. Symbols are the hidden or esoteric foundations of cultures around the world. Everything we do throughout life, whether we know it or not, is based and organized upon cultural and esoteric symbolism. If there's one thing that the mystery schools teach us is to always seek the deeper meanings and explore universal truths that lay hidden below the surface level thinking mind. I'm Johnny Enoch, and thanks for watching Mystery Teachings. Oh, wow. Yes. We're going to go. Okay. We're going to listen to music now. And uh, enjoying it up in the atmosphere, but we're going to do the these beautiful operatic singers. It's just profound. So let's see, where is it now? Vasistas. Um, no. Um. <laughs> Motivation. Okay, where is it? Where art thou? I'm coming. What? You found it? No. <laughs> oh, you're just announcing that I'm jabbering and it's coming. Uh, it is coming. <laughs> Accessible to all. Call now. Visit our website to give. Thank you. We're back once again with Il Bolo, and wow, what an incredible concert. What was your favorite part about this show? I would say that my favorite thing about the concert was the opportunity to work with the Maestro Morricone's family. Bringing in Andrea Morricone really elevated the show and forced everyone to excel. Well, I don't 
No. I have my favorite oh, part. Was which one? My favorite part was the beginning. Because this show was the first one after two years of uh, pandemic, lockdown, bad things. So going back on stage and listen the applause and uh, see our audience. As you know, our audience for us is oxygen. And being on stage, we always say that the stage is our home. So being on stage for us, we, we feel like home. And also to see again our, our audience after two years, I think that's the best moment of the show. After this reply, I should just be quiet. You know, I, sh I shouldn't talk. But I agree. <laughs> I agree. And, but I can say that I love the moment of our solos because it was the first time that the three of us stayed on stage, like in the same time, you know? Like when Gianluca sang, both of so us were singing. Yes. Just. So I think it was... It was emotional for us. But your moment when the little guy came up with I know, it was the best thing. <laughs> More with Il Volo coming up. But right now, they are encouraging you to support this station right now. Celebrate just how indispensable... Okay, just a moment. Okay, okay. That was excellent. Okay, well, Rainbird, you got the show. Now, and I know the angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, and crystals are with you, and so are the hobbits and the manahoonies. And who else? Anybody else out there? I love you, Rainbird. Here we go. Pass this talking stick to you. You forgot the hobbits. Oh, I thought I just said it. Oh, I'll maybe say. you did. <laughs> <laughs> Hobbits oh, my God, that music is so beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Uh, thank you. Thank, thank, uh, thank uh, PBS. I'm sorry, that's PBS that did that one. Wow. Yeah. Well, they've done good. I loved it. I know. I know. It's, just, it's, just, it's just a lot of beauty to add to the whole evening. And so, wow, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A good evening. A great have a great day, a good weekend. We had some fun and we did some stuff and we got to enjoy some good music. So lots of gratitude. And, uh, yeah, thank you again. And I passed this talking stick over to you, Lana. Here it comes. Okay. What you got for us, Rob? This is Alan Watts, Big Buddha. Big Buddha. That reminds me of that time you walked underneath the mountain with the Tibetan Lama. Ooh. And then you got in the canoe. And then you went to this really big Buddha. Mm. How, big, how big was that Buddha? All in jade? Four stories tall. <laughs> That's a real thing, everybody, underneath a mountain here. Ooh. Hyde Park. Mountain. All right. Big Buddha. The universe is the game of the self, which plays hide and seek forever and ever. When it plays hide, it plays it so well, hides so clever, that it pretends to be all of us. 
and all things whatsoever, and we don't know it because it's playing high. But when it plays seek, it enters onto a path of yoga, and through following this path, it wakes up, and the scales fall from one's eyes. And the only really important thing about Buddhism is the experience which they call awakening. Buddha comes from a Sanskrit root, Buddha, and that sometimes means to know, but better, waking. And so you get from this root, Bodhi, that is the state of being awakened, and so Buddha, the awakened one, the awakened person. And so there can, of course, be very many Buddhas. The person called the Buddha is only one of myriads, because they, like the Hindus, are quite sure that our world is only one among billions, and that Buddhas come and go in all the worlds. But sometimes, you see, there comes into the world what you might call a big Buddha, very important one. And such a one is said to have been Gotama, the son of a prince living in northern India, in the part of the world we now call Nepal, most of you, I'm sure, know the story of his life. But the point is that when in India a man was called a Buddha or the Buddha, this is a title of a very exalted nature. It is first of all necessary for a Buddha to be human. He can't be any other kind of being. He is superior to all gods because, according to Indian ideas, gods and angels, all those exalted beings, are still in the wheel of becoming, still in the chains of karma, that is action, which requires the need for more action to complete it and goes on requiring the need for more action. They're still going round the wheel from life after life after life after life because they still have the thirst for existence or to put it in a Hindu way, in them the self is still playing the game of not being itself. <laughs> but the Buddha's doctrine, based on his own experience of awakening, which occurred after seven years of attempts to study with the various yogis of the time, all of whom used the method of extreme asceticism, fasting, doing all sorts of exercises, lying on beds of nails, sleeping on broken rocks, any kind of thing to break down egocentricity, to become unselfish, to become detached, to exterminate desire for life.
Ugh. But Buddha found that all that was futile. Right. That was not the way. No. And one day he broke his ascetic discipline and accepted a bowl of some kind of milk soup from a girl who was looking after cattle. And suddenly, in this tremendous relaxation, he went and sat down under a tree, and the burden lifted. He saw completely that what he had been doing was on the wrong track. You can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. <laughs> and no amount of effort will make a person who believes himself to be an ego be really unselfish. Right. So long as you think and feel that you are contained in your bag of skin, and that's all, there is no way whatsoever of your behaving unselfishly. Hundred thousand angels. Good one, Rama. Okay, everybody, with a hundred thousand angels, let's take that with us into the night work and tomorrow evening and Monday evening, let's join Cheryl and keep this energy moving with us. And the number is four two five four three six. 6260 and the pin code 946-7441 pounds. There's more to come, everybody. Let the angels sing inside of us. We are the ones we've been waiting for, right, Rama? Uh, yeah. (laughs) Inshallah, Satnam. Thirteen thank you, honey in the art. Honey in the heart and no evil and live long and prosper. Right, Rainbow? <laughs> <laughs> Aloha everyone. It is such good energy to bring to the scene. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Namaste. Namaste.